A Ghost in Winterfell The dead man was found at the base of the inner wall, with his neck broken and only his left leg showing above the snow that had buried him during the night. If Ramsay's bitches had not dug him up, he might have stayed buried till spring. By the time Ben Bones pulled them off, Grey Jane had eaten so much of the dead man's face that half the day was gone before they knew for certain who he'd been. A man-at-arms of four and forty years who had marched north with Roger Risewell. A drunk, Risewell declared. Pissing off the wall, I'll wager. He slipped and fell. No one disagreed. But Theon Greyjoy found himself wondering why any man would climb the snow-slick steps to the battlements in the black of night just to take a piss. As the garrison broke its fast that morning on stale bread fried in bacon grease, the lords and knights ate the bacon. The talk along the benches was of little but the corpse. Stannis as friends inside the castle, Theon heard one sergeant mutter. He was an old tall heart man, three trees sewn on his ragged surcoat. The watch had just changed. Men were coming in from the cold, stumping their feet to knock the snow off their boots and breeches as the midday meal was served. Blood sausage, leeks, and brown bread still warm from the ovens. Stannis, laughed one of Ruth Risewell's riders. Stannis is snowed to death by now, else he's run back to the wall with his tail froze between his legs. He could be camped five feet from our walls with a hundred thousand men, said an archer wearing servant collars. We'd never see a one of them through this storm. Endless, ceaseless, merciless. The snow had fallen day and night. Drifts climbed the walls and filled the crenels along the battlements. White blankets covered every roof. Tents sagged beneath the weight. Ropes were strung from hall to hall to help men keep from getting lost as they crossed the yards. Sentries crowded into the guard turrets to warm half-frozen hands over glowing braziers, leaving the wall walks to the snowy sentinels the squires had thrown up, who grew larger and stranger every night as wind and weather worked their will upon them. Ragged beards of ice grew down the spears, clasped in their snowy fists. No less a man than Hostin Frey, who had been heard growling that he did not fear a little snow, lost an ear to frostbite. The horses in the yard suffered most. The blankets thrown over them to keep them warm soaked through and froze if not changed regularly. When fires were lit to keep the cold at bay, they did more harm than good. The war horses feared the flames and fought to get away, injuring themselves and other horses as they twisted at their lines. Only the horses in the stables were safe and warm, but the stables were already overcrowded. "'The gods have turned against us,' old Lord Locke was heard to say in the great hall. "'This is their road. A wind as cold as hell itself, and snows that never end. We are cursed.' "'Stannis is cursed,' a dreadfort man insisted. "'He is one out there in the storm.' "'Lord Stannis might be warmer than we know,' one foolish free-rider argued. "'His sorceress can summon fire.' "'Might be, 
A red god can melt these snows. That was unwise. Theon knew at once. The man spoke too loudly, and in the hearing of Yellow Dick and Sir Allen and Ben Bones. When the tale reached Lord Ramsay, he sent his bastard's boys to seize the man and drag him out into the snow. As you seem so fond of Stannis, we will send you to him, he said. Damon danced for me, gave the free rider a few lashes with his long greased whip. Then, while Skinner and Yellow Dick made wagers on how fast his blood would freeze, Ramsay had the man dragged up to the battleman's gate. Winterfell's great main gates were closed and barred, and so choked with ice and snow that the portcullis would need to be chipped free before it could be raised. Much the same was true of the hunter's gate, though there at least ice was not a problem, since the gate had seen recent use. The King's Road gate had not, and ice had frozen those drawbridge chains rock-hard, which left the battleman's gate, a small arched postern in the inner wall, only half a gate in truth. It had a drawbridge that spanned the frozen moat, but no corresponding gateway through the outer wall, offering access to the outer ramparts, but not the world beyond. The bleeding free-rider was carried across the bridge and up the steps, still protesting. Then Skinner and Sir Allen seized his arms and legs and tossed him from the wall to the ground eighty feet below. The drifts had climbed so high that they swallowed the man bodily, but bowmen on the battlements claimed they glimpsed him some time later, dragging a broken leg through the snow. One feathered his rump with an arrow as he wriggled away. He will be dead within the hour, Lord Ramsay promised. Or he'll be sucking Lord Stannis's cock before the sun goes down, Horsebane Umber threw back. He'd best take care it don't break off, laughed Rickard Risewell. Any man out there in this, his cock is frozen hard. Lord Stannis is lost in the storm, said Lady Dustin. He's leagues away, dead or dying. Let winter do its worst. A few more days and the snows will bury him and his army both. And us as well, thought Theon, marvelling at her folly. Lady Barbary was of the north, and should have known better. The old guards might be listening. Supper was peas, porridge, and yesterday's bread, and that caused muttering amongst the common men as well. Above the salt the lords and knights were seen to be eating ham. Theon was bent over a wooden bowl, finishing the last of his own portion of peas, porridge, when a light touch on his shoulder made him drop his spoon. "'Never touch me,' he said. "'twisting down to snatch the fallen utensil off the floor "'before one of Ramsay's girls could get hold of it. "'Never touch me!' "'She sat down next to him, too close, "'another of Abel's washerwomen. "'This one was young, fifteen or maybe sixteen, "'with shaggy blonde hair in need of a good wash "'and a pair of pouty lips in need of a good kiss. "'Some girls like to touch,' she said, with a little half-smile. If it please, my lord, I'm Holly. Holly, the whore, he thought. But she was pretty enough. Once he might have laughed and pulled her into his lap. But that day was done. 
What do you want? To see the crypts. Where are they, my lord? Would you show me? Holler toyed with a strand of her hair, coiling it round her little finger. Deep and dark, they say. A good place for touching. All the dead kins watching. Did Abel send you to me? Might be. Might be I sent myself. But if it's Abel you're wanting, I could bring him. He'll sing, my lord, a sweet song. Every word she said persuaded Theon that this was all some ploy. But whose, and at what end? What could Abel want of him? The man was just a singer, a panda with a lute and a false smile. He wants to know how I took the castle, but not to make a song of it. The answer came to him. He wants to know how we got in, so he can get out. Lord Bolton had Winterfell sewn up tight as a babe's swaddling clothes. No one could come or go without his leave. He wants to flee him and his washerwoman. Theon could not blame him. But even so, he said, I want no part of Abel, or you, or any of your sisters. Just leave me be. Outside the snow was swirling, dancing. Theon groped his way to the wall, then followed it to the battleman's gate. He might have taken the guards for a pair of little Walder snowmen, if he had not seen the white plumes of their breath. I want to walk the walls, he told them, his own breath frosting in the air. Bloody cold up there, one warmed. Bloody cold down here, the other said. But you do as you like, turncloak. He waved Theon through the gate. The steps were snow-packed and slippery, treacherous in the dark. Once he reached the wall walk, it did not take him long to find the place where they'd thrown down the free rider. He knocked aside the wall of fresh-fallen snow filling up the crenel and leaned out between the merlons. I could jump, he thought. He lived. Why shouldn't I? He could jump and... And what? Break a leg and die beneath the snow? Creep away to freeze to death? It was madness. Ramsay would hunt him down with the girls. Red Jane and Jez and Hellicent would tear him to pieces, if the guards were good. Or worse, he might be taken back alive. I have to remember my name, he whispered. The next morning, Sir Anus Frey's grizzled squire was found naked and dead of exposure in the old castle lichyard, his face so obscured by hoarfrost that he appeared to be wearing a mask. Sir Anus put it forth that the man had drunk too much and gotten lost in the storm, though no one could explain why he had taken off his clothes to go outside. Another drunk it, Theon thought. Wine could drown a host of suspicions. Then, before the day was done, a crossbowman, sworn to the flints, turned up in the stables with a broken skull. Kicked by a horse, Lord Ramsay declared. A club, more like, Theon decided. It all seemed so familiar, like a mummer's show that he had seen before, only the mummers had changed. Roose Bolton was playing the part that Theon had played the last time round, and the dead men were playing the parts of Agar, Jenna Rednose, and Gelmar the Grim. Reek was there too, he remembered, but he was a different Reek, a Reek with bloody hands and lies dripping from his lips, sweet as honey. Reek, reek, it rhymes with sneak. 
the death set Roose Bolton's lords to quarrelling openly in the Great Hall. Some were running short of patience. How long must we sit here waiting for this king who never comes? Sir Huston Frey demanded. We should take the fight to Sanus and make an end to him. Leave the castle, croaked one arm Harwood Stout. His turn suggested he would sooner have his remaining arm hacked off. Would you have us charge blindly into the snow? To fight Lord Stannis, we would first need to find him, Roos Risewell pointed out. Our scouts go out the Hunter's Gate, but of late none of them return. Lord Wyman Mandley slapped his massive belly. White Harbour does not fear to ride with you, Sir Huston. Lead us out, and my knights will ride behind you. Sir Hustine turned on the fat man. Close enough to drive a lance through my back, aye. Where are my kin, Mandley? Tell me that. Your guests, who brought your son back to you? His bones, you mean. Mandley speared a chunk of ham with his dagger. I recall them well. Rigor of the round shoulders with his glib tongue. Balls Sir Jared, so swift to draw his steel. Simon, the spymaster, always clinking coins. They brought home Wendell's bones. It was Tywin Lannister who returned Willis to me, safe and whole, as he had promised. A man of his word, Lord Tywin. Seven save his soul. Lord Wyman popped the meat into his mouth, chewed it noisily, smacked his lips and said, The road has many dangers, sir. I gave your brother's guests gifts when we took our leave of White Harbour. We swore we would meet again at the wedding. Many and more bore witness to our parting. Oh, many and more, mocked Anus Frey. Or you and yours. What are you suggesting, Frey? The Lord of White Harbour wiped his mouth with his sleeve. I do not like your tone, sir. No, not one bloody bit. Step out into the yard, you sack of suet, and I'll serve you all the bloody bits that you can stomach, Sir Huston said. Wyman Manderley laughed, but half a dozen of his knights were on their feet at once. It fell to Roger Risewell and Barbary Dustin to calm them with quiet words. Roose Bolton said nothing at all, but Theon Greyjoy saw a look in his pale eyes that he had never seen before, an uneasiness, even a hint of fear. That night the new stable collapsed beneath the weight of the snow that had buried it. Twenty-six horses and two grooms died, crushed beneath the falling roof or smothered under the snows. It took the best part of the morning to dig out the bodies. Lord Bolton appeared briefly in the outer ward to inspect the scene, then ordered the remaining horses brought inside, along with the mounts still tethered in the outer ward. And no sooner had the men finished digging out the dead men and butchering the horses than another corpse was found. This one could not be waved away as some drunken tumble or the kick of a horse. The dead man was one of Ramsay's favourites, the squat, scrofulous, ill-favoured man-at-arms called Yellow Dick. Whether his dick had actually been yellow was hard to determine, as someone had sliced it off and stuffed it into his mouth, so forcefully they had broken three of his teeth. When the cooks found him outside the kitchens, buried up to his neck 
in a snowdrift. Both dick and man were blue from gold. Burn the body, Ruth Bolton ordered, and see that you do not speak of this, or not have this tale spread. The tale spread nonetheless. By midday most of Winterfell had heard, many from the lips of Ramsay Bolton, whose boy Yellow Dick had been. When we find the man who did this, Lord Ramsay promised, I will flay the skin off him, cook it crisp as crackling, and make him eat it every bite. Word went out that the killer's name would be worth a golden dragon. The reek within the great hall was palpable by eventide, with hundreds of horses, dogs, and men squeezed underneath one roof, the floor slimy with mud and melting snow, horse shit, dog turds, and even human feces, the air redolent with the smells of wet dog, wet wool, and sudden horse blankets. There was no comfort to be found amongst the crowded benches, but there was food. The cooks served up great slabs of fresh horse meat, charred outside and bloody red within, with roast onions and neeps, and for once the common soldiers ate as well as the lords and knights. The horse meat was too tough for the ruins of Theon's teeth. His attempts to chew gave him excruciating pain. So he mashed the neeps and onions together with the flat of his dagger and made a meal of that, then cut the horse up very small, sucked on each piece, and spat it out. That way, at least, he had the taste and some nourishment from the grease and blood. The bone was beyond him, though, so he tossed it to the dogs and watched Grey Jane make off with it while Sarah and Willow snapped at her heels. Lord Bolton commanded Abel to play for them as they ate. The bard sang Iron Lances, then The Winter Maid. When Barbary Dustin asked for something more cheerful, he gave them The Queen Took Off Her Sandal, The King Took Off His Crown, and The Bear and the Maiden Fair. The phrase joined the singing, and even a few Northmen slammed their fists on the table to the chorus bellowing, A bear! A bear! But the noise frightened the horses, so the singers soon let off, and the music died away. The bastards' boys gathered beneath a wall sconce, where a torch was flaming smokily. Luton and Skinner were throwing dice. Grunt had a woman in his lap, a breast in his hand. Damon danced for me, sat greasing up his whip. Reek, he called. He tapped the whip against his scarf, as a man might do to summon his dog. You're starting to stink again, Reek. Theon had no reply for that beyond a soft, yes. Lord Ramsay means to cut your lips off when all this is done, said Damon, stroking his whip with a greasy rag. My lips have been between his lady's legs. That insolence cannot go unpunished. As you say, Luton guffawed. <laughs> I think he wants it. Go away, Reek, Skinner said. The smell of you turns my stomach. The others laughed. He fled quickly before they changed their minds. His tormentors would not follow him outside. Not so long as there was food and drink within, willing women and warm fires. As he left the hall, Abel was singing, The Maids That Bloom in Spring. Outside, the snow was coming down so heavily that Theon could not see more than three feet ahead of him. 
He found himself alone in a white wilderness, walls of snow looming up to either side of him, chest high. When he raised his head, the snowflakes brushed his cheeks like cold, soft kisses. He could hear the sound of music from the hall behind him, a soft song now, and sad. For a moment, he felt almost at peace. Further on, he came upon a man striding in the opposite direction, a hooded cloak flapping behind him. When they found themselves face to face, their eyes met briefly. The man put a hand on his dagger. Theon turn, cloak. Theon Kinsley. I'm not. I never. I was on board. False is all you were. How is it you still breathe? The guards are not done with me, Theon answered, wondering if this could be the killer, the night walker who had stuffed Yellow Dick's cock into his mouth and pushed Roger Risewell's groom off the battlements. Oddly, he was not afraid. He pulled the glove from his left hand. Lord Ramsay is not done with me. The man looked and laughed. I leave you to him, then. Theon trudged through the storm until his arms and legs were caked with snow and his hands and feet had gone numb from cold, then climbed to the battlements of the inner wall again. Up here, a hundred feet high, a little wind was blowing, stirring the snow. All the crenels had filled up. Theon had to punch through a wall of snow to make a hole, only to find that he could not see beyond the moat. Of the outer wall, nothing remained but a vague shadow and a few dim lights floating in the dark. The world is gone. King's Landing, River Run, Pike, and the Arn Islands, all the seven kingdoms, every place that he had ever known, every place that he had ever read about or dreamed of, all gone. Only Winterfell remained. He was trapped here with the ghosts, the old ghosts from the crypts, and the younger ones that he had made himself, Micken and Farlan, Gina Rednose, Edgar, Gelmar the Grim, the miller's wife from Acorn Water, and her two young sons, and all the rest. My work, my ghosts, they're all here, and they are angry. He thought of the crypts and those missing swords. Theon returned to his own chambers. He was stripping off his wet clothes, when still Shanks Walton found him. Come with me, turncloak. His lordship wants words with you. He had no clean, dry clothes, so he wriggled back into the same damp rags and followed. Steel Shanks led him back to the great keep and the solar that had once been Eddard Stark's. Lord Bolton was not alone. Lady Dustin sat with him, pale-faced and severe, an iron horse-head brooch clasped Roger Risewell's cloak. Anus Frey stood near the fire, pinched cheeks flushed with cold. "'I'm told you have been wandering the castle,' Lord Bolton began. "'Men have reported seeing you in the stables, in the kitchens, in the barracks, on the battlements. You have been observed near the ruins of collapsed keeps, outside Lady Caitlin's old sept.' "'coming and going from the guard's wood. "'Do you deny it?' "'No, my lord.' "'Theon made sure to muddy up the word. "'He knew that pleased Lord Bolton. 
I cannot sleep, my lord, I walk. He kept his head down, fixed upon the old stale rushes scattered on the floor. It was not wise to look his lordship in the face. I was a boy here before the war, a ward of Eddard Stark. You were a hostage, Bolton said. Yes, my lord, a hostage. It was my home, no? Not a true home, but the best I ever knew. Someone has been killing my men. Yes, my lord. Not you, I trust. Bolton's voice grew even softer. You would not repay all my kindnesses with such treachery? No, my lord, not me. Or wouldn't I? Only walk is all. Lady Dustin spoke up. Take off your gloves. Theon glanced up sharply. Oh, please, no, I... I... Do as she says, Sir Anus said. Show us your hands. Theon peeled his gloves off and held his hands up for them to see. It is not as if I stood before them naked. It is not so bad as that. His left hand had three fingers, his right four. Ramsay had taken only the pinky off the one, the ring finger and four fingers from the other. The bastard did this to your... Lady Dustin said, "'If it please, my lady, I, um, I asked it of him. Ramsay always made him ask. Ramsay always makes me beg. "'Why would you do that? I, I did not need so many fingers.' Four is enough,' Sir Anus Frey fingered the wispy brown beard that sprouted from his weak chin like a rat's tail. Four in his right hand. He could still hold a sword.' A dagger? Lady Dustin laughed. Are all Freys such fools? Look at him. Hold a dagger? He hardly has the strength to hold a spoon. Do you truly think he could have overcome the bastard's disgusting creature and shoved his manhood down his throat? These dead were all strong men, said Roger Riswell, and none of them were stabbed. The turncloak's not our killer. Bruce Bolton's pale eyes were fixed on Theon, as sharp as Skinner's flaying knife. I am inclined to agree. Strength aside, he does not have it in him to betray my son. Roger Risewell grunted. If not him, who? Stannis has some man inside the castle? That's plain. Reek is no man, not Reek, not me. He wondered if Lady Dustin had told them about the crypts, the missing swords. "'We must look at Manderley, muttered Sir Anus Frey. "'Lord Wyman loves us not.' Risewell was not convinced. "'He loves his steaks and chops and meat pies, though. "'Prowling the castle by dark would require him to leave the table. "'The only time he does that is when he seeks the privy for one of his hour-long squats.' I do not claim Lord Wyman does the deeds himself. He brought three hundred men with him, a hundred knights. Any of them might have. Night work is not knight's work, Lady Dustin said. And Lord Wyman is not the only man who lost kin at your red wedding, Frey. Do you imagine a horsebane loves you any better? If you did not hold the great John, he would pull out your entrails and make you eat them as Lady Hornwood ate her fingers. Flint, Serwins, Tallhearts, Sleets, they all had men with a young wolf, 
House Risewell, too, said Roger Risewell. Even Dustin's out of Barrowton. Lady Dustin parted her lips in a thin, feral smile. The North remembers, pray. Anus Frey's mouth quivered with outrage. Stark dishonoured us. That is what your Northman had best remember. Bruce Bolton rubbed at his chapped lips. This squabbling will not serve. He flicked his fingers at Theon. You are free to go. Take care where you wander, else it might be you we find upon the morrow, smiling a red smile. As you say, my lord. Theon drew his gloves on over his maimed hands and took his leave, limping on his maimed foot. The hour of the wolf found him still awake, wrapped in layers of heavy wool and greasy fur, walking yet another circuit of the inner walls, hoping to exhaust himself enough to sleep. His legs were caked with snow to the knee, his head and shoulders shrouded in white. On this stretch of the wall the wind was in his face, and melting snow ran down his cheeks like icy tears. Then he heard the horn. A long, low moan. It seemed to hang above the battlements, lingering in the black air, soaking deep into the bones of every man who heard it. All along the castle walls, sentries turned toward the sound, their hands tightening around the shafts of their spears. In the ruined halls and keeps of Winterfell, lords hushed other lords, horses nickered, and sleepers stirred in their dark corners. No sooner had the sound of the war horn died away than a drum began to beat. Boom doom, boom doom, boom doom. And a name passed from the lips of each man to the next, written in small white puffs of breath. Stannis, they whispered. Stannis is here. Stannis is come. Stannis, Stannis, Stannis. Theon shivered. Baratheon or Bolton, it made no matter to him. Stannis had made common cause with Jon Snow at the wall, and Jon would take his head off in a heartbeat. Plucked from the clutches of one bastard to die at the hands of another. What a jape! Theon would have laughed aloud if he'd remembered how. The drumming seemed to be coming from the wolf's wood beyond the hunter's gate. They are just outside the walls. Theon made his way along the wall walk, one more man amongst the score doing the same. But even when they reached the towers that flanked the gate itself, there was nothing to be seen beyond the veil of white. They mean to try and blow our walls down, japed a flint when the war horn sounded once again. Mayhaps he thinks he's found the horn of Jeremon. Is Stannis fool enough to storm the castle? a sentry asked. He's not Robert, declared a baritone man. He'll sit. See if he don't. Try and starve us out. He'll freeze his balls off first, another sentry said. We should take the fight to him, declared a fray. Do that, Theon thought. Ride out into the snow and die. Leave Winterfell to me and the ghosts. Bruce Bolton would welcome such a fight, he sensed. He needs an end to this. The castle was too crowded to withstand a long siege, and too many of the lords here 
were of uncertain loyalty. Fat Wyman Manderley, Horsman Umber, the men of House Hornwood and House Tallhart, the Locks and Flints and Risewells, all of them were Northmen, sworn to House Stark for generations beyond count. It was the girl who held them here. Lord Eddard's blood, but the girl was just a mummer's ploy, a lamb in a direwolf's skin. So why not send the Northmen forth to battle Stannis before the farce unravelled? Slaughter in the snow, and every man who falls is one less foe for the dreadfort. Theon wondered if he might be allowed to fight. Then at least he might die a man's death, sword in hand. That was a gift Ramsay would never give him. But Lord Roos might. If I beg him, I, I, I did all he asked of me. I played my part. I gave the girl away. Death was the sweetest deliverance he could hope for. In the guardswood the snow was still dissolving as it touched the earth. Steam rose off the hot pools, fragrant with the smell of moss and mud and decay. A warm fog hung in the air, turning the trees into sentinels, tall soldiers shrouded in cloaks of gloom. During daylight hours, the steamy wood was often full of Northmen, come to pray to the old gods. But at this hour, Theon Greyjoy found he had it all to himself. And in the heart of the wood, the weirwood waited, with its knowing red eyes. Theon stopped by the edge of the pool and bowed his head before its carved red face. Even here, he could hear the drumming. Boom doom, boom doom, boom doom, boom doom. Like distant thunder, the sound seemed to come from everywhere at once. The night was windless the snow drifting straight down out of a cold black sky, yet the leaves of the heart tree were rustling his name. Theon, they seemed to whisper, Theon. The old gods, he thought, they know me. They know my name. I was Theon of House Greyjoy. I was a ward of Eddard Stark, a friend and brother to his children. Please, he fell to his knees, a sword, that's all I ask. Let me die as Theon, not as Reek. Tears trickled down his cheeks, impossibly warm. I was ironborn, a son, a son of Pike, of the islands. A leaf drifted down from above, brushed his brow, and landed in the pool. It floated on the water, red, five-fingered, like a bloody hand. Bran! the tree murmured. They know. The gods know. They saw what I did. And for one strange moment, it seemed as if it were Bran's face carved into the pale trunk of the weirwood, staring down at him with eyes red and wise and sad. Bran's ghost, he thought. But that was madness. Why should Bran want to haunt him? He had been fond of the boy, had never done him any harm. It was not Bran we killed, it was not Rickon. They were only Miller's sons, from the mill by the acorn water. I had to have two heads, else they would have mocked me, laughed at me. They... A voice said, Who are you talking to? Theon spun, terrified that Ramsay had found him. 
but it was just the washerwomen, Holly, Rowan, and one whose name he did not know. The ghosts, he blurted. They whispered to me. They, they know my name. Theon Turncloak. Rowan grabbed his ear, twisting. You had to have two heads, did you? Elsewise, men would have laughed at him, said Holly. They do not understand. Theon wrenched free. What do you want? he asked. You, said the third washerwoman, an older woman, deep-voiced, with grey streaks in her hair. I told you, I want to touch you, turn cloak. Holly smiled. In her hand a blade appeared. I could scream, Theon thought. Someone will hear. The castle is full of armed men. He would be dead before help reached him, to be sure, his blood soaking into the ground to feed the heart tree. And what would be so wrong with that? Touch me, he said. Kill me. There was more despair than defiance in his voice. Go on, do me, the way you did the others. Yellow dick and the rest. It was you. Holly laughed. How could it be us? We're women, teats and cunnies, here to be fucked, not feared. Did the bastard hurt you? Rowan asked. Chopped off your fingers, did he? Skinned your whittle toes. Knocked your teeth out, poor lad. She patted his cheek. There will be no more of that, I promise. You prayed, and the gods sent us. You want to die as Theon? We'll give you that. A nice, quick death. Twill hardly hurt at all. She smiled. But not till you've sung for Abel. He's waiting for you. Tyrion Lot 97 The auctioneer snapped his whip. A pair of dwarfs, well trained for your amusement. The auction block had been thrown up where the broad brown Skahazidan floated into Slaver's Bay. Tyrion Lannister could smell the salt in the air, mingled with a stink from the latrine ditches behind the slave pens. He did not mind the heat so much as he did the damp. The very air seemed to weigh him down, like a warm, wet blanket across his head and shoulders. Dog and pig included in lot, the auctioneer announced. The dwarfs ride them. Delight the guests at your next feast, or use them for a folly. The bidders sat on wooden benches, sipping fruit drinks. A few were being fanned by slaves. Many wore tokars, that peculiar garment beloved by the old blood of Slaver's Bay, as elegant as it was impractical. Others dressed more plainly, men in tunics and hooded cloaks, women in coloured silks. Whores or priestesses, most like. This far east, it was hard to tell the two apart. Back behind the benches, trading japes and making mock of the proceedings, stood a clot of westerners. Sell swords, Tyrion knew. He spied long swords, dirks, and daggers, a brace of throwing axes, mail beneath their cloaks. Their hair and beards and faces marked most for men of the free cities, but here and there were a few who might have been Westerosi. Are they buying, or did they just turn up for the show? 
Who will open for this pair? Three hundred, bid a matron on an antique palanquin. Four, called a monstrously fat youngishman from the litter where he sprawled like a leviathan. Covered all in yellow silk, fringed with gold, he looked as large as four Illyrios. Tyrion pitied the slaves who had to carry him. At least we will be spared that duty. What joy to be a dwarf! And one, said a crone in a violet tokar. The auctioneer gave her a sour look, but did not disallow the bid. The slave sailors of the Salasori Koran, sold singly, had gone for prices ranging from five hundred to nine hundred pieces of silver. Seasoned seamen were a valuable commodity. None had put up any sort of fight when the slavers boarded their crippled cog. For them this was just a change of owner. The ship's mates had been free men, but the widow of the waterfront had written them a binder, promising to stand their ransom in such a case as this. The three surviving fiery fingers had not been sold yet, but they were chattels of the Lord of Light and could count on being bought back by some red temple. The flames tattooed upon their faces were their binders. Tyrion and Penny had no such reassurance. Four fifty came the bid. Four eighty! Five hundred! Some bids were called out in High Valerian, some in the mongrel tongue of Gis. A few buyers signalled with a finger, the twist of a wrist, or the wave of a painted fan. I'm glad they're keeping us together, Penny whispered. The slave trader shot them a look. No talk! Tyrion gave Penny's shoulder a squeeze. Strands of hair, pale blonde and black, clung to his brow, the rags of his tunic to his back. Some of that was sweat, some dried blood. He had not been so foolish to fight the slavers as Jorah Mormont had. But that did not mean he had escaped punishment. In his case, it was his mouth that earned him lashes. Eight hundred and fifty and one were worth as much as a sailor, Tyrion mused, though perhaps it was pretty pig the buyers wanted. A well-trained pig is hard to find. They certainly were not bidding by the pound. At nine hundred pieces of silver, the bidding began to slow. At nine hundred fifty-one from the crone, it stopped. The auctioneer had the scent, though, and nothing would do but that the dwarfs give the crowd a taste of their show. Crunch and Pretty Pig were led up onto the platform. Without saddles or bridles, mounting them proved tricky. The moment the sow began to move, Tyrion slid off her rump and landed on his own provoking gales of laughter from the bidders. One thousand, bid the grotesque fat man. And one, the crone again. Penny's mouth was frozen in a rictus of a smile. Well trained for your amusement? Her father had a deal to answer for in whatever small hell was reserved for dwarfs. Twelve hundred, the leviathan in yellow. A slave beside him handed him a drink. Lemon, no doubt. The way those yellow eyes were fixed upon the block made Tyrion uncomfortable. Thirteen hundred. And one. The crone. 
My father always said a Lannister was worth ten times as much as any common man. At 1600, the pace began to flag again, so the slave trader invited some of the buyers to come up for a closer look at the dwarfs. The female's young, he promised. You could breed the two of them, get good coin for the whelps. Half his nose is gone, complained the crone, once she had had a good close look. Her wrinkled face puckered with displeasure. Her flesh was maggot white. Wrapped in the violet tokar, she looked like a prune gone to mould. His eyes don't match neither, and your favoured thing. My lady hasn't seen my best part yet. Tyrion grabbed his crotch, in case she missed his meaning. The hag hissed in outrage, and Tyrion got a lick of the whip across his back, a stinging cut that drove him to his knees. The taste of blood filled his mouth. He grinned and spat. Two thousand, called a new voice, back of the benches. And what would a sellsword want with a dwarf? Tyrion pushed himself back to his feet to get a better look. The new bidder was an older man, white-haired yet tall and fit, with leathery brown skin and a close-cropped salt-and-pepper beard. Half-hidden under a faded purple cloak were a long sword and a brace of daggers. Twenty-five hundred! A female voice this time, a girl, short, with a thick waist and heavy bosom, clad in ornate armour. Her sculptured black steel breastplate was inlaid in gold, and showed a harpy rising with chains dangling from her claws. A pair of slave soldiers lifted her to shoulder height on a shield. Three thousand! The brown-skinned man pushed through the crowd, his fellow sellswords shoving buyers aside to clear a path. Yes, come closer. Tyrion knew how to deal with sellswords. He did not think for a moment that this man wanted him to frolic at feasts. He knows me. He means to take me back to Westeros and sell me to my sister. The dwarf rubbed his mouth to hide his smile. Cersei and the Seven Kingdoms were half a world away. Much and more could happen before he got there. I turn Bronn. Give me half a chance. Might be I could turn this one too. The crone and the girl on the shield gave up the chase at three thousand, but not the fat man in yellow. He weighed the cell swords with his yellow eyes, flicked his tongue across his yellow teeth, and said, Five thousand silvers for the lot. The cell sword frowned, shrugged, turned away. Seven hills. Tyrion was quite certain that he did not want to become the property of the immense Lord Yellowbelly. Just the sight of him, sagging across his litter, a mountain of sallow flesh, with piggy yellow eyes and breasts big as pretty pig, pushing at the silk of his tokar, was enough to make the dwarf skin crawl. And the smell wafting off him was palpable even on the block. If there are no further bids, seven thousand, shouted Tyrion. Laughter rippled across the benches. The dwarf wants to buy himself, the girl on the shield observed. Tyrion gave her a lascivious grin. A clever slave deserves a clever master, and you lot all look like fools. 
that provoked more laughter from the bidders and a scowl from the auctioneer, who was fingering his whip indecisively as he tried to puzzle out whether this would work to his benefit. Five thousand is an insult,' Tyrion called out. "'I joust, I sing, I say amusing things. I'll fuck your wife and make her scream. Or your enemy's wife, if you prefer. What better way to shame him?' Huh? I murder with a crossbow, and men three times my size quail and tremble when we meet across a Sivas table. I have even been known to cook from time to time. I bid ten thousand silvers for myself. I am good for it. I am. I am. My father told me I was always pay my debts. The sellsword in the purple cloak turned back. His eyes met Tyrion's across the rows of other bidders, and he smiled. A warm smile, that, the dwarf reflected, friendly, but my, those eyes are cold. Might be, I don't want him to buy us after all. The yellow enormity was squirming in his litter, a look of annoyance on his huge pie face. He muttered something sour in Gascari that Tyrion did not understand but the tone of it was plain enough. Was that another bid? The dwarf cocked his head. I offer all the gold of Casterly Rock. He heard the whip before he felt it, a whistle in the air, thin and sharp. Tyrion grunted under the blow, but this time he managed to stay on his feet. His thoughts flashed back to the beginnings of his journey, when his most pressing problem had been deciding which wine to drink with his mid-morning snails. See what comes of chasing dragons? A laugh burst from his lips, spattering the first row of buyers with blood and spit. You are sold, the auctioneer announced. Then he hit him again, just because he could. This time Tyrion went down. One of the guards yanked him back to his feet. Another prodded Penny down off the platform with the butt of his spear. The next piece of chattel was already being led up to take their place. A girl, fifteen or sixteen. Not of the Selasauric Horan this time. Tyrion did not know her. The same age as Daenerys Targaryen. Or near enough. The slaver soon had her naked. At least we were spared that humiliation. Tyrion gazed across the Yunkish camp to the walls of Myrin. Those gates looked so close. And if the talk in the slave pens could be believed, Myrin remained a free city for the nonce. Within those crumbling walls, slavery and the slave trade were still forbidden. All he had to do was reach those gates and pass beyond, and he would be a free man again. But that was hardly possible unless he abandoned Penny. She'd want to take the dog and the pig along. It won't be so terrible, will it? Penny whispered. He paid so much for us. He'll be kind, won't he? <laughs> so long as we amuse him. We are too valuable to mistreat, he reassured her, with blood still trickling down his back from those last two lashes. When our show grows stale, however... And it does, it does grow stale. 
their master's overseer was waiting to take charge of them, with a mule cart and two soldiers. He had a long narrow face and a chin beard bound about with golden wire, and his stiff red-black hair swept out from his temples to form a pair of taloned hands. "'What darling little creatures you are,' he said. "'You remind me of my own children, or would if my little ones were not dead. I shall take good care of you. Tell me your names.' "'Penny,' her voice was a whisper, small and scared. "'Tyrion of House Lannister, rightful lord of Castle Rock, you snivelling worm. "'Yellow! Bold yellow, bright penny! <laughs> "'You are the property of the noble and various Yesenzo Kagas, "'scholar and warrior, revered amongst the wise masters of Yunkai. "'Count yourselves fortunate, for Yesen is a kindly and benevolent master.' Think of him as you would your father. Gladly, thought Tyrion, but this time he held his tongue. They would have to perform for their new master soon enough. He did not doubt, and he could not take another lash. Your father loves his special treasures best of all, and he will cherish you, the overseer was saying. And me, think of me as you would the nurse, who cared for you when you were small. Nurse is what all my children call me. Lot 99, the auctioneer called. A warrior. The girl had sold quickly and was being bundled off to her new owner, clutching her clothing to small pink-tipped breasts. Two slavers dragged Jorah Mormont onto the block to take her place. The knight was naked, but for a breech clout his back raw from the whip, his face so swollen as to be almost unrecognizable. Chains bound his wrists and ankles. A little taste of the meal he cooked for me, Tyrion thought. Yet he found that he could take no pleasure from the big knight's miseries. Even in chains, Mormont looked dangerous, a hulking brute with big thick arms and sloped shoulders. All that coarse dark hair on his chest made him look more beast than man. Both his eyes were blackened, two dark pits in that grotesquely swollen face. Upon one cheek he bore a brand, a demon's mask. When the slavers had swarmed aboard the Salisori Koran, Sir Jorah had met them with longsword in hand, slaying three before they overwhelmed him. Their shipmates would gladly have killed him, but the captain forbade it. A fighter was always worth good silver, so Mormont had been chained to an oar, beaten within an inch of his life, starved and branded. "'Big and strong, this one,' the auctioneer declared. "'Plenty of piss in him. He'll give a good show in the fighting pits. Who will start me out at three hundred? "'No one would.' Mormon paid no mind to the mongrel crowd. His eyes were fixed beyond the siege lines on the distant city with its ancient walls of many-coloured brick. Tyrion could read that look as easy as a book. So near and yet so distant, the poor wretch had returned too late. Daenerys Targaryen was wed, the guards on the pens had told them, laughing. 
she had taken a Maronese slaver as her king, as wealthy as he was noble, and when the peace was signed and sealed, the fighting pits of Merian would open once again. Other slaves insisted that the guards were lying, that Daenerys Targaryen would never make peace with slavers. Mysa, they called her. Someone told him that meant mother. Soon the Silver Queen would come forth from her city, smash the Yunkai, and break our chains, they whispered to one another. And then she'll bake us all a lemon pie and kiss our whittled wounds and make them better, the dwarf thought. He had no faith in royal rescues. If need be, he would see to their deliverance himself. The mushrooms jammed into the toe of his boot could be sufficient for both him and Benny. Crunch and Pretty Pig would need to fend for themselves. A nurse was still lecturing his master's new prizes. Do all you are told, and nothing more, and you shall live like little lords, pampered and adored, he promised. Disobey? But you would never do that, would you? <laughs> Not my sweetlings. He reached down and pinched Penny on her cheek. Two hundred, then, the auctioneer said. A big brute like this is worth three times as much. What a bodyguard he will make. No enemy would dare molest you. Come, my little friends, Nurse said. I will show you to your new home. In Yonkai, you will dwell in the Golden Pyramid of Kagas and dine off silver plates. But here we live simply in the humble tents of soldiers. Who will give me one hundred? cried the auctioneer. That drew a bid at last though it was only fifty silvers. The bidder was a thin man in a leather apron. "'And one!' said the crone in the violet tokar. One of the soldiers lifted Penny onto the back of the mule cart. "'Who is this old woman?' the dwarf asked him. "'Zerina,' the man said. "'Cheap fighters, hers. Meat for the heroes. Your friend dead soon.' "'He was no friend to me.' The Attyrian Lannister found himself turning to Nurse and saying, You cannot let her have him. Nurse squinted at him. What is this noise you make? Tyrion pointed. That one is part of our show. The bear and the maiden fair. Jorah is the bear. Penny is the maiden. I am the brave knight who rescues her. I dance about and hit him in the balls. Very funny. The overseer squinted at the auction block. Him! The bidding for Jorah Mormont had reached two hundred silvers. And one, said the crone in the violet tokar. Your bear, I see. Nurse went scuttling off through the crowd, bent over the huge yellow yunkishman in his litter, whispered in his ear. His master nodded, chins wobbling, then raised his fan. Three hundred, he called out in a wheezy voice. The crone sniffed and turned away. Why did you do that? Penny asked in the common tongue. A fair question, thought Tyrion. Why did I? Your show is growing dull. Every mama needs a dancing bear. She gave him a reproachful look, then retreated to the back of the cart and sat with her arms around Crunch 
as if the dog was her last true friend in the world. Perhaps he is. Nurse returned with Jorah Mormont. Two of their master's slave soldiers flung him into the back of the mule cart between the dwarfs. The knight did not struggle. All the fate went out of him when he heard that his queen had wed, Tyrion realized. One whispered word had done what fists and whips and clubs could not. It had broken him. I should have let the crone have him. He's going to be as useful as nipples on a breastplate. Nurse climbed onto the front of the mule cart and took up the reins, and they set off through the siege camp to the compound of their new master, the noble Yezan Zokagas. Four slave soldiers marched beside them, two on either side of the cart. Penny did not weep, but her eyes were red and miserable, and she never lifted them from crunch. Does she think all this might fade away if she does not look at it? Sir Jorah Mormont looked at no one and nothing. He sat huddled, brooding in his chains. Tyrion looked at everything and everyone. The Yunkish encampment was not one camp, but a hundred camps raised up cheek by jowl in a crescent around the walls of Murrine, a city of silk and canvas with its own avenues and alleys, taverns and trollops, good districts and bad. Between the siege lines and the bay, tents had sprouted up like yellow mushrooms. Some were small and mean, no more than a flap of old, stained canvas to keep off the rain and sun, but beside them stood barracks tents, large enough to sleep a hundred men, and silken pavilions as big as palaces with harpies gleaming atop their roof poles. Some camps were orderly, with the tents arrayed around a fire pit in concentric circles, weapons and armor stacked around the inner ring, horse lines outside. Elsewhere, pure chaos seemed to reign. The dry scorched plains around Mirin were flat and bare and treeless for long leagues, but the Yunkish ships had brought lumber and hides up from the south, enough to raise six huge trebuchets. They were arrayed on three sides of the city, all but the riverside, surrounded by piles of broken stone and casks of pitch and resin, just waiting for a torch. One of the soldiers walking along beside the cart saw where Tyrion was looking, and proudly told him that each of the trebuchets had been given a name, Dragonbreaker, Harridan, Harpy's Daughter, Wicked Sister, Ghost of Astapor, Mazdan's Fist. Towering above the tents to a height of forty feet, the trebuchets were the siege camp's chief landmarks. Just the sight of them drove the Dragon Queen to her knees, he boasted, and there she will stay, sucking his dar's noble cock, else we smash her walls to rubble. Tyrion saw a slave being whipped, blow after blow, until his back was nothing but blood and raw meat. A file of men marched past in irons, clanking with every step. They carried spears and wore short swords, but chains linked them wrist to wrist and ankle to ankle. The air smelled of roasting meat, and he saw one man skinning a dog for his stew-pot. He saw the dead as well, and heard the dying. 
Under the drifting smoke, the smell of horses, and the sharp salt tang of the bay, was a stink of blood and shit. Some flux, he realized, as he watched two swords carry the corpse of a third from one of the tents. That made his fingers twitch. Disease could wipe out an army quicker than any battle, he had heard his father say once. All the more reason to escape. And soon. A quarter mile on, he found good reason to reconsider. A crowd had formed around three slaves, taken whilst trying to escape. I know my little treasures will be sweet and obedient, he said. See what befalls ones who try to run. The captives had been tied to a row of crossbeams, and a pair of slingers were using them to test their skills. Colossi, one of the guards told them, the best slingers in the world. They throw soft lead balls in place of stones. Tyrion had never seen the point of slings when bows had so much better range, but he had never seen Tolossi at work before. Their lead balls did vastly more damage than the smooth stones other slingers used, and more than any bow as well. One struck the knee of one of the captives, and it burst apart in a gout of blood and bone that left the man's lower leg dangling by a rope of dark red tendon. "'Well, he won't run again,' Tyrion allowed, as the man began to scream. His shrieks mingled in the morning air with the laughter of camp followers and the curses of those who'd wagered good coin that the slinger would miss. Penny looked away, but Nurse grasped her under the chin and twisted her head back around. "'Watch,' he commanded. "'You too, Bear.' Jorah Mormont raised his head and stared at Nurse. Tyrion could see the tightness in his arms. He's going to throttle him, and that will be the end for all of us. But the knight only grimaced, then turned to watch the bloody show. To the east, the massive brick walls of Mirin shimmered through the morning heat. That was the refuge these poor fools had hoped to reach. How long will it remain a refuge, though? All three of the would-be escapees were dead before Nurse gathered up the reins again. The mule cart rumbled on. Their master's camp was south and east of the Harridan, almost in its shadow, and spread over several acres. The humble tent of Yezan Zokagas proved to be a palace of lemon-coloured silk. Gilded harpies stood atop the centre poles of each of its nine peaked roofs, shining in the sun. Lesser tents ringed it on all sides. Those are the dwellings of our noble masters, cooks, concubines, and warriors, and a few less favoured kinsmen, Nurse told them. But you little darlings shall have the rare privilege of sleeping within Yezan's own pavilion. It pleases him to keep his treasures close. He frowned at Mormont. Oh, not you, bear. You are big and ugly. You will be chained outside. The knight did not respond. First, all of you must be fitted for collars. The collars were made of iron, lightly gilded to make them glitter in the light. Yezan's name was incised into the metal in Valerian glyphs, 
and a pair of tiny bells was affixed below the ears, so the wearer's every step produced a merry little tinkling sound. Joramormont accepted his collar in a sullen silence, but Penny began to cry as the armourer was fastening her own into place. It's so heavy, she complained. Tyrion squeezed her hand. It's solid gold, he lied. In Westeros, high-born ladies, dream of such a necklace. Better a colour than a brand. A colour can be removed. He remembered Shay, and the way the golden chain had glimmered as he twisted it tighter and tighter about her throat. Afterward, Nurse had Sir Jorah's chains fastened to a stake near the cookfire, whilst he escorted the two dwarfs inside the master's pavilion and showed them where they would sleep, in a carpeted alcove separated from the main tent by walls of yellow silk. They would share this space with Yesan's other treasures, a boy with twisted, hairy goat legs, a two-headed girl out of Mantaris, a bearded woman, and a willowy creature called Sweets, who dressed in moonstones and mirish lace. "'You are trying to decide if I'm a man or woman,' Sweets said, when she was brought before the dwarfs. Then she lifted her skirts and showed them what was underneath. "'I'm both, and Master loves me best.' "'Oh, a grotesquerie,' Tyrion realised. Somewhere, some god is laughing. Lovely, he said to Sweets, who had purple hair and violet eyes. But we were hoping to be the pretty ones for once. Sweets sniggered, but Nurse was not amused. Save your japes for this evening, when you perform for our noble master. If you please him, you will be well rewarded. If not, he slapped Tyrion across the face. "'You will want to be careful with Nurse,' said Sweets, when the overseer had departed. "'He is the only true monster here.' The bearded woman spoke an incomprehensible variety of Gascari. The goat boy, some guttural sailor's pigeon, called the trade talk. The two-headed girl was feeble-minded. One head was no bigger than an orange and did not speak at all. The other had file teeth, and was like to growl at anyone who came too close to her cage. But Sweets was fluent in four tongues, one of them High Valerian. "'What is a master like?' Penny asked anxiously. "'His eyes are yellow, and he stinks,' said Sweets. Ten years ago he went to Sothoris, and he has been rotting from the inside out ever since.' Make him forget that he is dying, even for a little while, and he can be most generous. Deny him nothing. They had only the afternoon to learn the ways of chattel. Yesin's body slaves filled up a tub with hot water, and the dwarfs were allowed to bathe, Penny first, then Tyrion. Afterward, another slave spread a stinging ointment across the cuts on his back to keep them from mortifying then covered them with a cool poultice. Penny's hair was cut, and Tyrion's beard got a trim. They were given soft slippers and fresh clothing, plain but clean. As evening fell, 
Nurse returned to tell them it was time to don their mummer's plate. The SN would be hosting the Yunkish Supreme Commander, the noble Yerkazo Yonsek, and they would be expected to perform. Shall we unchain your bear? Uh, not this night, Tyrion said. Let us joust for our master first, and save the bear for some other time. Just so. After your capers are concluded, you will help serve and pour. See that you do not spill on the guests, or it will go ill for you. A juggler began the evening's frolics. Then came a trio of energetic tumblers. After them, the goat-legged boy came out and did a grotesque jig, whilst one of Yerkaz's slaves played on a bone flute. Tyrion had half a mind to ask him if he knew the reins of Castamere. As they waited their own turn to perform, he watched Yezen and his guests. The human prune in the place of honour was evidently the Yunkish supreme commander, who looked about as formidable as a loose stool. A dozen other Yunkish lords attended him. Two sellsword captains were on hand as well, each accompanied by a dozen men of his company. One was an elegant Pentoshi, grey-haired and clad in silk, but for his cloak, a ragged thing, sewn from dozens of strips of torn, blood-stained cloth. The other captain was a man who tried to buy them that morning, the brown-skinned bidder, with a salt-and-pepper beard. Brown Ben Plum, Sweets named him, captain of the Second Sons. A Westerosi and a Plum, better and better. You are next, nurse informed them. Be amusing, my little darlings, or you will wish you had. Tyrion had not mastered half of Groat's old tricks, but he could ride the sow, fall off when he was meant to, roll and pop back onto his feet. All of that proved well received. The sight of little people running about drunkenly and whacking at one another with wooden weapons appeared to be just as hilarious in a siege camp by Slaver's Bay as at Joffrey's wedding feast in King's Landing. Contempt, thought Tyrion. The universal tongue. Their master, Yezan, laughed loudest and longest whenever one of his dwarfs suffered a fall or took a blow, his whole vast body shaking like suet in an earthquake. His guests waited to see how Yerkaz Zoyanzek responded before joining in. The supreme commander appeared so frail that Tyrion was afraid laughing might kill him. When Penny's helm was struck off and flew into the lap of a sour-faced Yunkishman in a striped green and gold tokar, Yerkaz cackled like a chicken. When said lord reached inside the helm and drew out a large purple melon, dribbling pulp, he wheezed until his face turned the same colour as the fruit. He turned to his host and whispered something that made their master chortle and lick his lips, though there was a hint of anger in those slitted yellow eyes, it seemed to Tyrion. Afterward, the dwarfs stripped off their wooden armour and the sweat-soaked clothing beneath and changed into the fresh yellow tunics that had been provided them for serving. Tyrion was given a flagon of purple wine, Penny a flagon of water, 
They moved about the tent, filling cups, their slippered feet, whispering over thick carpets. It was harder work than it appeared. Before long, his legs were cramping badly, and one of the cuts on his back had begun to bleed again, the red seeping through the yellow linen of his tunic. Tyrion bit his tongue and kept on pouring. Most of the guests paid them no more mind than they did the other slaves, but one youngishman declared drunkenly that Yesin should make the two dwarfs fuck, and another demanded to know how Tyrion had lost his nose. I shoved it up your wife's cunt, and she bit it off, he almost replied, but the storm had persuaded him that he did not want to die as yet, so instead he said, It was cut off to punish me for insolence, lord. Then a lord in a blue tokar, fringed with tiger's eyes, recalled that Tyrion had boasted of his skill at Syvas, on the auction block. Let us put him to the test, he said. A table and set of pieces was duly produced. A scanned few moments later, the red-faced lord shoved the table over in fury, scattering the pieces across the carpets to the sound of yunkish laughter. "'You should have let him win,' Penny whispered. Brown Ben Plum lifted the fallen table, smiling. "'Try me next, dwarf. When I was younger, the second sons took contract with Volantis. I learned the game there.' "'I'm only a slave. My noble master decides when and who I play.' Tyrion turned to Yesen. Master? The Yellow Lord seemed amused by the notion. What stakes do you propose, Captain? If I win, give the slave to me, said Plum. No, Yesenzo Kaga said. But if you can defeat my dwarf, you may have the price I paid for him in gold. Done, the sellsword said. The scattered pieces were picked up off the carpet, and they sat down to play. Tyrion won the first game. Plum took the second, for double the stakes. As they set up for their third contest, the dwarf studied his opponent. Brown-skinned, his cheeks and jaw covered by a close-cropped, bristly beard of grey and white, his face creased by a thousand wrinkles and a few old scars. Plum had an amiable look to him especially when he smiled. The faithful retainer, Tyrion decided. Every man's favorite uncle, full of chuckles and old sayings and rough-spun wisdom. It was all sham. Those smiles never touched Plum's eyes, where greed hid behind a veil of caution. Hungry, but wary, this one. The sellsword was nearly as bad a player as the youngish lord had been. But his play was stolid and tenacious, rather than bold. His opening arrays were different every time, yet all the same, conservative, defensive, passive. He does not play to win, Tyrion realized. He plays so as not to lose. It worked in the second game, when the little man overreached himself with an unsound assault. It did not work in the third game, nor the fourth, nor the fifth, which proved to be their last. Near the end of that final contest, with his fortress in ruins, his dragon dead, elephants before him, 
and heavy horse circling round his rear. Plum looked up smiling and said, Yellow wins again. Death in four. Three? Tyrion tapped his dragon. I was lucky. Perhaps you should give my head a good rub before our next game, Captain. Some of that luck might rub off on your fingers. You will still lose, but you might give me a better game. Grinning, he pushed back from the Sivas table, picked up his wine flagon, and returned to pouring with Yezan Zokagas, considerably richer, and Brown Ben Plum considerably impoverished. His gargantuan master had slipped off into drunken sleep during the third game, his goblet slipping from his yellowed fingers to spill its contents on the carpet, but perhaps he would be pleased when he awakened. When the supreme commander, Yerkazo Yansak, departed, supported by a pair of burly slaves, that seemed to be a general signal for the other guests to take their leaves as well. After the tent had emptied out, Nurse reappeared to tell the servers that they might make their own feast from the leavings. Eat quickly. All this must be clean again before you sleep. Tyrion was on his knees, his legs aching and his bloody back screaming with pain, trying to scrub out the stain that the noble Yezan's spilled wine had left upon the noble Yezan's carpet when the overseer tapped his cheek gently with the end of his whip. Yellow, you have done well, you and your wife. She's not my wife. Your whore, then. On your feet, both of you. Tyrion rose unsteadily, one leg trembling beneath him. His thighs were knots, so cramped that Penny had to lend him a hand to pull him to his feet. What have we done? Much and more, said the overseer. Nurse said you would be rewarded if you pleased your father, did he not? Though the noble Yezan is loath to lose his little treasures, as you have seen, Yerkazo Yansak persuaded him that it would be selfish to keep such droll antics to himself. Rejoice! To celebrate the signing of the peace, you shall have the honour of justing in the great pit of Dasnek. Thousands will come see you, tens of thousands, and oh, how we shall laugh! Jamie Raven Tree Hall was old. Moss grew thick between its ancient stones, spider-webbing up its walls like the veins in a crone's legs. Two huge towers flanked the castle's main gate, and smaller ones defended every angle of its walls. All were square. Drum towers and half-moons held up better against catapults, since thrown stones were more apt to deflect off a curved wall. But Raventree predated that particular bit of builder's wisdom. The castle dominated the broad, fertile valley that maps and men alike called Blackwood Vale. A vale it was, beyond a doubt. But no wood had grown there for several thousand years, be it black or brown or green. Once, yes, but axes had long since cleared the trees away. Homes and mills and holdfasts had risen where once the oaks stood tall. 
The ground was bare and muddy, and dotted here and there with drifts of melting snow. Inside the castle walls, however, a bit of the forest still remained. House Blackwood kept the old gods, and worshipped as the first men had in the days before the Andals had come to Westeros. Some of the trees in their godswood were said to be as old as Raven Tree's square towers, especially the heart tree, a weirwood of colossal size whose upper branches could be seen from leagues away, like bony fingers scratching at the sky. As Jamie Lannister and his escort wound through the rolling hills into the vale, little remained of the fields and farms and orchards that had once surrounded Raventree, only mud and ashes, and here and there the blackened shells of homes and mills. Weeds and thorns and nettles grew in that wasteland, but nothing that could be called a crop. Everywhere Jamie looked he saw his father's hand, even in the bones they sometimes glimpsed beside the road. Most were sheep bones, but there were horses too and cattle, and now and again a human skull, or a headless skeleton with weeds poking up to its ribcage. No great hosts encircled Raventree, as Riveron had been encircled. This siege was a more intimate affair, the latest step in a dance that went back many centuries. At best, Jones Bracken had five hundred men about the castle. Jamie saw no siege towers, no battering rams, no catapults. Bracken did not mean to break the gates of Raventree, nor storm its high, thick walls. With no prospect of relief in sight, he was content to starve his rival out. No doubt there had been sorties and skirmishes at the start of the siege, and arrows flying back and forth. Half a year into it, everyone was too tired for such nonsense. Boredom and routine had taken over, the enemies of discipline. Past time this was ended, thought Jamie Lannister. With Riveron now safely in Lannister hands, Raventree was the remnant of the young wolf's short-lived kingdom. Once it yielded, his work along the Trident would be done, and he would be free to return to King's Landing. To the king, he told himself, but another part of him whispered, to Cersei. He would have to face her, he supposed, assuming the High Septon had not put her to death by the time he got back to the city. Come at once, she had written in the letter she had pecked Byrne at Riverheim. Help me, save me. I need you now as I have never needed you before. I love you, I love you, I love you. Come at once. Her need was real enough. Jamie did not doubt. As for the rest, she's been fucking Lancel and Osmond Kettleblack and Moonboy, for all I know. Even if he had gone back, he could not hope to save her. She was guilty of every treason laid against her, and he was short a sword hand. When the column came trotting from the fields, the sentries stared at them with more curiosity than fear. No one sounded the alarm which suited Jamie well enough. Lord Bracken's pavilion did not prove difficult to find. It was the largest in the camp and the best sighted, sitting atop a low rise beside a stream. It commanded a clear view 
of two of Raven Tree's gates. The tent was brown, like the standard flapping from its center pole, where the red stallion of House Bracken reared upon its gold escutcheon. Jamie gave the order to dismount, and told his men they might mingle if they liked. "'Not you two, he said to his banner-bearers. "'Stay close. This will not keep me long.' Jamie vaulted down off honour, and strode to Bracken's tent, his sword rattling in its scabbard. The guards outside the tent-flap exchanged an anxious look at his approach. "'My lord,' said one, "'shall we announce you?' "'I'll announce myself.' Jamie pushed aside the flap with his golden hand and ducked inside. They were well and truly at it when he entered, so intent on their rotting that neither took any note of his arrival. The woman had her eyes closed. Her hands clutched the coarse brown hair on Bracken's back. She gasped every time that he drove into her. His lordship's head was buried in her breasts, his hands locked around her hips. Jamie cleared his throat. <clears throat> Lord Jonas! The woman's eyes flew open, and she gave a startled shriek. Jonas Bracken rolled off her, grabbed for his scabbard, and came up with naked steel in hand, cursing. Seven bloody hells! He started. Who dares? Then he saw Jamie's white cloak and golden breastplate. His sword point dropped. Lannister! I'm sorry to disturb you at your pleasure, my lord, said Jamie, with a half-smile. But I am in some haste. May we talk? Talk, eh? Lord Jonas sheathed his sword. He was not quite so tall as Jamie, but he was heavier, with thick shoulders and arms that would have made a blacksmith envious. Brown stubble covered his cheeks and chin. His eyes were brown as well, the anger in them poorly hidden. You took me unawares, my lord. I was not told of your coming, and I seem to have prevented yours. Jamie smiled at the woman in his bed. She had one hand over her left breast and the other between her legs, which left her right breast exposed. Her nipples were darker than Circe's and thrice the size. When she felt Jamie's gaze, she covered her right nipple, but that revealed her mound. Are all camp followers so modest? he wondered aloud. If a man wants to sell his turnips, he needs to set them out. You've been looking at my turnips since you came in, sir. The woman found the blanket and pulled it up high enough to cover herself to the waist, then raised one hand to push her hair back from her eyes. And they're not for sale, neither. Jamie gave a shrug. My apologies if I mistook you for something you're not. My little brother has known a hundred whores, I'm sure. But I've only ever bedded one. She's a prize of war. Bracken retrieved his breeches from the floor and shook them out. She belonged to one of Blackwood's sworn swords, till I split his head in two. Put your hands down, woman. My lord of Lannister wants a proper look at those teats. Jamie ignored that. You are putting those breeches on backwards, my lord, he told Bracken. As Jonas cursed, the woman slipped off the bed to snatch up her scattered clothing, her fingers fluttering nervously between her breasts and cleft.
as she bent and turned and reached. Her efforts to conceal herself were oddly provocative, far more so than if she'd simply gone about the business naked. Do you have a name, woman? he asked her. My mother named me Hildy, sir. She pulled a soil shift down over her head and shook her hair out. Her face was almost as dirty as her feet, and she had enough hair between her legs to pass for Bracken's sister. But there was something appealing about her all the same. That pug nose, her shaggy mane of hair, or the way she did a little curtsy after she had stepped into her skirt. Have you seen my other shoe, my lord? The question seemed to vex Lord Bracken. Am I a bloody handmaid to fetch your shoes? Go barefoot if you must. Just go. Does that mean my lord won't be taking me home with him to pray with his little wife? Laughing, Hilda gave Jamie a brazen look. Do you have a little wife, sir? No, I have a sister. What colour is my cloak? White, she said. But your hand is solid gold. I like that in a man. And what is it you like in a woman, my lord? Innocence. In a woman, I said, not a daughter. He thought of Marcella. I will need to tell her too. The Dornishman might not like that. Dorian Martell had betrothed her to his son in the belief that she was Robert's blood. Nuts and tangles, Jamie thought, wishing he could cut through all of it with one swift stroke of his sword. I have sworn a vow, he told Hildy, Warily. No turnips for you, then, the girl said saucily. Get out! Lord Jonas roared at her. She did, but as she slipped past Jamie, clutching one shoe and a pile of her clothes, she reached down and gave his cock a squeeze through his breeches. Hildy, she reminded him, before she darted half clothed from the tent. Hildy! Jamie mused. And how fares your lady wife? he asked Lord Jonas when the girl was gone. How would I know? Ask her Septon. When your father burned our castle, she decided the gods were punishing us. Now all she does is pray. Jonas had finally gotten his breeches turned the right way round and was lacing them up the front. What brings you here, my lord? The blackfish? We heard how he escaped. Did you? Jamie settled on a camp stool. From the man himself, perchance? Sir Brendan knows better than to come running to me. I am fond of the man. I won't deny that. That won't stop me clapping him in chains if he shows his face near me or mine. He knows I've bent the knee. He should have done the same, but he always was a stubborn one. His brother could have told you that. Titus Blackwood has not bent the knee, Jamie pointed out. Might the blackfish seek refuge at Raventree? He may seek it, but to find it he'll need to get past my siege lines. And last I heard he hadn't grown wings. Titus will be needing refuge himself before much longer. They're down to rats and roots in there. He'll yield before the next full moon. He'll yield before the sun goes down. 
I mean to offer him terms and accept him back into the king's peace. I see, Lord Jonas shrugged into a brown woolen tunic with a red stallion of bracken embroidered on the front. Will my lord take a horn of ale? No, but don't go dry on my account. Bracken filled a horn for himself, drank half of it, and wiped his mouth. You spoke of terms. What sort of terms? The usual sort, Lord Blackwood, shall be required to confess his treason and abjure his allegiance to the Starks and Tullys. He will swear solemnly before gods and men to henceforth remain a leal vassal of Harrenhal and the Iron Throne, and I will give him pardon in the king's name. We will take a pot or two of gold, of course, the price of rebellion. I'll claim a hostage as well, to ensure that Raventree does not rise again. His daughter, suggested Bracken. Blackwood has six sons, but only one daughter. He dotes on her. A snot-nosed little creature couldn't be more than seven. Young, but she might serve. Lord Jonas drained the last of his ale and tossed the horn aside. What of the lands and castles we were promised? What lands were these? The east bank of the widow's wash, from Crossbow Ridge to Rutting Meadow, and all the islands in the stream, Grindcorn Mill and Lord's Mill, the ruins of Muddy Hall, the Ravishment, Battle Valley, Old Forge, the villages of Buckle, Black Buckle, Cairns, and Claypool, and the market town at Mudgrave, Waspwood, Loganswood, Greenhill, and Barber's Teats. Mrs. Teats, the Blackwoods call them, but they were Barber's first. Honey Tree and all the hives. Here, I've marked them out, if my lord would like a look. He rooted about on the table and produced a parchment map. Jamie took it with his good hand, but he had to use the gold to open it and hold it flat. This is a deal of land, he observed. You will be increasing your domains by a quarter. Bracken's mouth set stubbornly. All these lands belonged to Stonehenge once. The Blackwoods stole them from us. What about this village here, between the teats? Jamie tapped the map with a gilded knuckle. Penny tree, that was ours once too, but it's been a royal fief for a hundred years. Leave that out. We ask only for the land stolen by the Blackwoods. Your Lord Father promised to restore them to us if we would subdue Lord Titus for him. Yet as I was riding up, I saw Tully banners flying from the castle walls, and the direwolf of Stark as well. That would seem to suggest that Lord Titus has not been subdued. We've driven him and his from the field and penned them up inside Raventree. Give me sufficient men to storm his walls. My lord and I will subdue the whole lot of them to their graves. If I gave you sufficient men, they would be doing the subduing, not you, in which case I should reward myself. Jamie let the map roll up again. I'll keep this, if I might. The map is yours. 
The lands are ours. It's said that a Lannister always pays his debts. We fought for you. Not half as long as you fought against us. The king has pardoned us for that. I lost my nephew to your swords, and my natural son. Your mountain stole my harvest and burned everything he could not carry off. He put my castle to the torch and raped one of my daughters. I will have recompense. The mountain is dead, as is my father, Jamie told him. And some might say your head was recompense enough. You did declare for Stark and kept faith with him until Lord Walder killed him, murdered him, and a dozen good men of my own blood. Lord Jonas turned his head and spat. I, I kept faith with the young wolf, as I'll keep faith with you, so long as you treat me fair. I bent the knee because I saw no sense in dying for the dead, nor shedding bracken blood in a lost cause. A prudent man, though some might say that Lord Blackwood has been more honourable. You'll get your lands, some of them at least, since you partly subdued the Blackwoods. That seemed to satisfy Lord Jonas. We will be content with whatever portion my lord thinks fair. If I may offer you some counsel, though, it does not serve to be too gentle with these Blackwoods. Treachery runs in their blood. Before the Andals came to Westeros, House Bracken ruled this river. We were kings, and the Blackwoods were our vassals, but they betrayed us and usurped the crown. Every Blackwood is born a turncloak. You would do well to remember that when you are making terms. Oh, I shall, Jamie promised. When he rode from Bracken's siege camp to the gates of Raventree, Peck went before him with a peace banner. Before they reached the castle, twenty pairs of eyes were watching them from the gatehouse ramparts. He drew honour to a halt at the edge of the moat, a deep trench lined with stone, its green waters choked by scum. Jamie was about to command Sir Kenneth to sound the horn of Herrick, when the drawbridge began to descend. Lord Titus Blackwood met him in the outer ward, mounted on a destrier as gaunt as himself. Very tall and very thin, the Lord of Raventree had a hook nose, long hair, and a ragged salt-and-pepper beard that showed more salt than pepper. In silver inlay on the breastplate of his burnished scarlet armour was a white tree bare and dead, "'surrounded by a flock of onyx ravens taking flight. "'A cloak of raven feathers fluttered from his shoulders. "'Lord Titus,' Jamie said, "'Sir, thank you for allowing me to enter. "'I will not say that you are welcome, "'nor will I deny that I have hoped that you might come. "'You are here for my sword. "'I am here to make an end of this.' Your men have fought valiantly, but your war is lost. Are you prepared to yield? To the king, not to Jonas Bracken. I understand. Blackwood hesitated a moment. Is it your wish that I dismount 
and kneel before you here now. A hundred eyes were looking on. The wind is cold and the yard is muddy, said Jamie. You can do your kneeling on the carpet in your solar, once we've agreed on terms. That is chivalrous of you, said Lord Titus. Come, sir. My hall might lack for food, but never for courtesy. Blackwood Solar was on the second floor of a cavernous timber keep. There was a fire burning in the hearth when they entered. The room was large and airy, with great beams of dark oak supporting the high ceiling. Woolen tapestries covered the walls, and a pair of wide, lattice-work doors looked out upon the godswood. Through their thick, diamond-shaped panes of yellow glass, Jamie glimpsed the gnarled limbs of the tree from which the castle took its name. It was a weirwood, ancient and colossal, ten times the size of the one in the stone garden at Castley Rock. This tree was bare and dead, though. The brackens poisoned it, said his host. For a thousand years, not shown a leaf. In another thousand, it will have turned to stone, the maesters say. Weirwoods never rot. And the ravens? asked Jamie. Where are they? They come at dusk and roost all night. Hundreds of them. They cover the tree like black leaves, every limb and every branch. They have been coming for thousands of years. How or why, no man can say. Yet the tree draws them every night. Blackwood settled in a high-backed chair. For honour's sake, I must ask about my liege lord. Sir Edmure is on his way to Castle Rock as my captive. His wife will remain at the twins until their child is born. Then she and the babe will join him, so long as he does not attempt escape or plot rebellion. Edmure will live a long life, long and bitter, a life without honor. Until his dying day, men will say he was afraid to fight. Unjustly, Jamie thought. It was his child he feared for. He knew whose son I am better than mine own aunt. The choice was his. His uncle would have made us bleed. We agree on that much. Blackwood's voice gave nothing away. What have you done with Sir Brindon, if I may ask? I offered to let him take the black. Instead, he fled. Jamie smiled. Do you have him here, perchance? No. Would you tell me, if you did? It was Titus Blackwood's turn to smile. Jamie brought his hands together, the gold fingers inside the fleshy ones. Perhaps it is time we talked of terms. Is this where I get down on my knees? If it please you, or we can say you did. Lord Blackwood remained seated. They soon reached agreement on the major points. Confession, fealty, pardon, a certain sum of gold and silver to be paid. What lands will you require? Lord Titus asked. When Jamie handed him the map, he took one look and chuckled. To be sure, the turn cloak must be given his reward. Yes, but a smaller one than he imagines for a smaller service. Which of these lands will you consent to part with? Lord Titus considered for a moment. Woodhedge, Crossbow Ridge, 
and buckle. A ruin, a ridge, and a few hovels. Oh, come, my lord, you must suffer for your treason. He will want one of the mills at least. Mills were a valuable source of tax. The lord received a tenth of all the grain they ground. Lord's mill, then. Grind corn is ours. And another village. Uh, Cairns? I have four bears buried beneath the rocks of Cairns. He looked at the map again. Give him honey tree and its hives. All that's sweet will make him fat and rot his teeth. Done, then. But for one last thing. A hostage? Yes, my lord. You have a daughter, I believe. Bethany. Lord Titus looked stricken. I also have two brothers and a sister. A pair of widowed aunts, nieces, nephews, cousins. I thought you might consent. It must be a child of your blood. Bethany is only eight. A gentle girl, full of laughter. She has never been more than a day's ride from my hall. Why not let her see King's Landing? His grace is almost of an age with her. He would be pleased to have another friend. One he can hang, if the friend's father should displease him, asked Lord Titus. I have four sons. Would you consider one of them instead? Ben is twelve and thirsty for adventure. He could squire for you, if it please, my lord. I have more squires than I know what to do with. Every time I take a piss, they fight for the right to hold my cock. And you have six sons, my lord, not four. Once, Robert was my youngest, and never strong. He died nine days ago of a looseness of the bowels. Lucas was murdered at the Red Wedding. Walter Frey's fourth wife was a Blackwood, but kinship counts for no more than guest right at the Twins. I should like to bury Lucas beneath the tree, but the Freys have not yet seen fit to return his bones to me. I'll see that they do. Was Lucas your eldest son? My second. Brynden is my eldest, and my heir. Next comes Huster, a bookish boy, I fear. They have books in King's Landing, too. I recall my little brother reading them from time to time. Perhaps your son would like to look at them. I will accept Huster as our hostage. Blackwood's relief was palpable. Thank you, my lord. He hesitated a moment. If I may be so bold, you would do well to require a hostage from Lord Jonas, too. One of his daughters. For all his rutting, he has not proved man enough to father sons. He had a bastard son killed in the war. Did he? Harry was a bastard, true enough, but whether Jonas sired him is a thornier question. A fair-haired boy he was, and comely. Jonas is neither. Lord Titus got to his feet. Will you do me the honour of taking supper with me? Some other time, my lord. The castle was starving. No good would be served by Jamie stealing food from their mouths. I cannot linger... River Run awaits. River Run? Or King's Landing? Both. Lord Titus did not attempt to dissuade him. Huster can be ready to depart within the hour. 
He was. The boy met Jamie by the stables, with a bedroll slung over one shoulder and a bundle of scrolls beneath his arm. He could not have been any older than sixteen, yet he was even taller than his father, almost seven feet of legs and shins and elbows, a gangling, gawky boy with a cowlick. Lord Commander, I'm your hostage, Huster. Hus, they call me. He grinned. Does he think this is a lark? Pray, who are they? My friends, my brothers. I am not your friend, and I am not your brother. That cleaned the grin off the boy's face. Jamie turned to Lord Titus. My lord, let there be no misunderstanding here. Lord Beric Dundarian, Thoris of Mere, Sandor Clegane, Brynden Tully, this woman Stoneheart, all these are outlaws and rebels, enemies to the king and all his leal subjects. If I should learn that you or yours are hiding them, protecting them, or assisting them in any way, I will not hesitate to send you your son's head. I hope you understand that. Understand this as well. I am not Ryman Frey. No. All trace of warmth had left Lord Blackwood's mouth. I know who I'm dealing with. King Slayer. Good. Jamie mounted and wheeled on her toward the gate. I wish you a good harvest and the joy of the king's peace. He did not ride far. Lord Jonas Bracken was waiting for him outside Raventree, just beyond the range of a good crossbow. He was mounted on an armoured destrier, and had donned his plate and mail, and a grey steel great helm with a horsehair crest. I saw them pull the direwolf banner down, he said, when Jamie reached him. Is it done? Done and done. Go home and plant your fields. Lord Bracken raised his visor. I trust I have more fields to plant than when you went into that castle. Buckle, wood hedge, honey tree, and all its hives. He was forgetting one. Oh, and crossbow ridge. A mill, said Bracken. I must have a mill. Lord's mill. Lord Jonas snorted. Aye, that will serve for now. He pointed at Huster Blackwood, riding back with Peck. Is that what he gave you for a hostage? You were cousin, sir. A weakling, this one. Water for blood. Never mind how tall he is. Any one of my girls could snap him like a rotten twig. How many daughters do you have, my lord? Jamie asked him. Five? Two by my first wife, and three by my third. Too late, he seemed to realize that he might have said too much. Send one of them to court. She will have the privilege of attending the Queen Regent. Bracken's face grew dark as he realized the import of those words. Is this how you repay the friendship of Stonehenge? It's a great honor to wait upon the Queen, Jamie reminded his lordship. You might want to impress that on her. We'll look for the girl before the year is out. He did not wait for Lord Bracken to reply, but touched on her lightly with his golden spurs and trotted off. His men formed up and followed, banners streaming.
castle and camp were soon lost behind them, obscured by the dust of their hooves. Neither outlaws nor wolves had troubled them on their way to Raventree, so Jamie decided to return by a different route. If the guards were good, he might stumble on the blackfish or lure Beric Dondarian into an unwise attack. They were following the widow's wash when they ran out of day. Jamie called his hostage forward and asked him where to find the nearest ford, and the boy led them there. As the column splashed across the shallow waters, the sun was setting behind a pair of grassy hills. The teats, said Huster Blackwood. Jamie recalled Lord Bracken's map. There's a village between those hills. Penny tree, the lad confirmed. We'll camp there for the night. If there were villages about, they might have knowledge of Sir Brindon or the outlaws. Lord Jonas made some remark about whose teats they were, he recalled to the Blackwood boy as they rode toward the darkening hills and the last light of the day. The Brackens call them by one name, and the Blackwoods by another. I, my lord, for a hundred years or so, before that, they were the mother's teats, or just the teats. There are two of them, and it was thought that they resembled— I can see what they resemble. Jamie found himself thinking back on the woman in the tent, and the way she tried to hide her large, dark nipples. What changed a hundred years ago? Aegon, the unworthy, took Barbara Bracken as his mistress, the bookish boy replied. She was a very buxom wench, they say, and one day when the king was visiting at the stone hedge, he went out hunting and saw the teats and named them for his mistress. Aegon IV had died long before Jamie had been born, but he recalled enough of the history of his reign to guess what must have happened next. Only later, he put the Bracken girl aside and took up with the Blackwood. Was that the way of it? Lady Melissa, Huster confirmed. Missy, they called her. There's a statue of her in our godswood. She was much more beautiful than Barbara Bracken, but slender, and Barbara was hurt to say that Missy was flat as a boy. When King Aegon heard, he... Gave her Barber's teats, Jamie laughed. How did all that begin, between Blackwood and Bracken? Is it written down? It is, my lord, the boy said, but some of the histories were penned by their maesters and some by ours, centuries after the events that they purport to chronicle. It goes back to the age of heroes. The Blackwoods were kings in those days. The Brackens were petty lords. "'renowned for breeding horses. "'Rather than pay their king his just due, "'they used the gold their horses brought them "'to hire swords and cast him down. "'When did all this happen? Five hundred years before the Andals. "'A thousand, if the true history is to be believed. "'Only no one knows when the Andals crossed the narrow sea. "'The true history says four thousand years have passed since then.' but some maesters claim that it was only two. Past a certain point, all the dates grow easy and confused, and the clarity of history becomes the fog of legend. Tyrion would like this one. 
they could talk from dusk to dawn, arguing about books. For a moment his bitterness towards his brother was forgotten, until he remembered what the imp had done. So you are fighting over a crown that one of you took from the other, back when the Castellese still held Castley Rock. Is that the root of it? The crown of a kingdom that has not existed for thousands of years. He chuckled. So many years, so many wars, so many kings. You'd think someone would have made a peace. Someone did, my lord. Many someones. We've had a hundred pieces with the Brackens, many sealed with marriages. There's Blackwood blood in every Bracken, and Bracken blood in every Blackwood. The old king's peace lasted half a century, but then some fresh quarrel broke out, and the old wounds opened and began to bleed again. That's how it always happens, my father says. So long as men remember the wrongs done to their forebears, no peace will ever last. So we go on century after century with us hating the Brackens and them hating us. My father says there will never be an end to it. There could be. How, my lord? The old wounds never heal, my father says. My father had a saying too. Never wound a foe when you can kill him. Dead men don't claim vengeance. Their sons do, said Huster apologetically. Not if you kill the sons as well. Ask the Castleys about that, if you doubt me. Ask Lord and Lady Tarbeck, or the reigns of Castamere. Ask the Prince of Dragonstone. For an instant, the deep red clouds that crowned the western hills reminded him of Rhaegar's children, all wrapped up in crimson cloaks. Is that why you killed all the Starks? Not all said Jamie. Lord Eddard's daughters live. One has just been wed. The other... Brian, where are you? Have you found her? If the gods are good, she'll forget she was a Stark. She'll wed some burly blacksmith or fat-faced innkeep, fill his house with children, and never need to fear that some knight might come along to smash their heads against the wall. The gods are good, his hostage said, uncertainly. You go on believing that. Jamie let honour feel his spurs. Pennytree proved to be a much larger village than he had anticipated. The war had been here too. Blackened orchards and the scorched shells of broken houses testified to that. But for every home in ruins, three more had been rebuilt. Through the gathering blue dusk, Jamie glimpsed fresh thatch upon a score of roofs and doors made of raw green wood. Between a duck pond and a blacksmith's forge, he came upon the tree that gave the place its name, an oak, ancient and tall. Its gnarled roots twisted in and out of the earth like a nest of slow brown serpents, and hundreds of old copper pennies that had been nailed to its huge trunk. Peck stared at the tree, and then at the empty houses. Where are the people? Hiding, Jamie told him. Inside the homes, all the fires had been put out, but some still smoked, and none of them were cold.
the nanny goat that Hot Harry Morell had found rooting through a vegetable garden was the only living creature to be seen. But the village had a hole fast, as strong as any in the riverlands, with thick stone walls twelve feet high, and Jamie knew that was where he'd find the villagers. They hid behind those walls when raiders came, and that's why there's still a village here, and they are hiding there again, from me. He rode honour up to the Holfast gates. You and the Holfast, we mean you no harm. We're king's men. Faces appeared on the wall above the gate. They were king's men, burned our village, one man called down. Before that, some other king's men took our sheep. They were for a different king, but that didn't matter none to our sheep. King's men killed Harsley and Sir Ormond, and raped Lacey till she died. Not my men, Jamie said. Will you open your gates? When you're gone, we will. Sir Kenneth rode close to him. We could break that gate down easy enough, or put it to the torch. While they dropped stones on us, and feather us with arrows, Jamie shook his head. It would be a bloody business, and for what? These people have done us no harm. We'll shatter in their houses, but I'll have no stealing. We have our own provisions. As a half-moon crept up the sky, they staked their horses out in the village commons, and supped on salted mutton, dried apples, and hard cheese. Jamie ate sparingly, and shared a skin of wine with Peck and Huss, the hostage. He tried to count the pennies nailed to the old oak, but there were too many of them, and he kept losing count. What's that all about? The Blackwood boy would tell him if he asked, but that would spoil the mystery. He had posted sentries to see that no one left the confines of the village. He sent out scouts as well, to make certain no enemy took them unawares. It was near midnight when two came riding back with a woman they had taken captive. She rode up, bold as you please, my lord, demanding words with you. Jamie scrambled to his feet. My lady, I had not thought to see you again so soon. Gods be good, she looks ten years older than when I saw her last. And what's happened to her face? That uh, bandage, you've been wounded? A bite. She touched the hilt of her sword, the sword that he had given her. Oath-keeper. My lord, you gave me a quest. The girl. Have you found her? I have, said Brian, maid of Tarth. Where is she? A day's ride. I can take you to her, sir, but you will need to come alone. Elsewise, the hound will kill her. John Rilo sang Melisandre, her arms upraised against the falling snow. You are the light in our eyes, the fire in our hearts, the heat in our loins. Yours is the sun that warms our days, yours the stars that guard us in the dark of night. O oh, praise Rilo, the Lord of Light. The wedding guests answered in ragged chorus. 
before a gust of ice-cold wind blew their words away. John Snow raised the hood of his cloak. The snowfall was light today, a thin scattering of flakes dancing in the air. But the wind was blowing from the east along the wall, cold as the breath of the ice dragon in the tales old Nan used to tell. Even Melisandre's fire was shivering. The flames huddled down in the ditch, crackling softly as the red priestess sang. Only ghosts seemed not to feel the chill. Alice Carstock leaned close to John. Snow during a wedding means a cold marriage. My lady mother always said so. He glanced at Queen Solis. There must have been a blizzard the day she and Stannis wed. Huddled beneath her ermine mantle and surrounded by her ladies, serving girls and knights, the Southron Queen seemed a frail, pale, shrunken thing. A strained smile was frozen into place on her thin lips, but her eyes brimmed with reverence. She hates the cold, but loves the flames. He had only to look at her to see that. A word for Melisandre, and she would walk into the fire willingly, embrace it like a lover. Not all her queen's men seemed to share her fervor. Sir Bruss appeared half-drunk. Sir Malagorn's gloved hand was cupped round the arse of the lady beside him. Sir Narbert was yawning, and Sir Patrick of King's Mountain looked angry. Jon Snow had begun to understand why Stannis had left them with his queen. The night is dark and filled with terrors, Melisandre sang. Alone we are born and alone we die. But as we walk through this black veil, we draw strength from one another, and from you, our Lord. Her scarlet silks and satins swirled with every gust of wind. Two come forth today to join their lives so they may face this world's darkness together. Fill their hearts with fire, my Lord, so they may walk your shining path hand in hand forever. Lord of light, protect us, cried Queen Solis. Other voices echoed the response. Melisandre's faithful, pallid ladies, shivering serving girls, Sir Axel and Sir Narbert and Sir Lambert, men at arms in iron mail and thins in bronze, even a few of John's black brothers. Lord of light, bless your children. Melisandre's back was to the wall, on one side of the deep ditch where her fire burned. The couple to be joined faced her across the ditch. Behind them stood the queen, with her daughter and her tattooed fool. Princess Shireen was wrapped in so many furs that she looked round, breathing in white puffs through the scarf that covered most of her face. Sir Axel Florent and his queen's men surrounded the royal party, with the tall bravassi banker looming over all of them. Though only a few men of the night's watch had gathered about the ditch fire, more looked down from rooftops and windows and the steps of the great switchback stair. John took careful note of who was there and who was not. Some men had the duty, many just off watch were fast asleep. 
but others had chosen to absent themselves to show their disapproval. Athel Yarwick and Bowen Marsh were amongst the missing. Septon Shale had emerged briefly from the sept, fingering the seven-sided crystal on the thong about his neck, only to retreat inside again once the prayers began. Melisandre raised her hands, and the ditch fire leapt upwards towards her fingers, like a great red dog springing for a treat. A swirl of sparks rose to meet the snowflakes coming down. O oh Lord of Light, we thank you, she sang to the hungry flames. We thank you for brave Stannis. By your grace, our king, guide him and defend him, Rilor. Protect him from the treacheries of evil men and grant him strength to smite the servants of the dark. Grant him strength, answered Queen Solis and her knights and ladies. Grant him courage. Grant him wisdom. Alice Carstark slipped her arm through John's. How much longer, Lord Snow, if I'm to be buried beneath this snow, I'd like to die a woman wed. Soon, my lady, John assured her, soon. We thank you for the sun that warms us, chanted the queen. We thank you for the stars that watch over us in the black of night. We thank you for our hearths and for our torches, which keep the savage dark at bay. We thank you for our bright spirits, the fires in our loins and in our hearts. And Melisandre said, Let them come forth, who would be joined. The flames cast her shadow on the wall behind her, and her ruby gleamed against the paleness of her throat. John turned to Alice Carstark. Uh, my lady, are you ready? Yes, oh yes. You're not scared? The girl smiled in a way that reminded John so much of his little sister that it almost broke his heart. Let him be scared of me. The snowflakes were melting on her cheeks, but her hair was wrapped in a swirl of lace that Saturn had found somewhere, and the snow had begun to collect there, giving her a frosty crown. Her cheeks were flushed and red, and her eyes sparkled. Winter's lady, John squeezed her hand. The Magna of Thin stood waiting by the fire, clad as if for battle, in fur and leather and bronze scales, a bronze sword at his hip. His receding hair made him look older than his years, but as he turned to watch his bride approach, John could see the boy in him. His eyes were big as walnuts, though whether it was the fire, the priestess, or the woman that had put the fear in him, John could not say. Alice was more right than she knew. "'Who brings this woman to be wed?' asked Melisandre. "'I do,' said John. "'Now comes Alice of House Carstark, a woman grown and flowered, of noble blood and birth.' He gave her hand one last squeeze and stepped back to join the others. "'Who comes forth to claim this woman?' asked Melisandre. "'Me!' Sigorn slapped his chest. "'Magna of Thin!' "'Sigorn,' asked Melisandre, "'will you share your fire 
with Alice and warm her when the night is dark and full of terrors. I swear me, the Magna's promise was a white cloud in the air. Snow dappled his shoulders. His ears were red. By the red god's flames, I warm her all her days. Alice, do you swear to share your fire with Sigon and warm him when the night is dark and full of terrors? Till his blood is boiling. Her maiden's cloak was the black wall of the night's watch. The cast-dark sunburst, sewn on its back, was made of the same white fur that lined it. Melisandre's eyes shone as bright as the ruby at her throat. Then come to me and be as one. As she beckoned, a wall of flames roared upwards, licking at the snowflakes with hot orange tongues. Alice Carstark took her magna by the hand. Side by side, they leapt the ditch. Two went into the flames. A gust of wind lifted the red woman's scarlet skirts till she pressed them down again. One emerges. Her coppery hair danced about her head. What fire joins, none may put asunder. What fire joins, none may put asunder, came the echo from Queen's men and Thens and even a few of the Black Brothers. Except for kings and uncles, thought Jon Snow. Craig and Carstock had turned up a day behind his niece. With him came four mounted men at arms, a huntsman and a pack of dogs, sniffing after Lady Alice as if she were a deer. John Snow met them on the King's Road, half a league south of Molestown, before they could turn up at Castle Black, claim guest right, or call for parley. One of Carstock's men had loosed a crossbow quarrel at Ty, and died for it. That left four, and Craig and himself. Fortunately, they had a dozen ice cells. Room for all. Like so much else, heraldry ended at the wall. The Thens had no family arms, as was customary amongst the nobles of the Seven Kingdoms, so John told the Stuarts to improvise. He thought they had done well. The bride's cloak, Sigorn fastened about Lady Alice's shoulders, showed a bronze disc on a field of white wool, surrounded by flames made with wisps of crimson silk. The echo of the car-stark sunburst was there for those who cared to look, but differenced to make the arms appropriate for house then. The Magnor all but ripped the maiden's cloak from Alice's shoulders, but when he fastened her bride's cloak about her, he was almost tender. As he leaned down to kiss her cheek, their breath mingled. The flames roared once again. The Queen's men began to sing a song of praise. Is it done? John heard Satin whisper. Done and done, muttered Molly, and a good thing. They're wed, and I'm half-rose. He was muffled up in his best blacks. Woolen so new, they had hardly had a chance to fade yet. But the wind had turned his cheeks as red as his hair. Hobbs mulled some wine with cinnamon and cloves. That'll warm us some. What cloves? asked Owen the oaf. The snow had started to descend more heavily, and the fire in the ditch 
was guttering out. The crowd began to break apart and stream from the yard. Queen's men, king's men, and free folk alike, all anxious to get out of the wind and the cold. Will my lord be feasting with us? Molly asked Jon Snow. Shortly. Sigorn might take it as a slight if he did not appear. And this marriage is mine own work, after all. I have other matters to attend to first, however. John crossed to Queen Salise, with ghosts beside him. His boots crunched through piles of old snow. It was growing ever more time-consuming to shovel out the paths from one building to another. More and more, the men were resorting to the underground passages they called wormways. Such a beautiful rite, the Queen was saying. I could feel our Lord's fiery gaze upon us. Oh, you cannot know how many times I have begged Stannis to let us be wed again. A true joining of body and spirit, blessed by the Lord of Light. I know that I could give His Grace more children if we were bound in fire. To give him more children, you would first need to get him into your bed. Even at the wall, it was common knowledge that Stannis Baratheon had shunned his wife for years. One could only imagine how his grace had responded to the notion of a second wedding in the midst of his war. John bowed. If it please your grace, the feast awaits. The queen glanced at Ghost suspiciously, then raised her head to John. To be sure, Lady Melisandre knows the way. The red priestess spoke up. I must attend my fires, your grace. Perhaps Willow will vouchsafe me a glimpse of his grace. A glimpse of some great victory, mayhaps. Oh, Queen Celise looked stricken. To be sure, let us pray for a vision from our lord. Saturn, show her grace to her place, said John. Sir Melgorn stepped forward. I will escort her grace to the feast. We shall not require your, um, steward. The way the man drew out the last word told John that he had been considering saying something else. Boy, pet, whore. John bowed again. As you wish, I shall join you shortly. Sir Melgorn offered his arm, and Queen Celise took it. Stiffly, her other hand settled on her daughter's shoulder. The royal ducklings fell in behind them as they made their way across the yard, marching to the music of the bells on the fool's hat. Under the sea, the mermen feast on starfish soup, and all the serving men are crabs. Patchface proclaimed as they went, I know, I know, oh, oh, oh. Melisandre's face darkened. That creature is dangerous. Many a time I have glimpsed him in my flames. Sometimes there are skulls about him, and his lips are red with blood. I wonder you haven't had the poor man burned. All it would take was a word in the Queen's ear, and Patchface would feed her fires. You see fools in your fire, but no hint of Stannis. When I search for him, all I see is snow. The same useless answer. 
Clytus had dispatched a raven to Deepwood Mott to warn the king of Arnulf Carstock's treachery. But whether the bird had reached his grace in time, John did not know. The Bravasi banker was off in search of Stannis as well, accompanied by the guides that John had given him. But between the war and weather, it would be a wonder if he found him. Would you know if the king was dead? John asked the Red Priestess. He is not dead. Stannis is the Lord's chosen, destined to lead the fight against the dark. I have seen it in the flames, read of it in ancient prophecy. When the red star bleeds and the darkness gathers, Azor Ahai shall be born again amidst smoke and salt to wake dragons out of stone. Dragonstone is the place of smoke and salt. John had heard all this before. Stannis Baratheon was the lord of Dragonstone, but he was not born there. He was born at Storm's End, like his brothers. He frowned. And what of Mance? Is he lost as well? What do your fires show? The same, I fear, only snow. Snow. It was snowing heavily to the south, John knew. Only two days' ride from here. The king's road was said to be impassable. Melisandre knows that too. And to the east, a savage storm was raging on the Bay of Seals. At last report, the ragtag fleet they had assembled to rescue the free folk from Hardhome still huddled at East Watch by the sea, confined to port by the rough seas. You're seeing cinders dancing in the updraft. I am seeing skulls, and you... I see your face every time I look into the flames. The danger that I warned you of grows very close now. Daggers in the dark, I know. You will forgive my doubts, my lady. A grey girl on a dying horse, fleeing from a marriage? That was what you said. I was not wrong. You were not right. Alice is not Arya. The vision was a true one. It was my reading that was false. I am as mortal as you, Jon Snow, all mortals heir. Even Lord Commanders. Mance Raider and his spare wives had not returned, and Jon could not help but wonder whether the Red Woman had lied of a purpose. Is she playing her own game? You would do well to keep your wolf beside you, my lord. Ghost is seldom far. The dire wolf raised his head at the sound of his name. John scratched him behind the ears. But now you must excuse me. Ghost, with me. Carved from base of the wall, and closed with heavy wooden doors, the ice cells ranged from small to smaller. Some were big enough to allow a man to pace, others so small that prisoners were forced to sit. The smallest were too cramped to allow even that. John had given his chief captive the larger cell, a pail to shit in, enough furs to keep him from freezing, and a skin of wine. It took the guard some time to open his cell, as ice had formed inside the lock. Rusted hinges screamed like damned souls when Wick Whittlestick yanked the door wide enough for John to slip through. A faint fecal odour greeted him though less overpowering than he'd expected.
Even shit froze solid in such bitter cold. Jon Snow could see his own reflection dimly inside the icy walls. In one corner of the cell, a heap of furs was piled up almost to the height of a man. Carstock, said Jon Snow, wake up. The furs stirred. Some had frozen together, and the frost that covered them glittered when they moved. An arm emerged, then a face, brown hair, tangled and matted and streaked with grey. Two fierce eyes, a nose, a mouth, a beard. Ice caked the prisoner's moustache, clumps of frozen snot. Snow! His breath steamed in the air, fogging the ice behind his head. You have no right to hold me, the laws of hospitality. You are no guest of mine. You came to the wall without my leave, armed to carry off your niece against her will. Lady Alice was given bread and salt. She is a guest. You are a prisoner. John let that hang for a moment, then said, Your niece is wed. Craig and Carstark's lips skinned back from his teeth. Alice was promised to me. Though past fifty, he had been a strong man when he went into the cell. The cold had robbed him of that strength and left him stiff and weak. My lord father! Your father is a castellan, not a lord, and a castellan has no right to make marriage pacts. My father Arnulf is lord of Carhold. A son comes before an uncle, by all the laws I know. Cregan pushed himself to his feet and kicked aside the furs clinging to his ankles. Harrion is dead. Or will be soon. A daughter comes before an uncle, too. If her brother is dead, Carhold belongs to Lady Ellis, and she has given her hand in marriage to Sigorn, Magna of Then. A wildling, a filthy, murdering wildling. Kraken's hands closed into fists. The gloves that covered them were leather, lined with fur to match the cloak that hung matted and stiff from his broad shoulders. His black wool surcoat was emblazoned with the white sunburst of his house. I see what you are, Snow. Half a wolf and half a wildling. Baseborn get of a traitor and a whore. You would deliver a high-born maid to the bed of some stinking savage. Did you sample her yourself first? He laughed. If you mean to kill me, do it, and be damned for a kinslayer. Stark and Carstock are one blood. My name is Snow. Bastard. Guilty. Of that, at least. Let this magna come to Carhold. We'll hack off his head and stuff it in a privy, so we can piss into his mouth. Sigorn leads two hundred tens, John pointed out, and Lady Alice believes Carhold will open its gates to her. Two of your men have already sworn her their service, and confirmed all she had to say concerning the plans your father made with Ramsay Snow. You have close kin at Carhold, I am told. A word from you could save their lives. Yield the castle. Lady Alice will pardon the women who betrayed her, and allow the men to take the black. Cregan shook his head. Chunks of ice formed about the tangles in his hair, and clicked together softly when he moved. 
Never, he said. Never, never, never. I should make his head a wedding gift for Lady Alice and her magna, John thought, but dared not take the risk. The Night's Watch took no part in the quarrels of the realm. Some would say he had already given Stannis too much help. Behead this fool, and they will claim I'm killing Northmen to give their lands to wildlings. Release him, and he will do his best to rip apart all I've done with Lady Alice and the Magna. John wondered what his father would do, how his uncle might deal with this. But Eddard Stark was dead. Benjamin Stark lost in the frozen wilds beyond the wall. You know nothing, Jon Snow. Never is a long time, John said. You may feel differently on the morrow, or a year from now. Soon or late, King Stannis will return to the wall, however. When he does, he will have you put to death. Unless it happens that you are wearing a black cloak. When a man takes the black, his crimes are wiped away. Even such a man as you. Now pray excuse me. I have a feast to attend. After the biting cold of the ice cells, the crowded cellar was so hot that John felt suffocated from the moment he came down the steps. The air smelled of smoke and roasting meat and mulled wine. Axel Thorne was making a toast as John took his place upon the dais. To King Stannis and his wife, Queen Selyse, Light of the North, Sir Axel bellowed. To Relore, the Lord of Light, May he defend us all. One land, one God, one king. One land, one God, one king, the Queen's men echoed. John drank with the rest. Whether Alice Carstock would find any joy in her marriage, he could not say. But this one night, at least, should be one of celebration. The stewards began to bring out the first dish, an onion broth flavoured with bits of goat and carrot. Not precisely royal fare, but nourishing. It tasted well enough, and warmed the belly. Owen the Oaf took up his fiddle, and several of the free folk joined in with pipes and drums. The same pipes and drums they played to sound manse raiders attack upon the wall. John thought they sounded sweeter now. With the broth came loaves of coarse brown bread, warm from the oven. Salt and butter sat upon the tables. The sight made John gloomy. They were well provided with salt, Bowen Marsh had told him, but the last of the butter would be gone within a moon's turn. Old Flint and the Nori had been given places of high honour just below the dais. Both men had been too old to march with Stannis. They had sent their sons and grandsons in their stead. But they had been quick enough to descend on Castle Black for the wedding. Each had brought a wet nurse to the wall as well. The Nori woman was forty, with the biggest breast John had ever seen. The Flint girl was fourteen, and flat-chested as a boy, though she did not lack for milk. Between the two of them, the child, Val called Munster, seemed to be thriving. For that much John was grateful. But he did not believe for a moment that two such hoary old warriors would have hied down from their hills for that alone. Each had brought a tale of fighting men, 
five for old Flint, twelve for the Norrie, all clad in ragged skins and studded leathers, fearsome as the face of winter. Some had long beards, some had scars, some had both. All worshipped the old gods of the north, those same gods worshipped by the free folk beyond the wall. Yet here they sat, drinking to a marriage hallowed by some queer red god from beyond the seas. Better that than refuse to drink. Neither Flint nor Norrie had turned their cups over to spill their wine upon the floor. That might betoken a certain acceptance. Or perhaps they just hate to waste good southern wine. They will not have tasted much of it up in those stony hills of theirs. Between courses, Sir Axel Florent led Queen Celise out onto the floor to dance. Others followed. The Queen's knights first, partnered with her ladies. Sir Bruss gave Princess Shireen her first dance, then took a turn with her mother. Sir Narbert danced with each of Celise's lady companions in turn. The Queen's men outnumbered the Queen's ladies three to one, so even the humblest serving girls were pressed into the dance. After a few songs, a few black brothers remembered skills learned at the courts and castles of their youth, before their sins had sent them to the wall, and took the floor as well. That old rogue, Ulmer, of the Kingswood, proved as adept at dancing as he was at archery, no doubt regaling his partners with his tales of the Kingswood Brotherhood, when he rode with Simon Toyne and Big Belly Ben, and helped Wenda the White Fawn burn her mark in the buttocks of her high-born captives. Saturn was all grace, dancing with three serving girls in turn, but never presuming to approach a high-born lady. John judged that wise. He did not like the way some of the Queen's knights were looking at the steward, particularly Sir Patrick of King's Mountain. That one wants to shed a bit of blood, he thought. He's looking for some provocation. When Owen the Oaf began to dance with Patchface, the fool, laughter echoed off the vaulted ceiling. The sight made Lady Alice smile. Did dance often here at Castle Black? Every time we have a wedding, my lady. You could dance with me, you know. It would be only courteous. You dance with me anon. Anon? teased John. When we were children. She tore off a bit of bread and threw it at him. As you know well. My lady should dance with her husband. My magna is not one for dancing, I fear. If you will not dance with me, at least pour me some of the mild wine. As you command, he signaled for a flagon. So, said Alice as John poured, I am now a woman wed, a wilding husband with his own little wilding army. Free folk is what they call themselves, most at least. The fans are a people apart, though, very old. Igrit had told him that. You know nothing, John Snow. They come from a hidden vale at the north end of the Frostfangs, surrounded by high peaks, and for thousands of years they've had more truck with the giants than with other men. It made them different. Different, she said, but more like us. 
Ay, my lady, the fens have lords and laws. They know how to kneel. They mine tin and copper for bronze, forge their own arms and armor instead of stealing it. A proud folk and brave. Mansraider had to best the old Magna thrice before Stir would accept him as king beyond the wall. And now they are here, on our side of the wall, driven from their mountain fastness and into my bedchamber. She smiled a wry smile. It is my own fault. My lord father told me I must charm your brother Rob. But I was only six and didn't know how. Aye, but now you're almost six and ten, and we must pray you will know how to charm your new husband. My lady, how do things stand at Carhold with your food stores? Not well, Alice sighed. My father took so many of our men south with him that only the women and young boys were left to bring the harvest in. Them and the men too old or crippled to go off to war. Crops withered in the fields or were pounded into the mud by autumn rains. And now the snows are come. This winter will be hard. Few of the old people will survive it, and many children will perish as well. It was a tale that any Northman knew well. My father's grandmother was a flint of the mountains, on his mother's side, John told her. The first flints, they call themselves. They say the other flints are the blood of younger sons, who had to leave the mountains to find food and land and wives. It has always been a harsh life up there. When the snows fall and food grows scarce, their young must travel to the winter town or take service at one castle or the other. The old men gather up what strength remains in them and announce that they are going hunting. Some are found come spring. More are never seen again. It is much the same at Carhold. That did not surprise him. When your stores begin to dwindle, my lady, remember us. Send your old men to the wall. Let them say our words. Here at least they will not die alone in the snow, with only memories to warn them. Send us boys as well, if you have boys to spare. As you say, she touched his hand, Carhold remembers. The elk was being carved. It smelled better than John had any reason to expect. He dispatched a portion to Leathers out at Harden's Tower, along with three big platters of roast vegetables for one one, then ate a healthy slice himself. Three-finger Hobbs acquitted himself well. That had been a concern. Hobb had come to him two nights ago, complaining that he joined the Night's Watch to kill wildlings, not to cook for them. "'Besides, I never done no wedding feast, my lord. Black brothers don't never take no wives. It's in the bloody vows. I swear it is.' John was washing the roast down with a sip of mulled wine when Clydus appeared at his elbow. "'A bird,' he announced, and slipped a parchment into John's hand. The note was sealed with a dot of hard black wax. Eastwatch, John knew, even before he broke the seal. The letter had been written by Maester Harmoon. Cotter Pike could neither read nor write, but the words were Pike's, set down as he had spoken them, blunt 
and to the point. Calm seas today. Eleven ships set sail for Hartome on the morning tide. Three bravosses, four Lyseni, four of ours. Two of the Lyseni barely seaworthy. We may drown more wildlings than we save. Your command, twenty ravens aboard, and Maester Harmoon, will send reports. I command from Talon, Tattersalt, second on Blackbird. Sir Glendon holds east watch. Dark wings, dark words, asked Alice Carstark. No, my lady, this news was long awaited, though the last part troubles me. Glendon Hewitt was a seasoned man and a strong one, a sensible choice to command in Cotter Pike's absence. But he was also as much a friend as Alistair Thorne could boast, and a crony of sorts with Janus Slint, however briefly. John could still recall how Hewitt had dragged him from his bed and the feel of his boot slamming into his ribs. Not the man I would have chosen. He rolled the parchment up and slipped it into his belt. The fish course was next, but as the pike was being boned, Lady Alice dragged the magnar up onto the floor. From the way he moved it was plain that Sigorn had never danced before but he had drunk enough mulled wine so that it did not seem to matter. A northern maid and a wilding warrior, bound together by the Lord of Light. Sir Axel Florent slipped into Lady Alice's vacant seat. Her grace approves. I am close to her, my lord, so I know her mind. King Stannis will approve as well. Unless Roose Bolton has stuck his head on a spear... Not all agree, alas. Sir Axel's beard was a ragged brush beneath his sagging chin. Coarse hair sprouted from his ears and nostrils. Sir Patrick feels he would have made a better match for Lady Alice. His lands were lost to him when he came north. There are many in this hall who have lost far more than that, said John, and more who have given up their lives in service to the realm. Sir Patrick should count himself fortunate. Axel Florence smiled. The king might say the same if he were here. Yet some provision must be made for his grace's leal knights, surely. They have followed him so far and at such cost, and we must needs bind these wildings to king and realm. This marriage is a good first step, but I know that it would please the queen— to see the wilding princess wed as well. John sighed. He was weary of explaining that Val was no true princess. No matter how often he told them, they never seemed to hear. You are persistent, Sir Axel. I grant you that. Do you blame me, my lord? Such a prize is not easily won. A newborn girl, I hear, and not hard to look upon. Good hips, good breasts. "'Well made for whelping children. "'Who would father these children? "'Sir Patrick? "'You? "'Who better? "'We Florence have the blood "'of the old gardener kings in our veins. "'Nelly Melisandre could perform the rites, "'as she did for Lady Alice and the Magna. "'All you are lacking is a bride. "'Easily remedied. 
Florence's smile was so false that it looked painful. Where is she, Lord Snow? Have you moved her to one of your other castles? Greyguard, or the Shadow Tower? Horsborough, with t'other wenches? He leaned close. Some say you have her tucked away for your own pleasure. Makes no matter to me, so long as she is not with child. I'll get my own sons on her. If you've broken her to saddle, well, we are both men of the world, are we not? John had heard enough. Sir Axel, if you are truly the Queen's hand, I pity her grace. Fron's face grew flush with anger. So it is true. You mean to keep her for yourself. I see it now. The bastard wants his father's seat. The bastard refused his father's seat. If the bastard had wanted Val, all he had to do was ask for her. You must excuse me, sir, he said. I need a breath of fresh air. It stinks in here. His head turned. That was a horn. Others had heard it too. The music and the laughter died at once. Dancers froze in place, listening. Even Ghost pricked up his ears. Did you hear that? Queen Solis asked her knights. A war horn, your grace, said Sir Narbert. The queen's hand went fluttering to her throat. Are we under attack? No, your grace, said Ulmer of the Kingswood. It's a watcher's on the wall, is all. One blast, thought Jon Snow. Rangers returning. Then it came again. The sound seemed to fill the cellar. Two blasts, said Nolly. Black brothers, northmen, free folk, thens, queen's men, all of them fell quiet, listening. Five heartbeats passed. Ten. Twenty. Then Owen the Oaf tittered, and Jon Snow could breathe again. Two blasts, he announced. Wildlings. Val. Tormund Giantsbane had come at last. Daenerys The hall rang to Yonkish laughter, Yonkish songs, Yonkish prayers. Dancers danced, musicians played queer tunes with bells and squeaks and bladders. Singers sang ancient love songs in the incomprehensible tongue of old guests. Wine flowed, not the thin pale stuff of Slaver's Bay, but rich sweet vintages from the arbor, and dream wine from Karth, flavored with strange spices. The Yunkai had come at King Hisdar's invitation to sign the peace and witness the rebirth of Merian's far-famed fighting pits. Her noble husband had opened the Great Pyramid to fate them. I hate this, thought Daenerys Targaryen. How did this happen, that I'm drinking and smiling with men I'd sooner flee? A dozen different sorts of meat and fish were served. Camel, crocodile, singing squid, lacquered ducks, and spiny grubs, with goat and ham and horse for those whose tastes were less exotic, plus dog. No Gascari feast was complete, without a course of dog. His dars cooks prepared dog four different ways. Giscari will eat anything that swims or flies or crawls, 
but for man and dragon. Daria had warned her. And I'll wager they'll eat dragon too, if given half a chance. Meat alone does not make a meal, though. So there were fruits and grains and vegetables as well. The air was redolent with the scents of saffron, cinnamon, cloves, pepper, and other costly spices. Danny scarce touched a bite. This is peace, she told herself. This is what I wanted, what I worked for. This is why I married Hisdar. So why does it taste so much like defeat? It is only for a little while more, my love, Hisdar had assured her. The Yunkai will soon be gone, and their allies and hirelings with them. We shall have all we desired, peace, food, trade. Our port is open once again, and ships are being permitted to come and go. They are permitting that, yes, she had replied, but their warships remain. They can close their fingers around our throat again whenever they wish. They have opened a slave market within sight of my walls. Outside our walls, sweet queen, and that was a condition of the peace. The Yankai would be free to trade in slaves as before, unmolested. In their own city, not where I have to see it. The wise masters had established their slave pens and auction block just south of the Skahazadan, where the wide brown river flowed into Slaver's Bay. They are mocking me to my face, making a show of how powerless I am to stop them. Posing and posturing, said her noble husband, a show, as you have said. Let them have their mummery. When they are gone, we will make a fruit market of what they leave behind. When they are gone, Danny repeated, and when will they be gone? Riders have been seen beyond the Skahazadan. Dothraki scouts, Rokaro says, with a kalasar behind them. They will have captives, men, women, and children, gifts for the slavers. Dothraki did not buy or sell, but they gave gifts and received them. That is why the Yunkei have thrown up this market. They will leave here with thousands of new slaves. His Hizdar's Alorek shrugged. But they will leave. That is the important part, my love. Yunkai will trade in slaves. Marion will not. This is what we have agreed. Endure this for a little while longer, and it shall pass. So Daenerys sat silent through the meal, wrapped in a vermilion toker and black thoughts, speaking only when spoken to, brooding on the men and women being bought and sold outside her walls even as they feasted here within the city. Let her noble husband make the speeches and laugh at the feeble Yankish japes. That was a king's right and a king's duty. Much of the talk about the table was of the matches to be fought upon the morrow. Barsena Blackhair was going to face a boar, his tusks against her dagger. Kras was fighting, as was the spotted cat, and in the day's final pairing, Gogor the giant would go against Bellaquo Bonebreaker. One would be dead before the sun went down. No queen has clean hands, Danny told herself. She thought of Doria, of Quaro, of Eroa, of a little girl she had never met 
whose name had been Hosea. Better a few should die in the pit than thousands at the gates. This is the price of peace. I pay it willingly. If I look back, I am lost. The Yankee Supreme Commander, Yerkes Zoyanzak, might have been alive during Aegon's conquest, to judge by his appearance. Bent-backed, wrinkled, and toothless, he was carried to the table by two strapping slaves. The other Yankish lords were hardly more impressive. One was small and stunted, though the slave soldiers who attended him were grotesquely tall and thin. The third was young, fit, and dashing, but so drunk that Danny could scarce understand a word he said. How could I have been brought to this pass by creatures such as these? The cell swords were a different matter. Each of the four free companies serving Yunkai had sent its commander. The windblown were represented by the Pentoshi nobleman known as the Tattered Prince, the long lances by the Gilo Regan, who looked more shoemaker than soldier, and spoke in murmurs. Bloodbeard, from the company of the cat, made enough noise for him and a dozen more. A huge man with a great bush of beard, and a prodigious appetite for wine and women. He bellowed, belched, farted like a thunderclap, and pinched every serving girl who came within his reach. From time to time he would pull one down into his lap to squeeze her breasts and fondle her between the legs. The second sons were represented too. If Dario were here, this meal would end in blood. No promised peace could have ever persuaded her captain to permit Brown Ben Plum to stroll back into Murrine and leave alive. Danny had sworn that no harm would come to the seven envoys and commanders, though that had not been enough for the Yankai. They had required hostages of her as well. To balance the three Yankish nobles and four sellsort captains, Mirin sent seven of its own out to the siege camp. Hisdar's sister, two of his cousins, Danny's blood rider, Jogo, her admiral, Grolio, the unsullied captain, Hero, and Dario Naharis. "'I will leave my girls with you,' her captain had said, handing her his sword-belt and its gilded wantons. "'Keep them safe from me, beloved. We would not want them making bloody mischief amongst the Yankai.' The shave-pate was absent as well. The first thing his da had done upon being crowned was to remove him from command of the brazen beasts replacing him with his own cousin, the plump and pasty Marga Zolorek. It is for the best. The Green Grace says there is blood between Lorek and Kandak, and the shave-pate never made a secret of his disdain for my lord husband. And Dario... Dario had only grown wilder since her wedding. Her peace did not please him. Her marriage pleased him less and he had been furious at being deceived by the Dornishman. When Prince Quentin told them that the other Westerossi had come over to the Stormcrows, at the command of the Tattered Prince, only the intercession of Grey Worm and his unsolid prevented Dario from killing them all. The forced deserters had been imprisoned safely in the bowels of the pyramid, 
but Daria's rage continued to fester. He will be safer as a hostage. My captain was not made for peace. Danny could not risk his cutting down a brown Ben Plum, making muck of his star before the court, provoking the Yunkai, or otherwise upsetting the agreement that she had given up so much to win. Dario was war and woe. Henceforth, she must keep him out of her bed, out of her heart, and out of her. If he did not betray her, he would master her. She did not know which of those she feared the most. When the gluttony was done, and all the half-eaten food had been cleared away, to be given to the boar, who gathered below, at the Queen's insistence, tall glass flutes were filled with a spice liquor from Carth, as dark as amber. Then began the entertainments. A troop of Yunkish castrati, owned by Yerkes Zoyanzak, sang them songs in the ancient tongue of the old empire, their voices high and sweet and impossibly pure. "'Have you ever heard such singing, my love?' Hisdar asked her. "'They have the voices of gods, do they not?' "'Yes,' she said, "'though I wonder if they might not have preferred to have the fruits of men.' All of the entertainers were slaves. That had been part of the peace. The slave owners be allowed the right to bring their chattel into Murin without fear of having them freed.' In return, the Yunkai had promised to respect the rights and liberties of the former slaves that Danny had freed. A fair bargain, Hisdar said, but the taste it left in the Queen's mouth was foul. She drank another cup of wine to wash it out. If it please you, Yerkes will be pleased to give us the singers. I do not doubt, her noble husband said, a gift to seal our peace an ornament to our court. He will give us these castrati, Danny thought, and then he will march home and make some more. The world is full of boys. The tumblers who came next failed to move her either, even when they formed a human pyramid nine levels high, with a naked little girl on top. Is that meant to represent my pyramid? The queen wondered. Is the girl on top meant to be me? Afterward, her lord husband led his guests onto the lower terrace, so the visitors from the Yellow City might behold Marion by night. Wine cups in hand, the Yunkai wandered the garden in small groups, beneath lemon trees and night-blooming flowers, and Danny found herself face to face with Brown Ben Plum. He bowed low. Worship, you look lovely. Well, you always did. None of them Yunkish men are half so pretty. I thought I might bring a wedding gift for you, but the bidding went too high for old Brown Ben. I want no gifts from you. Ah, this one you might, the head of an old foe. Your own, she said sweetly, you betrayed me. Now that's a harsh way of putting it, if you don't mind me saying. Brown Ben scratched at his speckled grey and white whiskers. We went over to the winning side, is all. Same as we done before. It weren't all me, neither. I put it to my men. So they betrayed me. Is that what you're saying? Why? Did I mistreat the second sons? Did I cheat you on your pay? 
Never that, said Brown Ben. But it's not all about the coin, your high and mightiness. I learned that a long time back at my first battle. Morning after the fight, I was rooting through the dead, looking for the odd bit of plunder, as it were. Came upon this one corpse. Some axeman had taken his whole arm off at the shoulder. He was covered with flies, all crusty, with dried blood. Might be why no one else had touched him, but under them he wore this studded jerkin, looked to be good leather. I figured it might fit me well enough, so I chased away the flies and cut it off him. The damn thing was heavier than it had any right to be, though. Under the lining he'd sewn a fortune in coin. Gold, your worship, sweet yellow gold, enough for any man to live like a lord for the rest of his days. But what good did it do him? There he was, with all his coin lying in the blood and mud with his fucked arm cut off. And that's a lesson, see? Silver's sweet and gold's our mother, but once you're dead, they're worth less than that last shit you take as you lie dying. I told you once, they're old sellswords and there are bold sellswords, but there are no old bold sellswords. My boys didn't care to die, that's all. And when I told them that you couldn't unleash them dragons against the Yunkishman, well... You saw me as defeated, Danny thought. And who am I to say that you were wrong? I understand. She might have ended it there, but she was curious. Enough gold to live like a lord, you said. What did you do with all that wealth? Brown Ben laughed. Fool boy that I was. I told a man I took to be my friend, and he told our sergeant and my brothers in arms, come and relieve me of that burden. Sergeant said I was too young, that I'd only wasted all on whores and such. He let me keep the jerkin, though, he spat. You don't never want to trust a sellsword, milady. I have learned that much. One day I must be sure to thank you for the lesson. Brown Ben's eyes crinkled up. No need. I, I know the sort of thanks you have in mind. He bowed again and moved away. Danny turned to gaze out over her city. Beyond her walls, the yellow tents of the Yunkai stood in orderly rows beside the sea, protected by the ditches their slaves had dug for them. Two armed legions out of New Gis, trained and armed in the same fashion as Unsolid, were encamped across the river to the north. Two more Gascari legions had made camp to the east, choking off the road to the Kaizai Pass. The horse lines and cook fires of the free companies lay to the south. By day, thin plumes of smoke hung against the sky like ragged grey ribbons. By night, distant fires could be seen. Hard by the bay was the abomination, the slave market, at her door. She could not see it now, with the sunset, but she knew that it was there. That just made her angrier. Sir Barriston, she said softly. The white knight appeared at once. Your grace? How much did he hear? Enough. 
He was not wrong. Never trust a thought. Or a queen, thought Danny. Is there some man in the second sons who might be persuaded to remove Brown Ben? As Dario Naharis once removed the other captains of the Storm Crows, the old knight looked uncomfortable. Perhaps I would not know, Your Grace. No, she thought, you are too honest and too honorable. If not, the young Kai employ three other companies. Rogues and cutthroats, scum of a hundred battlefields, Sir Barristan warned, with captains full as treacherous as plum. I'm only a young girl and know little of such things, but it seems to me that we want them to be treacherous. Once, you'll recall, I convinced the second sons and storm crows to join us. If your grace wishes a privy word with Gilo Reagan or the tattered prince, I could bring them up to your apartments. This is not the time. Too many eyes, too many ears. Their absence would be noted, even if you could separate them discreetly from the Yunkai. We must find some quieter way of reaching out to them. Uh, not tonight, but soon. As you command... Uh, though I, I fear this is not a task for which I am well suited. In King's Landing, work of this sort was left to Lord Littlefinger or the Spider. We old knights are simple men, only good for fighting. He patted his sword hilt. Our prisoners, suggested Danny, the Westerosi who came over from the windblown with the three Dornish men, we still have them in cells, do we not? Use them. Free them, you mean? Is that wise? They were sent here to worm their way into your trust, so they might betray your grace at the first chance. Then they failed. I do not trust them. I will never trust them. If truth be told, Danny was forgetting how to trust. We can still use them. One was a woman, Maris. Send her back as a, um, a, a gesture of my regard. If their captain is a clever man, he will understand. The woman is the worst of all. All the better. Danny considered a moment. We should sound out the long lances, too, and the company of the cat. Bloodbeard, Sir Barrison's frown deepened. If it please, Your Grace, we want no part of him. Your Grace is too young to remember the ninepenny kings. But this Bloodbeard is cut from the same savage cloth. There is no honour in him, only hunger for gold, for glory, for blood. You know more of such men than I, sir. If Bloodbeard were truly the most dishonourable and greedy of the sellswords, he might be the easiest to sway, but she was loath to go against Sir Barrison's counsel in such matters. Do as you think best, but do it soon. If his star's peace should break, I want to be ready. I do not trust the slavers. I do not trust my husband. They will turn on us at the first sign of weakness. The young Kai grow weaker as well. The bloody flocks has taken hold amongst the Tolothi, it is said, and spread across the river to the third Giscari legion. The pale mare, Daenerys sighed. Quaith warned me of the pale mare's coming. She told me of the Dornish prince as well. The sun's son. 
she told me much and more, but all in riddles. I cannot rely on plague to save me from my enemies. Set pretty mares free at once. As you command, though, Your Grace, if I may be so bold, there is another road. The Dornish Road, Dennis sighed. The three Dornishmen had been at the feast, as befit Prince Quentin's rank, though Resnick had taken care to seat them as far as possible from her husband. His star did not seem to be of a jealous nature, but no man would be pleased by the presence of a rival suitor near his new bride. Uh, the boy seems pleasant and well-spoken, but Huss Martel is ancient and noble, and has been a leal friend to Huss Tregarian for more than a century, Your Grace. I had the honour of serving with Prince Quentin's great-uncle in your father's seven. Prince Luan was as valiant a brother-in-arms as any man could wish for. Quentin Martel is of the same blood, if it please, Your Grace. It would please me if he had turned up with these fifty thousand swords he speaks of. Instead, he brings two knights and a parchment. Will a parchment shield my people from the Yunkai? If he had come with a fleet, Sunspear has never been a sea power, Your Grace. No. Danny knew enough of Westerosi history to know that. Nemeria had landed ten thousand ships upon Dawn's sandy shores, but when she wed her Dornish prince, she had burned them all and turned her back upon the sea forever. Dorn is too far away. To please this prince, I would need to abandon all my people. You should send him home. Dornishmen are notoriously stubborn, Your Grace. Prince Quentin's forebears fought your own for the better part of two hundred years. He will not go without you. Then he will die here, Daenerys thought, unless there is more to him than I can see. Is he still within? Drinking with his knights. Bring him to me. It is time he met my children. A flicker of doubt passed across the long, solemn face of Barristan Selmy. As you command. Her king was laughing with Yerka Zoyansek and the other Yankish lords. Danny did not think that he would miss her, but just in case, she instructed her handmaids to tell him that she was answering a call of nature, should he inquire after her. Sir Barristan was waiting by the steps with the Dornish prince. Martel's square face was flushed and ruddy. Too much wine, the queen concluded, though he was doing the best to conceal that. Apart from the line of copper suns that ornamented his belt, the Dornishman was plainly dressed. They called him Frog, Danny recalled. She could see why. He was not a handsome man. She smiled. May Prince, it's a long way down. Are you certain that you wish to do this? If it would please your grace. Then come. A pair of unsolid went down the steps before them, bearing torches. Behind came two brazen beasts, one masked as a fish, the other as a hawk. Even here in her own pyramid, on this happy night of peace and celebration, Sir Barristan insisted on keeping guards about her everywhere she went. 
the small company made the long descent in silence, stopping thrice to refresh themselves along the way. The dragon has three heads, Danny said, when they were on the final flight. My marriage need not be the end of all your hopes. I know why you're here. For you, said Quinton, all awkward gallantry. No, said Danny, for fire and blood. One of the elephants trumpeted at them from his stall. An answering roar from below made her flush with sudden heat. Prince Quentin looked up in alarm. The dragons know when she is near, Sir Barrison told him. Every child knows its mother, Danny thought. When the seas go dry and mountains blow in the wind like leaves, they call to me, Come! She took Prince Quentin by the hand and led him to the pit where two of her dragons were confined. Remain outside, Danny told Sir Barristan, as the unsolid were opening the huge iron doors. Prince Quentin will protect me. She drew the Dornish prince inside with her to stand above the pit. The dragons craned their necks around, gazing at them with burning eyes. Viserion had shattered one chain and melted the others. He clung to the roof of the pit like some huge white bat, his claws dug deep into the burnt and crumbling bricks. Rhaegal, still chained, was gnawing on the carcass of a bull. The bones on the floor of the pit were deeper than the last time she had been down here, and the walls and floors were black and grey, more ash than brick. They would not hold much longer, but behind them was only earth and stone. Can dragons tunnel through rock like the fireworms of old Valeria? She hoped not. The Dornish prince had gone as white as milk. I, uh, I had heard that there were three. A drogon is hunting. He did not need to hear the rest. The white one is Viserion. The green is Regal. I named them for my brothers. Her voice echoed off the scorched stone walls. It sounded small, a girl's voice, not the voice of a queen and conqueror, nor the glad voice of a new-made bride. Regal roared in answer, and fire filled the pit, a spear of red and yellow. Viserion replied, his own flames gold and orange. When he flapped his wings, a cloud of grey ash filled the air. Broken chains clanked and clattered about his legs. Quentin Martell jumped back a foot. A crueler woman might have laughed at him, but Danny squeezed his hand and said, They frighten me as well. There is no shame in that. My children have grown wild and angry in the dark. You, uh, you mean to ride them? One of them. All I know of dragons is what my brother told me when I was a girl, and some I read in books, but it is said that even Aegon the Conqueror never dared Mount Vagar or Meraxis, nor did his sisters ride Balerion the Black Dread. Dragons live longer than men, some for hundreds of years, so Balerion had other riders after Aegon died, but no rider ever flew two dragons. Viserion hissed again. Smoke rose between his teeth, 
and deep down in his throat they could see gold fire churning. They are, they are fearsome creatures. They are dragons, Quentin. Danny stood on her toes and kissed him lightly, once on each cheek. And so am I. The young prince swallowed. I, uh, I have the blood of the dragon in me as well, your grace. I can trace my lineage back to the first Daenerys, the Targaryen princess who was sister to King Darren the Good and wife to the Prince of Dorne. He built the water gardens for her. The water gardens? She knew little and less of Dorne or its history, if truth be told. My father's favourite palace. It would please me to show them to you one day. They are all of pink marble, with pools and fountains overlooking the sea. They sound lovely. She drew him away from the pit. He does not belong here. He should never have come. You ought to return there. My court is no safe place for you, I fear. You have more enemies than you know. You made Dario look a fool, and he's not a man to forget such a slight. I have my knights... My sworn shields. Two nights, Dario has five hundred storm crows. And you would do well to beware of my lord husband, too. He seems a mild and pleasant man, I know, but do not be deceived. His star's crown derives from mine, and he commands the allegiance of some of the most fearsome fighters in the world. If one of them should think to win his favor by disposing of a rival... I am a prince of dawn, your grace. I will not run from slaves and sellswords. Then you truly are a fool, Prince Frog. Danny gave her wild children one last lingering look. She could hear the dragon screaming as she led the boy back to the door and see the play of light against the bricks, reflections of their fires. If I look back, I am lost. Sir Barristan will have summoned a pair of sedan chairs to carry us back up to the banquet. But the climb can still be wearisome. Behind them, the great iron doors closed with a resounding clang. Tell me of this other Daenerys. I know less than I should of the history of my father's kingdom. I never had a maester growing up, only a brother. It would be my pleasure, your grace said Quentin. It was well past midnight before the last of their guests took their leave, and Danny retired to her own apartments to join her lord and king. His dar at least was happy, if somewhat drunk. I keep my promises, he told her, as Iri and Jiqui were robing them for bed. You wish for peace, and it is yours. And you wish for blood, and soon enough I must give it to you. Danny thought, but what she said was, I am grateful. The excitement of the day had inflamed her husband's passions. No sooner had her handmaids retired for the night than he tore the robe from her and tumbled her backwards into bed. Danny slid her arms around him and let him have his way. Drunk as he was, she knew he would not be inside her long. Nor was he. Afterward, he nuzzled at her ear and whispered, "'God's grant that we have made a son tonight.'
the words of Miri Mazdur rang in her head. When the sun rises in the west and sets in the east, when the seas go dry and mountains blow in the wind like leaves, when your womb quickens again and you bear a living child, then he will return, and not before. The meaning was plain enough. Carl Drogo was as like to return from the dead as she was to bear a living child. But there are some secrets she could not bring herself to share, even with a husband. So she let his Zoloric keep his hopes. Her noble husband was soon fast asleep. Daenerys could only twist and turn beside him. She wanted to shake him, wake him, make him hold her, kiss her, fuck her again. But even if he did, he would fall back to sleep again afterwards, leaving her alone in the darkness. She wondered what Dario was doing. Was he restless as well? Was he thinking about her? Did he love her, truly? Did he hate her for marrying his daughter? I should never have taken him into my bed. He was only a sellsword, no fit consort for a queen, and yet... I knew that all along, but I did it anyway. My queen, said a soft voice in the darkness. Danny flinched. Who is there? Only Miss Sandy. The naughty scribe moved closer to the bed. This one heard you crying. Crying? I was not crying. Why would I cry? I have my peace. I have my king. I have everything a queen might wish for. He had a bad dream. That was all. As you say, your grace. She bowed and made to go. Stay, said Danny. I do not wish to be alone. His grace is with you, Miss Andre pointed out. His grace is dreaming, but I cannot sleep. On the morrow I must bathe in blood, the price of peace. She smiled wanly and patted the bed. Come, sit, talk with me. If it please you, Miss Andy sat down beside her. What uh, shall we talk of? Home, said Danny. Nath, butterflies and brothers. Tell me of the things that make you happy, the things that make you giggle. All your sweetest memories. Remind me that there is still good in the world. Miss Sandy did her best. She was still talking when Danny finally fell to sleep, to dream queer, half-formed dreams of smoke and fire. The morning came too soon. Theon Day stole upon them just as Stannis had, unseen. Winterfell had been awake for hours, its battlements and towers crammed with men in wool and mail and leather awaiting an attack that never came. By the time the sky began to lighten, the sound of drums had faded away, though war horns were heard thrice more, each time a little closer. And still... The snow fell. A storm will end today, one of the surviving stable boys was insisting loudly. Why, it isn't even winter. Theon would have laughed if he had dared. He remembered tales old Nan had told them 
of storms that rage for forty days and forty nights, for a year, for ten years, storms that buried castles and cities and whole kingdoms under a hundred feet of snow. He sat in the back of the great hall, not far from the horses, watching Abel, Rowan, and a mousy, brown-haired washerwoman called Squirrel attack slabs of stale brown bread fried in bacon grease. Theon broke his own fast with a tankard of dark ale, cloudy with yeast and thick enough to chew on. A few more tankards, and perhaps Abel's plan might not seem quite so mad. Roose Bolton entered, pale-eyed and yawning, accompanied by his plump and pregnant wife, Fat Walder. Several lords and captains had preceded him, amongst them Horsbane Umber, Anus Frey, and Roger Risewell. Farther down the table, Wyman Manderley sat wolfing down sausages and boiled eggs, whilst old Lord Locke beside him spooned gruel into his toothless mouth. Lord Ramsay soon appeared as well, buckling on his sword-belt as he made his way to the front of the hall. His mood is foul this morning, Theon could tell. The drums kept him awake all night, he guessed, or someone has displeased him. One wrong word, an ill-considered look, an ill-timed laugh, any of them could provoke his lordship's wrath and cost a man a strip of skin. Please, my lord, don't look this way. One glance would be all it would take for Ramsay to know everything. He'll see it written on my face. He'll know. He always knows. Theon turned to Abel. This will not work. His voice was pitched so low that even the horses could not have overheard. We will be caught before we leave the castle. Even if we do escape, Lord Ramsay will hunt us down, him and Ben Bones and the girls. Lord Stannis is outside the walls and not far by the sound of it. All we need do is reach him. Abel's fingers danced across the strings of his lute. The singer's beard was brown, though his long hair had largely gone to grey. If the bastard does come after us, he might live long enough to rue it. Think that, Theon thought. Believe that. Tell yourself it's true. Ramsay will use your women as his prey, he told the singer. He'll hunt them down, rape them, and feed their corpses to his dogs. If they lead him a good chase, he may name his next litter of bitches after them. You, he'll flare. Him and Skinner and Damon dance for me. They will make a game of it. You'll be begging them to kill you. He clutched the singer's arm with a maimed hand. You swore you would not let me fall into his hands again. I have your word on it. He needed to hear it again. Abel's word, said Squirrel, strung as oak. Abel himself only shrugged. No matter what, my prince. Up on the dais, Ramsay was arguing with his father. They were too far away for Theon to make out any of the words, but the fear on fat Alder's round pink face spoke volumes. He did hear Wyman Manderley calling for more sausages, and Roger Risewell's laughter at some jape from one-armed Harwood Stout. Theon wondered if he would ever see 
the drowned guard's watery halls, or if his ghost would linger here at Winterfell. Dead is dead. Better dead than reek. If Abel's scheme went awry, Ramsay would make their dying long and hard. He will flay me from head to hill this time, and no amount of begging will end the anguish. No pain Theon had ever known came close to the agony that Skinner could evoke with a little flensing blade. Abel would learn that lesson soon enough. And for what? Jane, her name is Jane, and her eyes are the wrong colour. A mummer playing a part. Lord Bolton knows, and Ramsay, but the rest are blind. Even this bloody bard with his sly smiles. The jape is on you, Abel. You and your murdering horse. You'll die for the wrong girl. He had come this close to telling him the truth when Rowan had delivered him to Abel in the ruins of the burned tower. But at the last instant he had held his tongue. The singer seemed intent on making off with the daughter of Eddard Stark. If he knew that Lord Ramsay's bride was but a steward's whelp, well. The doors of the great hall opened with a crash. A cold wind came swirling through, and a cloud of ice crystals sparkled blue-white in the air. Through it strode Sir Hostine Frey, caked in snow to the waist, a body in his arms. All along the benches, men put down their cups and spoons to turn and gape at the grisly spectacle. The hall grew quiet. Another murder. Snow slid from Sir Hostine's cloaks as he stalked towards the high table, his steps ringing against the floor. A dozen frayed knights and men-at-arms entered behind him. One was a boy Theon knew, Big Walder, the little one, fox-faced and skinny as a stick. His chest and arms and cloak were spattered with blood. The scent of it set the horses to screaming. Dogs slid out from under the tables, sniffing. Men rose from the benches. In the torchlight, the body in Sir Hustin's arms sparkled, armoured in pink frost. The cold outside had frozen his blood. My brother Merritt's son. Hustin Frey lowered the body to the floor before the dais. Butchered, like a hug, and shoved beneath a snowbank. A boy. Little Walder, thought Theon. The big one. He glanced at Rowan. There are six of them, he remembered. Any of them could have done this. But the washerwoman felt his eyes. This was no work of ours, she said. Be quiet, Abel warned her. Lord Ramsay descended from the dais to the dead boy. His father rose more slowly, pale-eyed, still-faced, solemn. This was foul work for once Roose Bolton's voice was loud enough to carry. Where was the body found? Under that ruined keep, my lord, replied Big Walder. The one with the old gargoyles. The boy's gloves were caked with his cousin's blood. I told him not to go out alone, but he said he had to find a man who owed him silver. What man? Ramsay demanded. Give me his name. 
point him out to me, boy, and I will make you a cloak of his skin. He never said, my lord, only that he won the coin at dice. The free boy hesitated. It was some white harbour men who taught dice. I, I couldn't say which ones, but it was them. My lord, boomed Hustin Frey. We know the man who did this, killed this boy and all the rest. Not by his own hand, no. He's too fat and craven to do his own killing. But by his word. He turned to Wyman Manderley. Do you deny it? The Lord of White Harbour bit her sausage in half. I confess, he wiped the grease from his lips with his sleeve. I confess that I know little of this poor boy. Lord Ramsay Squire, was he not? How old was the lad? Nine, on his last name day. So young, said Wyman Manderley, though mayhaps this was a blessing. Had he lived, he would have grown up to be a free. Sir Hustine slammed his foot into the tabletop, knocking it off its trestles, back into Lord Wyman's swollen belly. Cups and platters flew. Sausages scattered everywhere, and a dozen manly men came cursing to their feet. Some grabbed up knives, platters, flagons, anything that might serve as a weapon. Sir Hustine Frey ripped his longsword from its scabbard and leapt towards Wyman Mandley. The Lord of White Harbour tried to jerk away, but the tabletop pinned him to his chair. The blade slashed through three of his four chins in a spray of bright red blood. Lady Walder gave a shriek and clutched at her lord husband's arm. Stop! Bruce Bolton shouted. Stop this madness! His own men rushed forward as the mandalies vaulted over the benches to get at the phrase. One lunged at Sir Hustine with a dagger, but the big knight pivoted and took his arm off at the shoulder. Lord Wyman pushed to his feet only to collapse. Old Lord Locke was shouting for a maester as Manderley flopped on the floor like a clubbed walrus in a spreading pool of blood. Around him dogs fought over sausages. It took two score dreadfort spearmen to part the combatants and put an end to the carnage. By that time, six white harbour men and two freys lay dead upon the floor. A dozen more were wounded, and one of the bastard's boys, Luton, was dying noisily, crying for his mother as he tried to shove a fistful of slimy entrails back through a gaping belly wound. Lord Ramsay silenced him, yanking a spear from one of Steelshank's men and driving it down through Luton's chest. Even then, the rafters still rang with shouts and prayers and curses, the shrieks of terrified horses and the growls of Ramsay's bitches. Steelshank's Walton had to slam the butt of his spear against the floor a dozen times before the hall quieted enough for Roos Bolton to be heard. I see you all want blood, the Lord of the Dreadfort said. Maester Rudry stood beside him, a raven on his arm. The bird's black plumage shone like coal oil in the torchlight. Wet, Theon realized. And in his lordship's hand, a parchment. That will be wet as well. Dark wings, dark words. 
rather than use our swords upon each other, you might try them on Lord Stannis. Lord Bolton unrolled the parchment. His host lies not three days' ride from here, snowbound and starving, and I for one am tired of waiting on his pleasure. Sir Hustine, assemble your knights and men-at-arms by the main gates. As you are so eager for battle, you shall strike our first blow. Lord Wyman, gather your White Harbour men by the east gate. They shall go forth as well. Hustin Frey's sword was red almost to the hilt. Blood spatter speckled his cheeks like freckles. He lowered his blade and said, As my lord commands, but after I deliver you the head of Stannis Baratheon, I mean to finish hacking off Lord Lard's. Four White Harbour knights had formed a ring around Lord Wyman, as Maester Medric laboured over him to staunch his bleeding. First you must needs come through us, sir, said the eldest of them, a hard-faced greybeard whose blood-stained surcoat showed three silvery mermaids upon a violet field. Gladly, one at a time, or all at once, it makes no matter. Enough, roared Lord Ramsay, brandishing his bloody spear. Another threat, and I'll gut you all myself. My lord father has spoken. Save your wrath for the pretender Stannis. Bruce Bolton gave an approving nod. As he says, there will be time enough to fight each other once we are done with Stannis. He turned his head, his pale, cold eyes searching the hall, until they found the barred Abel beside Theon. Singer, he called, come sing us something soothing. Abel bowed. If it please your lordship, Lute in hand, he sauntered to the dais, hopping nimbly over a corpse or two, and seated himself cross-legged on the high table. As he began to play, a sad, soft song that Theon Greyjoy did not recognize, Sir Hustine, Sir Anus, and their fellow phrase turned away to lead their horses from the hall. Rowan grasped Theon's arm. The bass, it must be now. He wrenched free of her touch. By day, we will be seen. The snow will hide us, and yet deaf. Bolton is sending forth his swords. We have to reach King Stannis before they do. But Abel, Abel can fend for himself, murmured Squirrel. This is madness, hopeless, foolish, doomed. Theon drained the last dregs of his ale and rose reluctantly to his feet. Find your sisters. It takes a deal of water to fill my lady's tub. Squirrel slipped away, soft-footed as she always was. Rowan walked Theon from the hall. Since she and her sisters had found him in the godswood, one of them had dogged his every step, never letting him out of sight. They did not trust him. Why should they? I was weak before, and might be weak again. Reek, reek, it rhymes with sneak. Outside the snow still fell. The snowmen, the squires had built, had grown into monstrous giants, ten feet tall and hideously misshapen. White walls rose to either side as he and Rowan made their way to the godswood. The paths between keep and tower and hall had turned into a maze of icy trenches, shoveled out early to keep them clear. 
It was easy to get lost in that frozen labyrinth, but Theon Greyjoy knew every twist and turning. Even the godswood was turning white. A film of ice had formed upon the pool beneath the hot tree, and the face carved into its pale trunk had grown a moustache of little icicles. At this hour, they could not hope to have the old gods to themselves. Rowan pulled Theon away from the Northmen praying before the tree, to a secluded spot back by the barracks wall, beside a pool of warm mud that stank of rotten eggs. Even the mud was icing up about the edges, Theon saw. Winter is coming. Rowan gave him a hard look. You have no right to mouth Lord Eddard's words, not you, not ever, after what you did. You killed a boy as well. That was not us, I told you. Words of wind. They are no better than me. We're just the same. You killed the others. Why not him? Yellow Dick. Stank as bad as you. A pig of a man. And Little Walder was a piglet. Killing him brought the phrase and Mandley's to dagger points. That was cunning. You, not us. Rowan grabbed him by the throat and shoved him back against the barracks wall, her face an inch from his. Say it again, and I will rip your lying tongue out, kinslayer. He smiled through his broken teeth. You won't. You need my tongue to get you past the guards. You need my lies. Rowan spat in his face. Then she let him go and wiped her gloved hands on her legs, as if just touching him had soiled her. Theon knew he should not goad her. In her own way, this one was as dangerous as Skinner or Damon Dance for me. But he was cold and tired. His head was pounding. He had not slept in days. I have done terrible things, betrayed my own, turned my cloak, ordered the death of men who trusted me, but I am no kinslayer. Stark's boys were never brothers to you. I... We know. That was true, but it was not what Theon had meant. They were not my blood, but even so, I never armed them. The two we killed were just some miller's sons. Theon did not want to think about their mother. He had known the miller's wife for years, had even bedded her. Big heavy breasts with wide dark nipples, a sweet mouth and merry laugh. "'Joys that I will never taste again.' "'But there was no use telling Rowan any of that. "'She would never believe his denials "'any more than he believed hers. "'There is blood on my hands, "'but not the blood of brothers,' he said wearily. "'And I've been punished.' "'Not enough,' Rowan turned her back on him. "'Foolish woman. "'He might well be a broken thing, "'but Theon still wore a dagger.' It would have been a simple thing to slide it out and drive it down between her shoulder blades. That much he was still capable of, missing teeth and broken teeth and all. It might even be a kindness, a quicker, cleaner end than the one she and her sisters would face when Ramsay caught them. Reek might have done it, would have done it, in hopes it might please Lord Ramsay. These whores meant to steal Ramsay's bride— Reek could not allow that. But the old guards had known him, had called him Theon. Ironborn! I was ironborn! 
Balon Greyjoy's son, and rightful heir to Pike. The stumps of his fingers itched and twitched, but he kept his dagger in its sheath. When Squirrel returned, the other four were with her, gaunt grey-haired Myrtle, Willow Witch-Eye with her long black braid, Frenya of the thick waist and enormous breasts, Holly with her knife, clad as serving girls in layers of drab grey rough spartan. They wore brown woolen cloaks lined with white rabbit fur. No swords, Theon saw. No axes, no hammers, no weapons but knives. Holly's cloak was fastened with a silver clasp, and Frenya had a girdle of hempen rope wound about her middle, from her hips to breast. It made her look even more massive than she was. Myrtle had servants' garb for Rowan. The guards are crawling with fools, she warned them. They mean to ride out. Kneelers, said Willow, with a snort of contempt. Their lordly lord spoke. They must obey. They're going to die, chirped Holly, happily. Them and us, said Theon. Even if we do get past the guards, how do you mean to get Lady Arya out? Holly smiled. Six women go in, six come out. Who looks at serving girls? We're dressed to start girl up as Squirrel. Theon glanced at Squirrel. They are almost of a size. It might work. And how does Squirrel get out? Squirrel answered for herself. Out a window and straight down to the godswood. I was twelve the first time my brother took me raiding south of your wall. That's where I got my name. My brother said I looked like a squirrel running up a tree. I've done that wall six times since, over and back again. I think I can climb down some stone tower. Happy turn cloak? Rowan asked. Let's be about it. Winterfell's cavernous kitchen occupied a building all its own, set well apart from the castle's main halls and keeps in case of fire. Inside, the smells changed hour by hour. An ever-changing perfume of roast meats, leeks and onions, fresh-baked bread. Bruce Bolton had posted guards at the kitchen door. With so many mouths to feed, every scrap of food was precious. Even the cooks and potboys were watched constantly. But the guards knew Reek. They liked to taunt him when he came to fetch hot water for Lady Arya's bath. None of them dared go further than that, though. Reek was known to be Lord Ramsay's pet. The Prince of Stink is come for some hot water, one guard announced when Theon and his serving girls appeared before him. He pushed the door open for them. Quick now! "'Before all that sweet warm air escapes!' "'Within, Theon grabbed a passing potboy by the arm. "'Hot water for me lady boy,' he commanded. Six pails full, and see that it's good and hot. "'Lord Ramsay wants her pink and clean.' "'Aye, my lord,' the boy said. "'At once, my lord.' "'At once took longer than Theon would have liked.' None of the big kettles was clean, so the pot-boy had to scrub one out before filling it with water. Then it seemed to take forever to come to a rolling boil, and twice forever to fill six wooden pails. 
All the while, Abel's women waited, their faces shadowed by their cowls. They are doing it all wrong. Real serving girls were always teasing the buttboys, flirting with the cooks, wheedling a taste of this, a bite of that. Rowan and her scheming sisters did not want to attract notice, but their sullen silence soon had the guards giving them queer looks. "'Where's Maisie and Jez and t'other girls?' one asked the young. "'The usual ones.' "'Lady Aria was displeased with them,' he lied. "'Her water was cold before it reached the tub last time.' The hot water filled the air with clouds of steam, melting the snowflakes as they came drifting down. Back through the maze of ice-walled trenches went the procession. With every slushing step the water cooled. The passages were clogged with troops— Armoured knights in woolen surcoats and fur cloaks, men-at-arms with spears across their shoulders, archers carrying unstrung bows and sheaves of arrows, free-riders, grooms leading war-horses. The frame-men wore the badge of the two towers. Those from White Harbour displayed mermen and triton. They shouldered through the storm in opposite directions and eyed each other warily as they passed but no swords were drawn. Not here. It may be different out there in the woods. Half a dozen seasoned Dreadfort men guarded the doors of the great keep. Another bloody bath, said the sergeant when he saw the pails of steaming water. He had his hands tucked up into his armpits against the cold. She had a bath last night. How dirty can one woman get in her own bed? dirtier than you know, when you share that bed with Ramsay, Theon thought, remembering the wedding night and the things that he and Jane had been made to do. Lord Ramsay's command. Get in there, then, before the water freezes, the sergeant said. Two of the guards pushed open the double doors. The entryway was nigh as cold as the air outside. Holly kicked snow from her boots and lowered the hood of her cloak. I thought that would be harder. Her breath frosted the air. There are more guards upstairs at my lord's bedchamber, Theon warned her. Ramsay's men. He dare not call them the bastard's boys, not here. You never knew who might be listening. Keep your heads down and your hoods up. Do as he says, Ollie, Rowan said. There's someone know your face. We don't need that trouble. Theon led the way up the stairs. I have climbed these steps a thousand times before. As a boy, he would run up. Descending, he would take the steps three at a time, leaping. Once he leapt right into old Nan and knocked her to the floor. That earned him the worst thrashing he ever had at Winterfell, though it was almost tender compared to the beatings his brothers used to give him back on Pike. He and Rob had fought many a heroic battle on these steps, slashing at one another with wooden swords. Good training, that. It brought home how hard it was to fight your way up a spiral stair against determined opposition. Sir Roderick liked to say that one good man could hold a hundred fighting down. That was long ago, though. They were all dead now. Jory, old Sir Roderick, Lord Eddard, Harwin, and Holland, 
Cain and Desmond and Fat Tom, Alan with his dreams of knighthood, Micken, who had given him his first real sword, even old Nan, like as not, and Rob, Rob, who had been more a brother to Theon than any son born of Balin Greyjoy's loins, murdered at a red wedding, butchered by the phrase, I should have been with him. Where was I? I should have died with him. Theon stopped so suddenly that Willow almost ploughed into his back. The door to Ramsay's bedchamber was before him, and guarding it were two of the bastard's boys, Sir Allen and Grunt. The old guards must wish us well. Grunt had no tongue, and Sir Allen had no wits, Lord Ramsay liked to say. One was brutal, the other mean but both had spent most of their lives in service at the Dreadfort. They did as they were told. I have hot water for the Lady Arya, Theon told them. Try a wash yourself, Reek, said Sir Alan. You smell like horse piss. Grunt grunted in agreement, or perhaps that noise was meant to be a laugh. But Alan unlocked the door to the bedchamber, and Theon waved the women through. No day had dawned inside this room. Shadows covered all. One last log crackled feebly amongst the dying embers in the hearth, and a candle flickered on the table beside a rumpled, empty bed. The girl is gone, Theon thought. She has thrown herself out a window in despair. But the windows here were shuttered against the storm, sealed up by crusts of blown snow, and frost. Where is she? Holly asked. Her sisters emptied their pails into the big round wooden tub. Frenya shut the chamber door and put her back against it. Where is she? Holly said again. Outside a horn was blowing. A trumpet, the phrase, assembling for battle. Theon could feel an itching in his missing fingers. Then he saw her. She was huddled in the darkest corner of the bedchamber, on the floor, curled up in a ball beneath a pile of wolf-skins. Theon might never have spotted her but for the way she trembled. Jane had pulled the furs up over herself to hide. From us? Or was she expecting a lord husband? The thought that Ramsay might be coming made him want to scream. My lady! Theon could not bring himself to call her Arya, and dare not call her Jane. No need to hide. These are friends. The first stirred, and I had peered out, shining with tears. Dark, too dark, a brown eye. Theon? Lady Arya? Rowan moved closer. You must come with us, and quickly. We've come to take you to your brother. Brother? The girl's face emerged from underneath the wolfskins. I... I have no brothers. She has forgotten who she is. She has forgotten her name. That's so, said Theon. But you had brothers once. Three of them. Rob and Bran and Rickon. They're dead. I have no brothers now. You have a half-brother, Rowan said. Lord Crow he is. Jon Snow... 
We'll take you to him, but you must come at once. Jane pulled her wolfskins up to her chin. No, this is some trick. It's him. It's my, my lord, my sweet lord. He sent you. This is just some test to make sure that I love him. I do, I do. I, I love him more than anything. A tear ran down her cheek. Tell him, you tell him. I'll do what he wants, whatever he wants, with him or, or, or with the dog or, please. He doesn't need to cut my feet off. I won't try to run away, not ever. I'll give him sons. I swear it. I swear it. Rowan whistled softly. God's curse the man. I'm a good girl, Jane whimpered. They trained me. Willow scowled. Someone stop her crying. That guard was mute, not deaf. They're going to hear. Get her up, turn cloak. Holly had her knife in hand. Get her up, or I will. We have to go. Get that little cunt up on her feet and shake some courage into her. And if she screams, said Rowan. We are all dead, Theon thought. I told them this was folly, but none of them would listen. Abel had doomed them. All singers were half mad. In songs the hero always saved the maiden from the monster's castle. But life was not a song. No more than Jane was Arya Stark. Her eyes are the wrong colour. And there are no heroes here, only whores. Even so, he knelt beside her, pulled down the furs, touched her cheek. You know me. I'm Theon. You remember? I know you too. I know your name. My name? She shook her head. My name, it, it... He put a finger to her lips. We can talk about that later. You need to be quiet now. Come with us, with me. We will take you away from here, away from him. Her eyes widened. Please, she whispered. Oh, please. Theon slipped his hand through hers. The stumps of his lost fingers tingled as he drew the girl to her feet. The wolfskins fell away from her. Underneath them, she was naked, her small pale breasts covered with teeth marks. He heard one of the women suck in her breath. Rowan thrust a bundle of clothes into his hands. Get her dressed. It's cold outside. Squirrel had stripped down to her small clothes and was rooting through a carved cedar chest in search of something warmer. In the end, she settled for one of Lord Ramsay's quilted doublets and a well-worn pair of breeches that flapped about her legs like a ship's sails in a storm. With Rowan's help, Theon got Jane Poole into Squirrel's clothes. If the gods are good and the gods are blind, she may pass. Now we are going out and down the steps, Theon told the girl. Keep your head down and your hood up. Follow Holly. Don't run, don't cry, don't speak. Don't look anyone in the eye. Stay close to me, Jane said. Don't leave me. I will be right beside you, Theon promised, as Squirrel slipped into Lady Arya's bed and pulled the blanket up. Frenya pulled open the bedchamber door. You give her a good wash, Reek, asked Sir Alum as they emerged. Grunt gave Willow's breast a squeeze as she went by. They were fortunate in his choice. If the man had touched Jane, she might have screamed. 
then Holly would have opened his throat for him with a knife hidden up her sleeve. Willow simply twisted away and passed him. For a moment Theon felt almost giddy. They never looked, they never saw. We walked the girl right by them. But on the steps the fear returned. What if they met Skinner, or Damon Dance for me, or Steel Shanks Walton, or Ramsay himself? God save me, not Ramsay, anyone but him. What use was it to smuggle the girl out of her bedchamber? They were still inside the castle, with every gate closed and barred, and the battlements thick with sentries. Like as not, the guards outside the keep would stop them. Holly and her knife would be of small use against six men in mail with swords and spears. But the guards outside were huddled by the doors, backs turned against the icy wind and blown snow. Even the sergeant did not spare them more than a quick glance. Theon felt a stab of pity for him and his men. Ramsay would flay them all when he learned his bride was gone. And what he would do to Grunt and Sir Alan did not bear thinking about. Not ten yards from the door, Rowan dropped her empty pail, and her sisters did likewise. The great keep was already lost to sight behind them. The yard was a white wilderness, full of half-heard sounds that echoed strangely amidst the storm. The icy trenches rose around them, knee-high, then waist-high, then higher than their heads. They were in the heart of Winterfell, with the castle all around them but no sign of it could be seen. They might have easily been lost amidst the land of always winter, a thousand leagues beyond the wall. It's cold, Jane Poole whimpered as she stumbled along at Theon's side. And soon to be colder. Beyond the castle walls, winter was waiting with its icy teeth. If we get that far. This way, he said, when they came to a junction where three trenches crossed. Frenya, Holly, go with them, Rowan said. We will be along with Abel. Do not wait for us. And with that, she whirled and plunged into the snow toward the great hall. Willow and Myrtle hurried after her, cloaks snapping in the wind. Madder and madder, thought Theon Greyjoy. Escape had seemed unlikely with all six of Abel's women. With only two, it seemed impossible. But they had gone too far to return the girl to her bedchamber and pretend none of this had ever happened. Instead, he took Jane by the arm and drew her down the pathway to the battlement's gate. Only a half-gate, he reminded himself. Even if the guards let us pass, there is no way through the outer wall. On other nights, the guards had allowed Theon through, but all those times he'd come alone. He would not pass so easily, with three serving girls in tow, and if the guards looked beneath Jane's hood and recognized Lord Ramsay's bride, the passage twisted to the left. There before them, behind a veil of falling snow, yawned the battleman's gate, flanked by a pair of guards. In their wool and fur and leather, they looked as big as bears, the spears they held were eight feet tall. "'Who goes there?' one called out. Theon did not recognize the voice, 
Most of the man's features were covered by the scarf about his face. Only his eyes could be seen. Reek, is that you? Yes, he meant to say. Instead, he heard himself reply, Theon Greyjoy, I, I have brought some women for you. You poor boys must be freezing, said Holly. Here, let me warm you up. She slipped past the guard's spear point and reached up to his face, pulling loose the half-frozen scarf to plant a kiss upon his mouth, and as their lips touched, her blade slid through the meat of his neck, just below the ear. Theon saw the man's eyes widen. There was blood on Holly's lips as she stepped back, and blood dribbling from his mouth as he fell. The second guard was still gaping in confusion when Frenier grabbed the shaft of his spear. They struggled for a moment, tugging, till the woman wrenched the weapon from his fingers and clouted him across the temple with its butt. As he stumbled backwards, she spun the spear around and drove its point through his belly with a grunt. Jane Poole let out a shrill high scream. Oh, bloody shit, said Holly. That will bring the kneelers down on us, and no mistake. Run! Theon clapped one hand around Jane's mouth, grabbed her about the waist with the other, and pulled her past the dead and dying guards, through the gate and over the frozen moat. And perhaps the old guards were still watching over them. The drawbridge had been left down to allow Winterfell's defenders to cross to and from the outer battlements more quickly. From behind them came alarms and the sound of running feet, then the blast of a trumpet from the ramparts of the inner wall. On the drawbridge, Frenier stopped and turned. Go on! I will hold the kneelers here! The bloody spear was still clutched in her big hands. Theon was staggering by the time he reached the foot of the stair. He slung the girl over his shoulder and began to climb. Jane had ceased to struggle by then, and she was such a little thing besides. But the steps were slick with ice beneath soft powdery snow, and halfway up he lost his footing and went down hard on one knee. The pain was so bad he almost lost the girl, and for half a heartbeat he feared this was as far as he would go. But Holly pulled him back onto his feet, and between the two of them they finally got Jane up to the battlements. As he leaned up against the Merlin, breathing hard, Theon could hear the shouting from below, where Frenier was fighting half a dozen guardsmen in the snow. "'Which way?' he shouted Holly. "'Where do we go now? How do we get out?' The fury on Holly's face turned to horror. "'Oh, fuck me bloody, the rope!' She gave a hysterical laugh. Frenya has the rope!' Then she grunted and grabbed her stomach. A quarrel had sprouted from her gut. When she wrapped a hand around it, blood leaked through her fingers. "'Kneelers! On the inner wall!' she gasped, before a second shaft appeared between her breasts. Holly grabbed for the nearest merlon and fell. The snow that she'd knocked loose buried her with a soft thump. Shouts rang out from their left. Jane Poole was staring down at Holly as the snowy blanket over her turned from white to red. On the inner wall, the crossbowman would be reloading, Theon knew. He started right, but there were men coming from that direction too, racing toward them with swords in hand. 
Far off to the north, he heard a war horn sound. Stannis, he thought wildly. Stannis is our only hope. If we can reach him. The wind was howling, and he and the girl were trapped. The crossbow snapped. A bolt passed within a foot of him, shattering the crust of frozen snow that had plugged the closest crenel of Abel, Rowan, Squirrel, and the others there was no sign. He and the girl were alone. If they take us alive, they will deliver us to Ramsay. Theon grabbed Jane about the waist and jumped. Daenerys The sky was a merciless blue, without a wisp of cloud in sight. Ah, the bricks will soon be baking in the sun, thought Danny. Down on the sands, the fighters will feel the heat through the soles of their sandals. Jiqui slipped Danny's silk robe from her shoulders, and Eri helped her into her bathing pool. The light of the rising sun shimmered on the water, broken by the shadow of the persimmon tree. Even if the pits must open, must your grace go yourself? asked Miss Sandy, as she was washing the Queen's hair. Half of Mirin will be there to see me, gentle heart. Your grace, said Miss Sandy, this one begs leave to say that half of Mirin will be there to watch men bleed and die. She is not wrong, the Queen knew, but it makes no matter. Soon Danny was as clean as she was ever going to be. She pushed herself to her feet, splashing softly. Water ran down her legs and beaded on her breasts. The sun was climbing up the sky, and her people would soon be gathering. She would rather have drifted in the fragrant pool all day, eating ice fruit off silver trays, and dreaming of a house with a red door. But a queen belongs to her people, not to herself. Jiqui brought a soft towel to pat her dry. Khaleesi, which tokar will you want today? asked Iri. The yellow silk. The queen of the rabbits could not be seen without her floppy ears. The yellow silk was light and cool, and it would be blistering down in the pit. The red sands will burn the souls of those about today. And over it, the long red veils. The veils would keep the wind from blowing sand into her mouth. And the red will hide any blood spatters. Ajikwe brushed Danny's hair, and Iri painted the queen's nails. They chatted happily about the day's matches. Miss Sandy reemerged. Your grace, the king bids you join him when you are dressed, and Prince Quinton has come with his Dornish men. They beg a word, if that should please you. Little about this day shall please me. Uh, some other day. At the base of the Great Pyramid, Sir Barristan awaited them beside an ornate open palanquin, surrounded by brazen beasts. Sir Grandfather, Danny thought. Despite his age, he looked tall and handsome in the armor that she had given him. I would be happier if you had unsolid guards about you today, Your Grace, the old knight said, as his da went to greet his cousin. Half of these brazen beasts 
are untried freedmen, and the other half are mirrorneys of doubtful loyalty, he left unsaid. Selmy mistrusted all the mirrorneys, even shavebates. And untried they shall remain unless we try them. A mask can hide many things, Your Grace. Is the man behind the owl mask the same owl who guarded you yesterday and the day before? How can we know? How should Marian ever come to trust the brazen beasts if I do not? There are good brave men beneath those masks. I put my life into their hands. Danny smiled for him. You fret too much, sir. I will have you beside me. What other protection do I need? I am one old man, Your Grace. Strong Belwas will be with me as well. As you say, Sir Barristan lowered his voice. Your Grace, we set the woman Meris free as you commanded. Before she went, she asked to speak with you. I met with her instead. She claims this tattered prince meant to bring the windblown over to your cause from the beginning, that he sent her here to treat with you secretly, but the Dornish men unmasked them and betrayed them before she could make her own approach. Treachery on treachery, the Queen thought wearily. Is there no end to it? How much of this do you believe, sir? Little and less, Your Grace, but those were her words. Will they come over to us, if need be? She says they will, but for a price. Pay it. Marian needed iron, not gold. The tattered prince will want more than coin, Your Grace. Mary says that he wants Pentos. Pentos? Her eyes narrowed. How can I give him Pentos? It's half a world away. He would be willing to wait, the woman Maris suggested, until we march for Westeros. And if I never march for Westeros, Pentos belongs to the Pentoshi, and Magister Illyrio is in Pentos, he who arranged my marriage to Carl Drogo and gave me my dragon's eggs, who sent me you and Belwas and Grolio. I owe him much and more. I will not repay that debt by giving his city to some sellsword. No. Sir Barristan inclined his head. Your grace is wise. Have you ever seen such an auspicious day, my love? His Zoloric commented when she rejoined him. He helped Danny up onto the palanquin, where two tall thrones stood side by side. Auspicious for you, perhaps, less so for those who must die before the sun goes down. All men must die, said Hisdar, but not all can die in glory, with the cheers of the city ringing in their ears. He lifted a hand to the soldiers on the doors. Open! The plaza that fronted on her pyramid was paved with bricks of many colours, and the heat rose from them in shimmering waves. People swarmed everywhere. Some rode litters or sedan chairs, some forked donkeys, many were afoot. Nine of every ten were moving westward, down the broad brick thoroughfare to Dasnik's pit. When they caught sight of the palanquin emerging from the pyramid, a cheer went up from those nearest and spread across the plaza. How queer, 
the Queen thought. They cheer me. On the same plaza where I once impaled 163 great masters. A great drum led the royal procession to clear its way through the streets. Between each beat, a shave-pate herald in a shirt of polished copper discs cried for the crowd to part. Boom! They come! Boom! Make way! Boom! The Queen! Boom! The King! Boom! Behind the drum marched brazen beasts, four abreast. Some carried cudgels, others staves. All wore pleated skirts, leathern sandals, and patchwork cloaks sewn from squares of many colours to echo the many-coloured bricks of Merdin. Their masks gleamed in the sun. Boars and bulls, hawks and herons, lions and tigers and bears, forked-tongued serpents, and hideous basilisks. Strong Belwas, who had no love for horses, walked in front of them in his studded vest, his scarred brown belly jiggling with every step. Iri and Jaqui followed a horse, with Argo and Ricaro, then Resnick in an ornate sedan chair with an awning to keep the sun off his head. Sir Barristan Selmy rode at Danny's side, his armour flashing in the sun. A long cloak flowed from his shoulders, bleached as white as bone. On his left arm was a large white shield. A little farther back was Quentin Martell, the Dornish prince, with his two companions. The column crept slowly down the long brick street. Boom! They come! Boom! Our queen! Our king! Boom! Make way! Danny could hear her handmaids arguing behind her, debating who was going to win the day's final match. Jiqui favoured the gigantic Gogor, who looked more bull than man, even to the bronze ring in his nose. Iri insisted that Bellaquo Bonebreaker's flail would prove the giant's undoing. My handmaids are Dothraki, she told herself. Death rides with every Kalasar. The day she wed Khal Drogo, the Arax had flashed at her wedding feast, and men had died whilst others drank and mated. Life and death went hand in hand amongst the horse lords, and a sprinkling of blood was thought to bless a marriage. Her new marriage would soon be drenched in blood. How blessed it would be! Boom! 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 came the drumbeats, faster than before, suddenly angry and impatient. Sir Barristan drew his sword as the column ground to an abrupt halt, between the pink and white pyramid of Pal and the green and black of Nakhan. Danny turned. Why are we stopped? His dar stood. The way is blocked. A palanquin lay overturned athwart their way. One of its bearers had collapsed to the bricks, overcome by heat. Help that man, Danny commanded. Get him off the street before he's stepped on, and give him food and water. He looks as though he has not eaten in a fortnight. Sir Barristan glanced uneasily to left and right. Gascari faces were visible on the terraces, looking down with cool and unsympathetic eyes. Your Grace, I do not like this halt. This may be some trap. The sons of the harpy have been tamed. 
declared Hisdar Zolorek. Why should they seek to harm my queen, when she has taken me for her king and consort? Now help that man, as my sweet queen has commanded. He took Danny by the hand and smiled. The brazen beasts did as they were bid. Danny watched them at their work. Those bearers were slaves before I came. I made them free. Yet that palanquin is no lighter. True, said Hisdar, but those men are paid to bear its weight now. Before you came, that man who fell would have had an overseer standing over him, stripping the skin off his back with a whip. Instead, he is being given aid. It was true. A brazen beast in a boar mask had offered the litter-bearer a skin of water. I suppose I must be thankful for small victories, the queen said. One step, then the next, and soon we shall be running. Together we shall make a new marine. The street ahead had finally cleared. Shall we continue on? What could she do but not? One step, then the next. But where is it I'm going? At the gates of Desnak's pit, two towering bronze warriors stood locked in mortal combat. One wielded a sword, the other an axe. The sculptor had depicted them in the act of killing one another, their blades and bodies forming an archway overhead. The mortal art, thought Danny. She had seen the fighting pits many times from her terrace. The small ones dotted the face of Mirian like pockmarks. The larger were weeping sores, red and raw. None compared to this one, though. Strong Belwas and Sir Barristan fell in to either side as she and her lord husband passed beneath the bronzes to emerge at the top of a great brick bowl ringed by descending tiers of benches, each a different colour. His Lorek led her down, through black, purple, blue, green, white, yellow, and orange to the red, where the scarlet bricks took the colour of the sands below. Around them, peddlers were selling dog sausages, roast onions, and unborn poppies on a stick. But Danny had no need of such. Hisdar had stocked their box with flagons of chilled wine and sweet water, with figs, dates, melons, and pomegranates, with pecans and peppers and a big bowl of honeyed locusts. Strong Bell was bellowed, Locusts! as he seized the bowl and began to crunch them by the handful. Those are very tasty, advised Hisdar. You ought to try a few yourself, my love. They are rolled in spice before the honey, so they are sweet and hot at once. That explains the way Belwas is sweating, Danny said. I believe I will content myself with figs and dates. Across the pit, the graces sat in flowing robes of many colours, clustered around the austere figure of Galazo Galari, who alone amongst them wore the green. The great masters of Mirin occupied the red and orange benches. The women were veiled, and the men had brushed and lacquered their hair into horns and hands and spikes. Hisdar's kin of the ancient line of Lorak seemed to favour tokars of purple and indigo and lilac, whilst those of Pal 
were striped in pink and white. The envoys from Yunkai were all in yellow and filled the box beside the kings, each of them with his slaves and servants. Miranese of lesser birth crowded the upper tiers, more distant from the carnage. The black and purple benches, highest and most distant from the sand, were crowded with freedmen and other common folk. The sail swords had been placed up there as well, Daenerys saw, their captains seated right amongst the common soldiers. She spied Bran Ben's weathered face and Bloodbeard's fiery red whiskers and long braids. Her lord husband stood and raised his hands. Great masters, my queen has come this day to show her love for you, her people. By her grace and with her leave, I give you now your mortal lot, Mirin. Let Queen Daenerys hear your love. Ten thousand throats roared out their thanks, then twenty thousand, then all. They did not call her name, which few of them could pronounce. Mother, they cried instead. In the old dead time of Gis, the word was Mysa. They stamped their feet and slapped their bellies and shouted, Mysa, 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 until the whole pit seemed to tremble. Danny let the sound wash over her. I am not your mother, she might have shouted back. I am the mother of your slaves, of every boy who ever died upon these sands whilst you gorged on honeyed locusts. Behind her, Resnick leaned in to whisper in her ear, Magnificence! Hear how they love you! No, she knew. They love their mortal art. When the cheers began to ebb, she allowed herself to sit. Their box was in the shade, but her head was pounding. Jigre, she called. Sweet water, if you would. My throat is very dry. Cars will have the honour of the day's first kill, his daughter told her. There has never been a better fighter. Strong Belwas was better, insisted Strong Belwas. Cars was Miranese, of humble birth, a tall man with a brush of stiff red-black hair running down the centre of his head. His foe was an ebon-skinned spearman from the Summer Isles, whose thrusts kept Kras at bay for a time. But once he slipped inside the spear with his short sword, only butchery remained. After it was done, Kras cut the heart from the black man, raised it above his head, red and dripping, and took a bite from it. Kras believes the hearts of brave men make him stronger, said his star. Jiqui murmured her approval. Danny had once eaten a stallion's heart to give strength to her unborn son. But that had not saved Rago when the Magi murdered him in her womb. Three treasons shall you know. She was the first, Jorah was the second, Brown Ben Plum the third. Was she done with betrayals? Ah, said Hezdar, pleased. Now comes the spotted cat. See how he moves, my queen, a poem on two feet. The foe Hisdar had found for the walking poem was as tall as Gogor and as broad as Belwas, but slow. They were fighting six feet from Danny's box 
when the spotted cat hamstrung him. As the man stumbled to his knees, the cat put a foot on his back and a hand round his head and opened his throat from ear to ear. The red sands drank his blood, the wind his final words. The crowd screamed its approval. Bad fighting, good dying, said Strong Belwas. Strong Belwas hates it when they scream. He had finished all the hunted locusts. He gave a belch and took a swig of wine. Pale Carthine, black summer islanders, copper-skinned Dothraki, Tyroshi with blue beards, Lemmen, Jogus Nye, Sullen Bravasi, brindle-skinned half-men from the jungles of Sothoris. From the ends of the world they came to die in Dasnak's pit. This one shows much promise, my sweet, Hisdar said of a Lycene youth with long blond hair that fluttered in the wind. But his foe grabbed a handful of that hair, pulled the boy off balance, and gutted him. In death he looked even younger than he had with blade in hand. A boy, said Danny. He was only a boy. Six and ten, his doll insisted, a man grown, who freely chose to risk his life for gold and glory. No children die today in Dasnex, as my gentle queen in her wisdom has decreed. Another small victory. Perhaps I cannot make my people good, she told herself, but I should at least try to make them a little less bad. Daenerys would have prohibited contests between women as well, but Barsena Blackhair protested that she had as much right to risk her life as any man. The queen had also wished to forbid the follies. Comic combats where cripples, dwarfs, and crones had at one another with cleavers, torches, and hammers. The more inept the fighters, the funnier the folly, it was thought. But his star said his people would love her more if she laughed with them, and argued that without such frolics, the cripples, dwarfs, and crones would starve. So Danny had relented. It had been the custom to sentence criminals to the pits. That practice, she agreed, might resume, but only for certain crimes. Murderers and rapers may be forced to fight, and all those who persist in slaving, but not thieves or debtors. Beasts were still allowed, though. Danny watched an elephant make short work of a pack of six red wolves. Next a bull was set against a bear in a bloody battle that left both animals torn and dying. The flesh is not wasted, said Hisdar. The butchers use the carcasses to make a healthful stew for the hungry. Any man who presents himself at the gates of fate may have a bowl. A good law, Danny said. You have so few of them. We must make certain that this tradition is continued. After the beast fights came a mock battle, pitting six men on foot against six horsemen, the former armed with shields and long swords, the latter with Dothraki arracs. The mock knights were clad in male hauberks, whilst the mock Dothraki wore no armor. At first the riders seemed to have the advantage, riding down two of their foes and slashing the air for the third. But then the surviving knights began to attack the horses, 
and one by one the riders were unmounted and slain, to Jiqui's great disgust. That was no true callous, sir, she said. These carcasses are not destined for your healthful stew, I would hope, Danny said, as the slain were being removed. The horses, yes, said Hisdar. The men, no. Horse meat and onions make you strong, said Belwas. The battle was followed by the day's first folly, a tilt between a pair of jousting dwarfs presented by one of the Yunkish lords that Hisdar had invited to the games. One rode a hound, the other a sow. Their wooden armor had been freshly painted, so one bore the stag of the usurper Robert Baratheon, the other the golden lion of House Lannister. That was for her sake plainly. Their antics soon had Belwas snorting laughter, though Danny's smile was faint and forced. When the dwarf in red tumbled from the saddle and began to chase his sow across the sands, whilst the dwarf on the dog galloped after him, whapping at his buttocks with a wooden sword, she said, This is sweet and silly, but... Be patient, my sweet, said Hisdar. They are about to loose the lions. Daenerys gave him a quizzical look. L lions? Three of them. The dwarfs will not expect them. She frowned. The dwarfs have wooden swords, wooden armor. How do you expect them to fight lions? Badly, said Hisdar. Though perhaps they will surprise us. More like they will shriek and run about and try to climb out of the pit. That's what makes this a folly. Danny was not pleased. I forbid it. A gentle queen, you do not want to disappoint your people. You swore to me that the fighters would be grown men who had freely consented to risk their lives for gold and honor. These dwarfs do not consent to battle lions with wooden swords. You will stop it now. The king's mouth tightened. For a heartbeat, Danny thought she saw a flash of anger in those placid eyes. As you command, his dog beckoned to his pitmaster. No lions, he said, when the man trotted over, whip in hand. Not one, magnificence. Where is the funny net? My queen has spoken. The dwarfs will not be harmed. The crowd will not like it. Then bring on Barsena. That should appease them. Your worship knows best. The pitmaster snapped his whip and shouted out commands. The dwarfs were herded off, pig and dog and all, as the spectators hissed their disapproval and pelted them with stones and rotten fruit. A roar went up as Barsena Blackhair strode onto the sands. Naked, save for breech-clout and sandals, a tall, dark woman of some thirty years. She moved with the feral grace of a panther. Barsena is much loved, Hisdar said, as the sound swelled to fill the pit. The bravest woman I've ever seen. Strong Belwas said, Fighting girls is not so brave. Fighting Strong Belwas would be brave. Today she fights a boar, said Hesdar. I thought, Danny, because you could not find a woman to face her, no matter how plump the purse, and not with a wooden sword, it would seem. 
The boar was a huge beast, with tusks as long as a man's forearm, and small eyes that swam with rage. She wondered whether the boar that had killed Robert Baratheon had looked as fierce. A terrible creature, and a terrible death. For a heartbeat, she felt almost sorry for the usurper. Barsinna is very quick,' Resdak said. "'She will dance with the boar, magnificence, "'and slice him when he passes near her. "'He will be a wash in blood before he falls. "'You shall see.' "'It began just as he said. "'The boar charged. "'Barsena spun aside. "'Her blade flashed silver in the sun. "'She needs a spear,' Sir Barristan said as Barsena vaulted over the beast's second charge. "'There is no way to fight a boar!' He sounded like someone's fussy old grandsire, just as Dario was always saying. Barsena's blade was running red, but the boar soon stopped. "'He is smarter than a bull,' Danny realized. "'He will not charge again.' Barsena came to the same realization. Shouting, she edged closer to the boar, tossing her knife from hand to hand. When the beast backed away, she cursed and slashed at his snout, trying to provoke him, and succeeding. This time her leap came an instant too late, and a tusk ripped her left leg open from knee to crotch. A moan went up from thirty thousand throats. Clutching at her torn leg, Barsena dropped her knife and tried to hobble off. But before she had gone two feet, the boar was on her once again. Danny turned her face away. Was that brave enough? She asked strong Belwas, as a scream rang out across the sand. Fighting pigs is brave, but is not brave to scream so loud. It hurt strong Belwas in the ears. The eunuch rubbed his swollen stomach, crisscrossed with old white scars. It makes Chung Belwas sick in his belly, too. The boar buried his snout in Barsena's belly and began rooting out her entrails. The smell was more than the queen could stand. The heat, the flies, the shouts from the crowd. I, I cannot breathe. She lifted her veil and let it flutter away. She took a tow car off as well. The pearls rattled softly against one another as she unwound the silk. Khaleesi, Arias, what are you doing? Taking off my floppy ears. A dozen men with boar spears came trotting out onto the sand to drive the boar away from the corpse and back to his pen. The pitmaster was with them, a long barbed whip in his hand. As he snapped it at the boar, the queen rose. Sir Barristan, will you see me safely back to my garden? His daughter looked confused. There is more to come. A folly. Six old women and three more matches. Bellacro and Gogor. Bellacro will win, Iri declared. It is known. It is not known, Jiqui said. Bellacro will die. One will die or the other will, said Danny. And the one who lives will die some other day. This was a mistake. Strong Belwas ate too many locusts. There was a queasy look on Belwas's broad brown face. Strong Belwas needs milk. 
His da ignored the eunuch. Magnificence, the people of Marine have come to celebrate our union. You heard them cheering you. Do not cast away their love. It was my floppy ears they cheered, not me. Take me from this abattoir, husband. She could hear the boar snorting, the shouts of the spearmen, the crack of the pitmaster's whip. Sweet lady, no, stay only a while longer for the folly and one last match. Close your eyes, no one will see. They will be watching Bellaquo and Gogor. This is no time for... A shadow rippled across his face. The tumult and the shouting died. Ten thousand voices stilled. Every eye turned skyward. A warm wind brushed Danny's cheeks, and above the beating of her heart she heard the sound of wings. Two spearmen dashed for shelter. The pitmaster froze where he stood. The boar went snuffling back to Barsena. Strong Belwas gave a moan, stumbled from his seat, and fell to his knees. Above them all the dragon turned, dark against the sun. His scales were black, his eyes and horns and spinal plates blood-red. Ever the largest of her three, in the wild Drogon had grown larger still. His wings stretched twenty feet from tip to tip, black as jet. He flapped them once as he swept back above the sands, and the sound was like a clap of thunder. The boar raised his head, snorting, and flame engulfed him. Black fire shot with red. Danny felt the wash of heat thirty feet away. The beast's dying scream sounded almost human. Drogon landed on the carcass and sank his claws into the smoking flesh. As he began to feed... He made no distinction between Barsena and the boar. Oh, gods, moaned Resnick, he's eating her. The seneschal covered his mouth. Strong Belwas was retching noisily. A queer look passed across Hisdar's Olorek's long, pale face. Part fear, part lust, part rapture. He licked his lips. Danny could see the pals streaming up the steps clutching their tokars and tripping over the fringes in their haste to be away. Others followed. Some ran, shoving at one another. More stayed in their seats. One man took it on himself to be a hero. He was one of the spearmen, sent out to drive the boar back to his pen. Perhaps he was drunk or mad. Perhaps he had loved Barsena Blackhair from afar, or had heard some whisper of the girl Hosea. Perhaps he was just some common man who wanted bards to sing of him. He darted forward, his boar spear in his hands. Red sand kicked up beneath his heels, and shouts rang out from the seats. Drogon raised his head, blood dripping from his teeth. The hero leapt onto his back and drove the iron spear point down at the base of the dragon's long-scaled neck. Danny and Drogon screamed as one. The hero leaned into his spear, using his weight to twist the point in deeper. Drogon arched upward with a hiss of pain, his tail lashed sideways. She watched his head crane around 
at the end of that long serpentine neck, saw his black wings unfold. The dragon slayer lost his footing and went tumbling to the sand. He was trying to struggle back to his feet when the dragon's teeth closed hard around his forearm. No! was all the man had time to shout. Drogon wrenched his arm from his shoulder and tossed it aside as a dog might toss a rodent in a rat pit. Kill it! his dar Zolorek shouted to the other spearmen. Kill the beast! Sir Barristan held her tightly. Look away, your grace. Let me go! Then he twisted from his grasp. The world seemed to slow as she cleared the parapet. When she landed in the pit, she lost a sandal. Running, she could feel the sand between her toes, hot and rough. Sir Barristan was calling after her. Strong Belwas was still vomiting. She ran faster. The spearmen were running, too. Some were rushing toward the dragon, spears in hand. Others were rushing away, throwing down their weapons as they fled. The hero was jerking on the sand, the bright blood pouring from the ragged stump of his shoulder. His spear remained in Drogon's back, wobbling as the dragon beat his wings. Smoke rose from the wound. As the other spears closed in, the dragon spat fire, bathing two men in black flame. His tail lashed sideways and caught the pitmaster creeping up behind him, breaking him in two. Another attacker stabbed at his eyes until the dragon caught him in his jaws and tore his belly out. The Miranese were screaming, cursing, howling. Danny could hear someone pounding after her. Drogon! she screamed. Drogon! His head turned. Smoke rose between his teeth. His blood was smoking too, where it dripped upon the ground. He beat his wings again, sending up a choking storm of scarlet sand. Danny stumbled into the hot red cloud, coughing. He snapped. No, was all that she had time to say. No, not me. Don't you know me? The black teeth closed inches from her face. He meant to tear my head off. The sand was in her eyes. She stumbled over the pitmaster's corpse and fell on her backside. Drogon roared. The sound filled the pit. A furnace wind engulfed her. The dragon's long-scaled neck stretched toward her. When his mouth opened, she could see bits of broken bone and charred flesh between his black teeth. His eyes were molten. I'm looking into hell, but I dare not look away. She had never been so certain of anything. If I run from him, he will burn me and devour me. In Westeros, the Septon spoke of seven hells and seven heavens, but the seven kingdoms and their gods were far away. If she died here, Danny wondered, would the horse god of the Dothraki part the grass and claim her for his starry Kalasar, so she might ride the nightlands beside her sun and stars? Or would the angry gods of Gis send their harpies to seize her soul and drag her down to torment? Drogon roared full in her face. His breath 
hot enough to blister skin. Off to her right, Danny heard Barristan Selmy shouting, Me! Tried me! Over here! Me! In the smouldering red pits of Drogon's eyes, Danny saw her own reflection. How small she looked, how weak and frail and scared. I cannot let him see my fear. She scrambled in the sand, pushing against the pitmaster's corpse, and her fingers brushed against the handle of his whip. Touching it made her feel braver. The leather was warm, alive. Drogon roared again, the sound so loud that she almost dropped the whip. His teeth snapped at her. Danny hit him. No! she screamed, swinging the lash with all the strength that she had in her. The dragon jerked his head back. No! she screamed again. No! The barbs raked along his snout. Drogon rose, his wings covering her in shadow. Danny swung the lash at his scaled belly, back and forth, until her arm began to ache. His long serpentine neck bent like an archer's bow. With a hiss, he spat black fire down at her. Danny darted underneath the flames, swinging the whip and shouting, No, no, no! Get down! His answered roar was full of fear and fury, full of pain. His wings beat once, twice, and folded. The dragon gave one last hiss and stretched out, flat upon his belly. Black blood was flowing from the wound where the spear had pierced him smoking where it dripped onto the scorched sands. He is fire made flesh, she thought, and so am I. Daenerys Targaryen vaulted onto the dragon's back, seized the spear, and ripped it out. The point was half-melted, the iron red-hot glowing. She flung it aside. Drogon twisted under her, his muscles rippling as he gathered his strength. The air was thick with sand. Danny could not see. She could not breathe. She could not think. The black wings cracked like thunder, and suddenly the scarlet sands were falling away beneath her. Dizzy, Danny closed her eyes. When she opened them again, through a haze of tears and dust, she glimpsed the Miranese beneath her, pouring up the steps and out into the streets. The lash was still in her hand. She flicked it against Drogon's neck and cried, Higher! Her other hand clutched at his scales, her fingers scrabbling for purchase. Drogon's wide black wings beat the air. Danny could feel the heat of him between her thighs. Her heart felt as if it were about to burst. Yes, she thought. Yes, now, now, do it, do it. Take me! Take me! Fly! John He was not a tall man, Tormund Giantsbane, but the guards had given him a broad chest and massive belly. Mansa Raider had named him Tormund Hallblower for the power of his lungs, and was wont to say that Tormund's chuckle could laugh the snow off mountaintops. In his wrath, 
his bellows reminded John of a mammoth trumpeting. That day, Tormund bellowed often and loudly. He roared, he shouted, he slammed his fist against the table so hard that a flagon of water overturned and spilled. A horn of meat was never far from his hand, so the spittle he sprayed when making threats was sweet with honey. He called John Snow a craven, a liar, and a turncloak, cursed him for a black-hearted, buggering kneeler, a robber and a carrion crow, accused him of wanting to fuck the free folk up the arse. Twice he flung his drinking horn at John's head, though only after he had emptied it. Tormund was not the sort of man to waste good mead. John let it all wash over him. He never raised his own voice or answered threat with threat, but neither did he give more ground than he had come prepared to give. Finally, as the shadows of the afternoon grew long outside the tent, Tormund Giantsbane, tall talker, horn-blower, and breaker of ice, Tormund Thunderfist, husband to bears, mead-king of ruddy hall, speaker to guards and father of hosts, thrust out his hand. Done, then, and may the gods forgive me. There's a hundred mothers never will, I know. John clasped the offered hand. The words of his oath rang through his head. I am the sword in the darkness. I am the watcher on the walls. I am the fire that burns against the cold, the light that brings the dawn, the horn that wakes the sleepers, the shield that guards the realms of men. And for him a new refrain. I am the god who opened the gates and let the foe march through. He would have given much and more to know that he was doing the right thing. But he had gone too far to turn back. Done and done, he said. Tormund's grip was bone-crushing. That much had not changed about him. The beard was the same as well, though the face under that thicket of white hair had thinned considerably, and there were deep lines graven in those ruddy cheeks. Matt should have killed you when he had the chance, he said, as he did his best to turn John's hand to pulp and bone. Go for gruel and boys, a cruel price. Whatever happened to that sweet lad I knew? They made him Lord Commander. A fair bargain leaves both sides unhappy, I've heard it said. Three days? If I live that long, some of my own will spit on me when they hear these terms. Tormund released John's hand. Your crows will grumble too, if I know them. And I ought to. I've killed more of your black buggers than I can count. It might be best if you did not mention that so loudly when you come south of the wall. Ha-ha! Tormund laughed. That had not changed either. He still laughed easily and often. Wise words. I not want you crows to peck me to death. He slapped John's back. When all my folk are safe behind your wall, we'll share a bit of meat and mead. Till then? The wildling pulled off the band from his left arm and tossed it at John, then did the same with its twin upon his right. Your first payment. Had those from my father and him from his. Now they're yours, you thieving black bastard. 
The armbands were old gold, solid and heavy, engraved with the ancient runes of the first men. Torman Ginesbane had worn them as long as John had known him. They had seemed as much a part of him as his beard. The Bravasi will melt these down for the gold. That seems a shame. Perhaps you ought to keep them. No, I'll not have it said that Tormon Thunderfist made the free folk give up their treasures whilst he kept his own. He grinned. But I'll keep the ring I wear about my member, much bigger than those little things. On you, it'll be a talk. John had to laugh. You never change. Oh, I do. The grin melted away like snow in summer. I am not the man I was at Ruddy Hall. Seen too much death, and worse things too. My son's grief twisted Torment's face. Dormant was cut down in the battle for the wall, and him still half a boy. One of your king's knights did for him, some bastard holding grey steel with moss upon his shield. I saw the cut, but my boy was dead before I reached him. And Torwind, it was the coal claimed him, always sickly, that one. He just up and died one night. The worst of it, before we ever knew, he'd died. He rose pale, with them blue eyes. Had to see to him myself. That was hard, John. Tears shone in his eyes. He wasn't much of a man, truth be told. But he'd been my little boy once, and I loved him. John put a hand on his shoulder. I'm so sorry. Why, weren't you doing? There's blood in Yan's eye, same as mine, but not his. Tormund shook his head. I still have two strong sons. Your daughter? Munda! <laughs> that brought Tormund's smile back. Took that long spare Reich to husband, if you believe it. Boy's got more cock than sense, he asked me. But he treats her well enough. I told him if he ever hurt her, I'd yank his member off and beat him bloody with it. He gave John another hearty slap. Time you were going back. Keep you any longer, they like to think we ate you. Dawn, then. Three days from now. The boys first. I heard you the first ten times, Crow. A man would think there was no trust between us. He spat. Boys first, I. Mammoths go the long way round. You make sure East Watch expects them. I'll make sure there's no fighting, no rushing at your bloody gate. Nice and orderly will be, ducklings in a row. And me, the mother duck. <laughs> Torman led John from his tent. Outside the day was bright and cloudless. The sun had returned to the sky after a fortnight's absence and to the south the wall rose blue-white and glittering. There was a saying John had heard from the older men at Castle Black. The wall has more moods than Mad King Ares, they'd say. Or sometimes, the wall has more moods than a woman. On cloudy days, it looked to be white rock. On moonless nights, it was as black as coal. In snowstorms, it seemed carved of snow. But on days like this, there was no mistaking it for anything but ice. On days like this, the wall shimmered bright as a septum's crystal, 
every crack and crevasse limbed by sunlight, as frozen rainbows danced and died behind translucent ripples. On days like this, the wall was beautiful. Tallman's elder son stood near the horses, talking with leathers. Tall Tareg, he was called amongst the free folk. Though he barely had an inch on leathers, he overtopped his father by a foot. Harith, the strapping Molestown boy, called Horse, huddled near the fire, his back to the other two. He and Leathers were the only men John had brought with him to the parley. Any more might have been seen as a sign of fear, and twenty men would have been of no more use than two, if Tormund had been intent on blood. Ghost was the only protection John needed. The direwolf could sniff out foes, even those who hid their enmity behind smiles. Ghost was gone, though. John peeled off one black glove, put two fingers in his mouth, and whistled. Ghost! To me! From above came the sudden sound of wings. Mormont's raven flapped from a limb of an old oak to perch upon John's saddle. Corn! it cried. Corn! 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 Did you follow me as well? John reached to shoo the bird away, but ended up stroking its feathers. The raven cocked its eye at him. Snow! it muttered, bobbing its head knowingly. Then Ghost emerged from between two trees, with Val beside him. They look as though they belong together. Val was clad all in white, white woolen breeches tucked into high boots of bleached white leather, white bearskin cloak pinned at the shoulder with a carved weirwood face, white tunic with bone fastenings. Her breath was white as well, but her eyes were blue, her long braid the color of dark honey, her cheeks flushed red from the cold. It had been a long while since Jon Snow had seen a sight so lovely. "'Have you been trying to steal my wolf?' he asked her. "'Why not? If every woman had a direwolf, men would be much sweeter, even crows.' "'Ha!' laughed Tormund Giantsbane. "'Don't bandy words with this one, Lord Snow. She's too clever for the likes of you and me. Best steal her quick, before Torig wakes up and takes her first. What had that oaf Axel Florence said of Val? A nubile girl, not hard to look upon. Good hips, good breasts, well made for whelping children. All true enough, but the wildling woman was so much more. She had proved that by finding torment, where seasoned rangers of the watch had failed. She may not be a princess, but she would make a worthy wife for any lord. But that bridge had been burned a long time ago, and John himself had thrown the torch. Torag is welcome to her, he announced. I took a vow. She won't mind, <laughs> will you, girl? Val patted the long bone knife on her hip. Lord Crow is welcome to steal into my bed any night he dares. Once he's been gilded, keeping those vows will come much easier for him. Ha! Tormund snorted again. You hear that, Torag? Stay away from this one. I have one daughter, don't need another. Shaking his head, the wilding chief ducked back inside his tent. As John scratched ghosts behind the ear, 
Turek brought up Val's horse for her. She still rode the grey garran that Molly had given her the day she left the war, a shaggy, stunted thing, blind in one eye. As she turned it toward the wall, she asked, "'How fares the little monster?' "'Twice as big as when you left us, and thrice as loud. "'When he wants the teat, you can hear him wail in Eastwatch.' "'John mounted his own horse. "'Val fell in beside him. "'So, I brought you Tormund, as I said I would. "'What now? Am I to be returned to my old cell?' "'Your old cell is occupied.' Queen Solis has claimed the King's Tower for her own. Do you remember Harden's Tower? The one that looks about to collapse. It's looked that way for a hundred years. I've had the top floor made ready for you, my lady. You will have more room than in the King's Tower, though you may not be as comfortable. No one has ever called it Harden's Palace. I would choose freedom over comfort every time. Freedom of the castle you shall have but I regret to say you must remain a captive. I can promise you that you will not be troubled by unwanted visitors, however. My own men guard Harden's Tower, not the Queen's, and one one sleeps in the entry hall. A giant as protector, even Dalla could not boast of that. Tormund's wildlings watch them pass, peering out from tents and lean-tos beneath leafless trees. For every man of fighting age, John saw three women and as many children, gaunt-faced things with hollow cheeks and staring eyes. When Mens Raider had led the free folk down upon the wall, his followers drove large herds of sheep and goats and swine before them. But now the only animals to be seen were the mammoths. If not for the ferocity of the giants, those would have been slaughtered too, he did not doubt. There was a lot of meat on a mammoth's bones. John saw signs of sickness, too. That disquieted him more than he could say. If Tormund's band were starved and sick, what of the thousands who had followed Mother Mole to a hard home? Cutter Pike should reach them soon. If the winds were kind, his fleet might well be on its way back to Eastwatch even now, with as many of the free folk as he could cram aboard. "'How did you fare with torment? asked Val. "'Ask me a year from now. "'The hard part still awaits me. "'The part where I convince mine own "'to eat this meal I've cooked for them. "'None of them are going to like the taste, I fear. "'Let me help. "'You have. "'You brought me torment. "'I can do more.' "'Why not?' thought John. "'They're all convinced she is a princess.' "'Val looked the part "'and rode as if she had been born on horseback.' A warrior princess, he decided, not some willowy creature who sits up in a tower, brushing her hair and waiting for some knight to rescue her. I must inform the queen of this agreement, he said. You're welcome to come meet her, if you can find it in yourself to bend a knee. It would never do to offend her grace before he even opened his mouth. May I laugh when I kneel? You may not. This is no game. A river of blood runs between our peoples, old and deep and red. Stannis Baratheon is one of the few who favours admitting wildings to the realm. I need his queen's support for what I've done. Val's playful smile died. You have my word, Lord Snow. I will be a proper wilding princess for your queen.
She is not my queen, he might have said. If truth be told, the day of her departure cannot come too fast for me, and if the gods are good, she would take Melisandre with her. They rode the rest of the way in silence, ghosts loping at their heels. Mormon's raven followed them as far as the gate, then flapped upward as the rest of them dismounted. Horse went ahead, with a brand to light the way through the icy tunnel. A small crowd of black brothers was waiting by the gate when John and his companions emerged south of the wall. Ulmer of the King's Wood was amongst them, and it was the old archer who came forward to speak for the rest. "'If it please, my lord, the lads were wondering, will it be peace, my lord, or blood and iron?' "'Peace,' John Snow replied. Three days hence, Tormund Giantsbane will lead his people through the wall, as friends, not foes. Some may even swell our ranks as brothers. It will be for us to make them welcome. Now, back to your duties. John handed the reins of his horse to Satin. I must see Queen Solis. Her grace would take it as a slight if he did not come to her at once. Afterwards I will have letters to write. Bring parchment quills and a pot of maester's black to my chambers. Then summon Marsh, Yarwick, Septon Selador, Clydus. Selador would be half drunk, and Clydus was a poor substitute for a real maester. But they were what he had. Till Sam returns. The Northmen, too. Flint and Nurry. Leathers, you should be there as well. Hub is baking onion pies, said Satin. Shall I request that they all join you for supper? John considered. No, ask them to join me atop the wall at sunset. He turned to Val. My lady, with me, if you please. The crow commands a captive must obey. Her tone was playful. This queen of yours must be fierce. If the legs of grown men give out beneath them when they meet her, should I have dressed in mail instead of wool and fur? These clothes were given me by Dala. I would sooner not get bloodstains all over them. If words drew blood, you might have cause to fear. I think your clothes are safe enough, my lady. They made their way toward the king's tower, along fresh-shoveled pathways between mounds of dirty snow. I've heard it said that your queen has a great dark beard. John knew he should not smile, but he did. Only a moustache, very wispy. You can count the hairs. How disappointing. For all her talk about wanting to be mistress of her seat, Celise Baratheon seemed in no great haste to abandon the comforts of Castle Black for the shadows of the night fort. She kept guards, of course. Four men posted at the door, two outside on the steps, two inside by the brazier. Commanding them were Sir Patrick of King's Mountain, clad in his knightly raiment of white and blue and silver, his cloak a spatter of five-pointed stars. When presented to Val, the knight sank to one knee to kiss her glove. "'You're even lovelier than I was told, Princess,' he declared. "'The Queen has told me much and more of your beauty. "'How odd, when she has never seen me!' Val patted Sir Patrick on the head. "'Up with you now, Sir Kneeler, up, up!' "'She sounds as if she were talking to a dog. 
It was all that John could do not to laugh. Stone-faced, he told the knight that they required audience with the Queen. Sir Patrick sent one of the men-at-arms scrambling up the steps to inquire as to whether Her Grace would receive them. "'And the wolf stays here, though,' Sir Patrick insisted. John expected that. The dire wolf made Queen Celise anxious, almost as much as one wig, one dull one. "'Ghost, stay!' They found Her Grace sewing by the fire. Whilst her fool danced about to music only he could hear, the cowbells on his antlers clanging. "'A crow, the crow!' Patchface cried when he saw John. "'Under the sea the crows are white as snow. I know, I know, oh, oh, oh!' Princess Shireen was curled up in a window seat, her hood drawn up to hide the worst of the grayscale that had disfigured her face. There was no sign of Lady Melisandre. For that much, John was grateful. Soon or late, he would need to face the Red Priestess, but he would sooner it was not in the Queen's presence. Your Grace, he took a knee, Val did likewise. Queen Celise set aside her sewing. You may rise. If it please your Grace, may I present the Lady Val? Her sister Dala was mother to that squalling babe who keeps us awake at night. I know who she is, Lord Snow, the Queen sniffed. You are fortunate that she returned to us before the King, my husband. Else it might have gone badly for you. Very badly indeed. Are you the wildling princess? Shireen asked Val. Some call me that, said Val. My sister was wife to Mansarida the king beyond the wall. She died giving him a son. I'm a princess too, Shireen announced, but I never had a sister. I, I used to have a, a cousin once before he sailed away. He was just a, a bastard, but I liked him. Honestly, Shireen, her mother said, I am sure the Lord Commander did not come to hear about Robert's Biblers. Patchface, be a good fool, and take the princess to her room. The bells on his hat rang. Away, away, the fool sang. Come with me beneath the sea. Away, away, away. He took the little princess by one hand and drew her from the room, skipping. John said, Your Grace, the leader of the free folk has agreed to my terms. Queen Celise gave the tiniest of nods. It was ever my lord husband's wish to grant sanctuary to these savage peoples. So long as they keep the king's peace and the king's laws, they are welcome in our realm. She pursed her lips. I am told they have more giants with them. Val answered. Almost two hundred of them, your grace, and more than eighty mammoths. The queen shuddered. Dreadful creatures! John could not tell if she was speaking of the mammoths or the giants. Their such beasts might be useful to my lord husband in his battles. That may be, your grace, John said, but the mammoths are too big to pass through our gate. Cannot the gate be widened? That, um, that would be unwise, I think. Celise sniffed. If you say so, no doubt you know about such things. Where do you mean to settle these wildlings? Surely Millstown is not large enough to contain... Uh, how many are there? Four thousand, Your Grace. 
they will help us garrison our abandoned castles, the better to defend the wall. I had been given to understand that those castles were ruins, dismal places, bleak and cold, hardly more than heaps of rubble. At Eastwatch we heard talk of rats and spiders. The cold will have killed us spiders by now, thought John, and the rats may be a useful source of meat come winter. All true, Your Grace, but even ruins offer some shelter, and the wall will stand between them and the others. I see you have considered all this carefully, Lord Snow. I'm sure King Stannis will be pleased when he returns triumphant from his battle. Assuming he returns at all. Of course, the Queen went on, the wildlings must first acknowledge Stannis as their king and R'hllor as their god. And here we are, face to face, in the narrow passage. Your Grace, forgive me. Those were not the terms that we agreed to. The Queen's face hardened. A grievous oversight. What faint traces of warmth her voice had held vanished all at once. A free folk do not kneel, Val told her. Then they must be knelt, the Queen declared. Do that, your grace, and we will rise again at the first chance. Val promised, rise with blades in hand. The Queen's lips tightened, and her chin gave a small quiver. You are insolent. I suppose that is only to be expected of a wildling. We must find your husband who can teach you courtesy. The Queen turned her glare on John. I do not approve, Lord Commander, nor will my Lord Husband. I cannot prevent you from opening your gate, as we both know full well, but I promise you that you shall answer for it when the King returns from battle. Mayhaps you might want to reconsider. Your Grace, John knelt again. This time Val did not join him. I am sorry my actions have displeased you, I did as I thought best. Do I have your leave to go? You do. At once. Once outside and well away from the Queen's men, Val gave vent to her wrath. You lied about her beard. That one has more hair on her chin than I have between my legs. And the daughter. Her face. Grayscale. The Grey Death is what we call it. It's not always mortal in children. North of the wall it is. Hemlock is a sure cure, but a pillow or a blade will work as well. If I had given birth to that poor child, I would have given her the gift of mercy long ago. This was a vow that John had never seen before. Princess Shireen is the Queen's only child. I pity both of them. The child is not clean. If Stannis wins his war... Shireen will stand as heir to the Iron Throne. Then I pity your seven kingdoms. The maesters say Grayscale is not. The maesters may believe what they wish. Ask a woodswitch if you would know the truth. The Grey Death sleeps, only to wake again. The child is not clean. She seems a sweet girl. You cannot know. I can. You know nothing, Jon Snow. Val seized his arm. I want the monster out of there, him and his wet nurses. 
You cannot leave them in that same tower as the dead girl. John shook her hand away. She is not dead. She is. Her mother cannot see it. Nor you, it seems. Yet death is there. She walked away from him, stopped, turned back. I brought you Tom on Giant's Bean. Bring me my monster. If I can, I will. Do. You owe me a debt, John Snow. John watched her stride away. She is wrong. She must be wrong. Grayscale is not so deadly, she claims, not in children. Ghost was gone again. The sun was low in the west. A cup of hot-spiced wine would serve me well just now. Two cups would serve me even better. But they would have to wait. He had foes to face. Foes of the worst sort. Brothers. He found Leathers waiting for him by the winch cage. The two of them rode up together. The higher they went, the stronger the wind. Fifty feet up, the heavy cage began to sway with every gust. From time to time, it scraped against the wall, starting small, crystalline showers of ice that sparkled in the sunlight as they fell. They rose above the tallest towers of the castle. At four hundred feet, the wind had teeth, and Tor had his black cloak, so it slapped noisily at the iron bars. At seven hundred, it cut right through him. The wall is mine, John reminded himself, as the winchmen were swinging in the cage. For two more days, at least. John hopped down onto the ice, thanked the men on the winch, and nodded to the spearmen standing sentry. Both wore woolen hoods, pulled down over their heads, so nothing could be seen of their faces but their eyes. But he knew Ty, by the tangled rope of greasy black hair falling down his back, and Owen by the sausage stuffed into the scabbard at his hip. He might have known them anyway, just by the way they stood. A good lord must know his men. His father had once told him and Rob, back at Winterfell. John walked to the edge of the wall and gazed down upon the killing ground where Mance Raider's host had died. He wondered where Mance was. Did he ever find you, little sister? Or were you just a ploy he used, so I would set him free? It had been so long since he had last seen Arya. What would she look like now? Would he ever know her? Arya Underfoot. Her face was always dirty. Would she still have that little sword he'd had Mickin forge for her? Stick them with a pointy end, he told her. Wisdom for her wedding night, if half of what he heard of Ramsay Snow was true. Bring her home, Mance. I saved your son from Melisandre, and now I'm about to save four thousand of your free folk. You owe me this one little girl. In the haunted forest to the north, the shadows of the afternoon crept through the trees. The western sky was a blaze of red, but to the east the first stars were peeking out. John Snow flexed the fingers of his sword hand, remembering all he'd lost. Sam, you sweet fat fool, you played me a cruel jape when you made me Lord Commander. A Lord Commander has no friends. Lord Snow, said Leathers, 
The cage is coming up. I hear it. John moved back from the edge. First to make the ascent were the clan chiefs, Flint and Norrie, clad in fur and iron. The Norrie looked like some old fox, wrinkled and slight of build, but sly-eyed and spry. Torgan Flint was half a head shorter, but must have weighed twice as much. A stout, gruff man with gnarled, red-knuckled hands as big as hams, leaning heavily on a blackthorn cane as he limped across the ice. Bowen Marsh came next, bundled up in a bearskin. After him, Athel Yarwick, then Septon Selador, half in his cups. Walk with me, John told them. They walked west along the wall, down gravel-strewn paths toward the setting sun. When they had come fifty yards from the warming shed, he said, You know why I've summoned you? Three days hence at dawn, the gate will open to allow Tormund and his people through the wall. There is much we need to do in preparation. Silence greeted his pronouncement. Then Othel Yarwick said, Lord Commander, there are thousands of scrawny wildlings, bone-weary, hungry, far from home. John pointed the lights of their campfires. There they are. Four thousand, Tormund claims. Three thousand, I make them by the fires. Bowen Marsh lived for counts and measures. More than twice that number at Hardhome, with the woods which we are told. And Sir Dennis writes of great camps in the mountains beyond the Shadow Tower. John did not deny it. Tormund says the weeper means to try the Bridge of Skulls again. The old pomegranate touched his scar. He had gotten it defending the Bridge of Skulls the last time the weeping man had tried to cut his way across the gorge. Surely the Lord Commander cannot mean to allow that, that demon through as well. Not gladly. John had not forgotten the heads the weeping man had left him with bloody holes where their eyes had been. Black Jack Bulwer, Hairy Hell, Garth Greyfeather, I cannot avenge them, but I will not forget their names. But yes, my lord, him as well. We cannot pick and choose amongst the free folk, saying this one may pass, this one may not. Peace means peace for all. The Nore hawked and spat, as well make peace with wolves and carrion crows. It's peaceful in my dungeons, grumbled old Flint. Give the weeping man to me. How many rangers has the weeper killed? asked Othel Yarwick. How many women has he raped or killed or stolen? Three of mine own ilk, said old Flint, and he blinds the girls he does not take. When a man takes the black... His crimes are forgiven, John reminded them. If we want the free folk to fight beside us, we must pardon their past crimes as we would for our own. The weeper will not say the words, insisted Yarwick. He will not wear the cloak. Even other raiders do not trust him. You need not trust a man to use him. Else how could I make use of all of you? We need the weeper and others like him. Who knows the wild better than a wildling? Who knows our foes better than a man who has fought them? All the weeper knows is rape and murder, said Yarvik. Once past the wall, the wildlings 
will have thrice our numbers, said Bowen Marsh. And that is only Tormund's band. Add the weepers' men and those at hard home, and they will have the strength to end the night's watch in a single night. Numbers alone do not win a war. You have not seen them. Half them are dead on their feet. I would sooner have them dead in the ground, said Yarwick. If it please, my lord, it does not please me. John's voice was as cold as the wind snapping at their cloaks. There are children in that camp, hundreds of them, thousands. Women as well. Spear wives, some, along with mothers and grandmothers, widows and maids. Would you condemn them all to die, my lord? A brother should not squabble, Septon Selador said. Let us kneel and pray to the crone to light our way to wisdom. Lord Snow, said the Norrie, where do you mean to put these wildlings of yours? Not in my lands, I hope. Aye, declared old Flint. You want them in their gift? That's your folly. But see, they don't wander off, or I'll send you back their heads. Winter is nigh. I want no more mouths to feed. The wildlings will remain upon the wall, John assured them. Most will be housed in one of our abandoned castles. The watch now had garrisons at Icemark, Longbarrow, Sable Hall, Greyguard, and Deep Lake, all badly undermanned, but ten castles still stood empty and abandoned. Men with wives and children, all orphan girls and any orphan boys below the age of ten, old women, widowed mothers, any woman who does not care to fight. The spear wives were sent to Longbarrow to join their sisters. Single men to the other forts we've reopened. Those who take the black will remain here, or be posted to Eastwatch or the Shadow Tower. Tormund will take Oakenshield as his seat to keep him close at hand. Bowen Marsh sighed. If they do not slay us with their swords, they will do so with their mouths. Pray, how does the Lord Commander propose to feed Tormund and his thousands? John had anticipated that question. Through Eastwatch, we will bring in food by ship, as much as might be required, from the Riverlands and the Stormlands and the Vale of Erin, from Dawn and the Reach, across the narrow sea from the free cities. And this food will be paid for how, if I may ask? With gold from the Iron Bank of Bravas, John might have replied. Instead, he said, I have agreed that the free folk may keep their furs and pelts. They will need those for warmth when winter comes. All other wealth they must surrender. Gold and silver, amber, gemstones, carvings, anything of value. We will ship it all across the narrow sea to be sold in the free cities. All the wealth of the wildlings, said the Norrie. That should buy you a bushel of barleycorn, Two bushels, might be. Lord Commander, why not demand that the wildlings give up their arms as well? Asked Clytus. Leathers laughed at that. You want the free folk to fight beside you against a common foe. How are we to do that without arms? Would you have us throw snowballs at the whites? Or will you give us sticks to hit them with? The arms most wildlings carry are little more than sticks, thought John. 
wooden clubs, stone axes, mauls, spears with fire-hardened points, knives of bone and stone and dragon-glass, wicker shields, bone armor, boiled leather. The Thens worked bronze, and raiders, like the Weeper, carried stolen steel and iron swords, looted off some corpse. But even those were oft of ancient vintage, dinted from years of hard use and spotted with rust. Torman Giantsbane will never willingly disarm his people, John said. He is not the weeping man, but he is no craven either. If I had asked that of him, it would have come to blood. The Nari fingered his beard. You may put your wildings in these ruined ports, Lord Snow, but how will you make them stay? What is there to stop them moving south to fairer, warmer lands? Our lands, said old Flint. Tormund has given me his oath. He will serve with us until the spring. The Weeper and their other captains will swear the same, or we will not let them pass. Old Flint shook his head. They will betray us. The Weeper's word is worthless, said Othel Yarwick. These are godless savages, said Septon Selador. Even in the south, the treachery of wildlings is renowned. Leathers crossed his arms across his chest. That battle below. I was on t'other side, remember? Now I'll wear your blacks and train your boys to kill. Some might call me turncoat. Might be so. But I'm no more savage than you crows. We have guards too. The same guards they keep in Winterfell. The guards of the north, since before this wall was raised, said John. Those are the guards that Tormund swore by. He will keep his word. I know him, as I know Mance Raider. I marched with them for a time, you may recall. I had not forgotten, said the Lord Steward. No, thought John, I did not think you had. Mance Raider swore an oath as well, Marsh went on. He vowed to wear no crowns, take no wife, father no sons. Then he turned his cloak did all those things, and led a fearsome host against the realm. It is the remnants of that host that waits beyond the wall. Broken remnants. A broken sword can be reforged. A broken sword can kill. The free folk have neither laws nor lords, John said. But they love their children. Will you admit that much? It is not their children who concern us. We fear the fathers, not the sons. As do I. So I insisted upon hostages. I'm not the trusting fool you take me for, nor am I half wildly, no matter what you believe. One hundred boys between the ages of eight and sixteen, a son from each of their chiefs and captains, the rest chosen by lot. The boys will serve as pages and squires, freeing our own men for other duties. Some may choose to take the black one day. Queerer things have happened. The rest will stand hostage for the loyalty of their sires. The Northmen glanced at one another. Hostages? mused the Nori. Tormund has agreed to this. It was that, or watch his people die. My blood price, he called it, said Jon Snow. But he will pay. Oi, and why not? Old Flint 
stumped his cane against the ice. Wards, we always called them, when Winterfell demanded boys of us. But they were hostages, and none the worse for it. None but them whose sires displeased the kings of winter, said the Norrie. Those came home shorter by head. So you tell me, boy, if these wildling friends of yours prove false, do you have the belly to do what needs to be done? Asked Jane Slint. Tormund Giantsbane knows better than to try me. I may seem a green boy in your eyes, Lord Norrie, but I am still a son of Eddard Stark. Yet even that did not appease his Lord Stuart. You say these boys will serve as squires. Surely the Lord Commander does not mean they will be trained at arms? John's anger flared. No, my lord, I mean to set them to sewing lacy small clothes. Of course they shall be trained at arms. They shall also churn butter, hew firewood, muck stables, empty chamber pots, and run messages, and in between they will be drilled with spear and sword and longbow. Marsh flushed a deeper shade of red. The Lord Commander must pardon my bluntness, but I have no softer way to say this. What you propose is nothing less than treason. For eight thousand years the men of the Night's Watch have stood upon the wall and fought these wildlings. Now you mean to let them pass, to shelter them in our castles, to feed them and clothe them and teach them how to fight. Lord Snow, must I demand you? You swore an oath. I know what I swore. John said the words. I am the sword in the darkness. I am the watcher on the walls. I am the fire that burns against the cold, the light that brings the dawn, the horn that wakes the sleepers, the shield that guards the realms of men. Were those the same words you said when you took your vows? They were, as the Lord Commander knows. Are you certain that I have not forgotten some, the ones about the king and his laws, and how we must defend every foot of his land and cling to each ruined castle? How does that part go? John waited for an answer. None came. I am the shield that guards the realms of men. Those are the words. So tell me, my lord, what are these wildlings, if not men? Bowen Marsh opened his mouth. No words came out. A flush crept up his neck. Jon Snow turned away. The last light of the sun had begun to fade. He watched the cracks along the wall go from red to grey to black from streaks of fire to rivers of black ice. Down below, Lady Melisandre would be lighting her night fire and chanting, Lord of light, defend us, for the night is dark and full of terrors. Winter is coming, John said at last, breaking the awkward silence. And with it, the white walkers. The wall is where we stop them. The wall was made to stop them, but the wall must be manned. This discussion is at an end. We have much to do before the gate is opened. Tormund and his people will need to be fed and clothed and housed. Some are sick and will need nursing.
Those will fall to you, Clytus. Save as many as you can. Clytus blinked his dim pink eyes. I will do my best, John. Eh, my lord, I mean. We will need every cart and wagon made ready to transport the free folk to their new homes. Othell, you shall see to that. Jarvik grimaced. Aye, Lord Commander. Lord Bowen, you shall collect the tolls. The gold and silver, the amber, the torques, and armbands and necklaces. Sort it all, count it. See that it reaches Eastwatch safely. Yes, Lord Snow, said Bowen Marsh. And John thought, Ice, she said, and daggers in the dark, blood frozen red and hard and naked steel. His sword hand flexed. The wind was rising. Cersei each night seemed colder than the last. The cell had neither fireplace nor brazier. The only window was too high to allow her a view, and too small to squeeze through, but more than large enough to let in the chill. Circe had torn up the first shift they gave her, demanding the return of her own clothes, but that only left her naked and shivering. When they bought her another shift, she pulled it down over her head and thanked them choking upon the words. The window let in sounds as well. That was the only way the Queen had to know what might be happening in the city. The scepters who brought her food would tell her nothing. She hated that. Jamie would be coming for her, but how would she know when he arrived? Cersei only hoped he was not so foolish as to go racing ahead of his army. He would need every sword to deal with the ragged horde of poor fellows surrounding the great sept. She asked about her twin often, but her jailers gave no answer. She asked about Sir Loras, too. At last report, the Knight of Flowers had been dying on Dragonstone of wounds received whilst taking the castle. Let him die, Cersei thought, and let him be quick about it. The boy's death would mean an empty place on the king's guard, and that might be her salvation but the scepters were as close-mouthed about Loras Tyrell as they were about Jamie. Lord Kyburn had been her last and only visitor. Her world had a population of four, herself and her three jailers, pious and unyielding. Scepter Unella was big-boned and mannish, with callous hands and homely, scowling features. Scepter Moel had stiff white hair, and small, mean eyes, perpetually crinkled in suspicion, peering out of a wrinkled face as sharp as a blade of an axe. Scepter Scalera was thick-waisted and short, with heavy breasts, olive skin, and a sour smell to her, like milk on the verge of going bad. They brought her food and water, emptied her chamber pot, and took away her shift for washing every few days, leaving her to huddle naked, under her blanket until it was returned to her. Sometimes Calera would read to her from the seven-pointed star or the book of holy prayer, but elsewise none of them would speak with her or answer any of her questions. She hated and despised all three of them, 
almost as much as she hated and despised the men who had betrayed her. False friends, treacherous servants, men who had professed undying love, even her own blood, all of them, had deserted her in her hour of need. Osney Kettleblack, that weakling, had broken beneath the lash, filling the High Sparrow's ears with secrets he should have taken to his grave. His brothers, scum of the streets, whom she had raised high, did no more than sit upon their hands. Urain Walters, her admiral, had fled to sea with the drummers she had built for him. Orton Merriweather had gone running back to Longtable, taking his wife Tainer, who had been the Queen's one true friend in these terrible times. Harris Swift and Grand Maester Pycelle had abandoned her to captivity and offered the realm to the very men who had conspired against her. Merrin Trant and Boris Blount, the King's sworn protectors, were nowhere to be found. Even her cousin Lancel, who once had claimed to love her, was one of her accusers. Her uncle had refused to help her rule when she would have made him the king's hand. And Jamie? No. That she could not believe, would not believe. Jamie would be here once he knew of her plight. Come at once, she had written to him. Help me. Save me. I need you now as I have never needed you before. I love you. I love you. I love you. Come at once. Kyben had sworn that he would see that her letter reached her twin, off in the riverlands with his army. Kyburn had never returned, however. For all she knew, he might be dead, his head impaled upon a spike above the city keep's gates. Or perhaps he was languishing in one of the black cells beneath the red keep, her letter still unsent. The queen had asked after him a hundred times, but her captors would not speak of him. All she knew, for certain, was that Jamie had not come. Not yet, she told herself, but soon, and once he comes, the high sparrow and his bitches will sing a different song. She hated feeling helpless. She had threatened, but her threats had been received with stony faces and deaf ears. She had commanded, but her commands had been ignored. She had invoked the mother's mercy, appealing to the natural sympathy of one woman for another. But the three shriveled scepters must have put their womanhood aside when they spoke their vows. She had tried charm, speaking to them gently, accepting each new outrage meekly. They were not swayed. She had offered them rewards, promised leniency, honors, gold, positions at court. They treated her promises as they did her threats. And she had prayed. Oh, how she had prayed! Prayer was what they wanted, so she served it to them, served it on her knees as if she were some common trollop of the streets and not a daughter of the rock. She had prayed for relief, for deliverance, for Jamie. Loudly she asked the guards to defend her in her innocence. Silently she prayed for her accusers to suffer sudden painful deaths. She prayed until her knees were raw and bloody, until her tongue felt so thick and heavy that she was like to choke on it. 
all the prayers they had taught her as a girl came back to Circe in her cell, and she made up new ones as needed, calling on the mother and the maiden, on the father and the warrior, on the crone and the smith. She had even prayed to the stranger, Any god in a storm? The seven proved as deaf as their earthly servants. Circe gave them all the words that she had in her, gave them everything but tears. That they will never have, she told herself. She hated feeling weak. If the gods had given her the strength they gave Jamie and that swaggering oaf, Robert, she could have made her own escape. Oh, for a sword, and the skill to wield it. She had a warrior's heart, but the guards in their blind malice had given her the feeble body of a woman. The queen had tried to fight them early on, but the scepters had overwhelmed her. There were too many of them, and they were stronger than they looked. Ugly old women, every one of them, but all that praying and scrubbing and beating novices with sticks had left them tough as roots. And they would not let her rest. Night or day, whenever the queen closed her eyes to sleep, one of her captors would appear to wake her and demand that she confess her sins. She stood accused of adultery, fornication, high treason, even murder, for Osnir Kettleblack had confessed to smothering the last high septon at her command. I'm come to hear you tell of all your murders and fornications, Scepter Yunella would growl when she shook the queen awake. Scepter Moel would tell her that it was her sins that kept her sleepless. Only the innocent know the peace of untroubled sleep. Confess your sins and you will sleep like a newborn babe. Wake and sleep and wake again. Every night was broken into pieces by the rough hands of her tormentors, and every night was colder and crueler than the night before. The hour of the owl, the hour of the wolf, the hour of the nightingale, moonrise and moonset, dusk and dawn, they staggered past like drunkards. What hour was it? What day was it? Where was she? Was this a dream, or had she woken? The little shards of sleep that they allowed her turned into razors, slicing at her wits. Each day found her duller than the day before, exhausted and feverish. She had lost all sense of how long she had been imprisoned in this cell, high up in one of the seven towers of the great sept of Baylor. I will grow old and die here, she thought, despairing. Circe could not allow that to happen. Her son had need of her. The realm had need of her. She had to free herself, no matter what the risk. Her world had shrunk to a cell, six feet square, a chamber pot, a lumpy pallet, and a brown wool blanket, thin as hope, that made her skin itch. But she was still Lord Tywin's heir, a daughter of the rock. Exhausted by her lack of sleep, shivering from the cold that stole into the tower cell each night, feverish, and famished by turns, Circe came at last to know she must confess. That night, when Scepter Yunella came to wrench her out of sleep, she found the queen waiting on her knees. "'I have sinned,' said Circe. Her tongue was thick in her mouth, her lips raw and chapped. 
I have sinned most grievously. I see that now. How could I have been so blind for so long? The crone came to me with her lamp raised high, and by its holy light I saw the road that I must walk. I want to be clean again. I want only absolution. Please, good scepter, I beg of you, take me to the high scepter so that I might confess my crimes and fornications. I will tell him, your grace, said scepter Yonella. His high holiness will be most pleased. Only through confession and true repentance may our immortal souls be saved. And for the rest of that long night, they let her sleep. Hours and hours of blessed sleep. The owl and the wolf and the nightingale slipped by for once with their passage unseen and unremarked, while Circe dreamed a long, sweet dream where Jamie was her husband and their son was still alive. Come morning, the queen felt almost like herself again. When her captors came for her, she made pious noises at them again and told them how determined she was to confess her sins and be forgiven for all that she had done. We rejoice to hear it, said Scepter Moel. It will be a great weight off your soul, said Scepter Scolera. You will feel much better afterwards, your grace. Your grace? Those two simple words thrilled her. During her long captivity, her jailers had not oft bothered with even that simple courtesy. His high holiness awaits, said Scepter Yunella. Circe lowered her head, humble and obedient. Might I be allowed to bathe first? I am in no fit state to attend him. You may wash later if his high holiness allows, said Scepter Yunella. It is the cleanliness of your immortal soul that shall concern you now, not such vanities of the flesh. The three scepters led her down the tower stairs, with Scepter Yunella going before her, and Scepter Moel and Scepter Scalera at her heels, as if they were afraid she might try to flee. It has been so long since I have had a visitor, Circe murmured in a quiet voice as they made their descent. Is the king well? I ask only as a mother, fearful for her child. His grace is in good health, said Scepter Scalera, and well protected day and night. The queen is with him always. I am the queen, she swallowed, smiled, and said. That is good to know. Tommen loves her so. I never believed those terrible things that were said of her. Had Marjorie Tyrell somehow wriggled free of the accusations of fornication, adultery, and high treason? Was there a trial? Soon, said Scepter Scalera. But her brother... Hush! Scepter Yunella turned to glare back over her shoulder at Scalera. You chatter too much, you foolish old woman. It's not for us to speak of such things. Scalera lowered her head. Pray forgive me. They made the rest of the descent in silence. The high sparrow received her in his sanctum, an austere seven-sided chamber where crudely carved faces of the seven stared out 
from the stone walls with expressions almost as sour and disapproving as his high holiness himself. When she entered, he was seated behind a rough-hewn table, writing. The high septon had not changed since the last time she had been in his presence, the day he had her seized and imprisoned. He was still a scrawny, grey-haired man with a lean, hard, half-starved look, his face sharp-featured, lined, his eyes suspicious. In place of the rich robes of his predecessors, he wore a shapeless tunic of undyed wool that fell down to his ankles. "'Your Grace,' he said by way of greeting, "'I understand that you wish to make confession.' Cersei dropped to her knee. "'I do, High Holiness. The crone came to me as I slept with her lamp held high. To be sure, Dunella, you will stay and make a record of her grace's words. Scalera, Moel, you have my leave to go. He pressed the fingers of his hands together, the same gesture she had seen her father use a thousand times. Scepter Yunella took a seat behind her, spread out a parchment, dipped a quill in Maester's ink. Cersei felt a stab of fright. Once I have confessed, will I be permitted to— Your grace shall be dealt with according to your sins. This man is implacable, she realized once again. She gathered herself for a moment. Mother, have mercy on me, then. I have lain with men outside the bonds of marriage. I confess it. Who? The high septon's eyes were fixed on hers. Cersei could hear Yunella writing behind her. Her quill made a faint, soft scratching sound. Lancel Lannister, my cousin, and Osnir Kettleblack. Both men had confessed to bedding her. It would do her no good to deny it. His brothers, too, both of them. She had no way of knowing what Osfried and Osmond might say. Safer to confess too much than too little. It does not excuse my sin, High Holiness, but I was lonely and afraid. The gods took King Robert from me, my love and my protector. I was alone, surrounded by schemers, false friends, and traitors who were conspiring at the death of my children. I did not know who to trust, so I, I used the only means that I had to bind the kettle blacks to me. By which you mean your female parts. My flesh, she pressed a hand to her face, shuddering. When she lowered it again, her eyes were wet with tears. Yes, may the maid forgive me. It was for my children, though, for, for the realm. I took no pleasure in it. The kettle blacks, they are hard men and cruel, and they use me roughly. But what else was I to do? Tom and needed men around him I could trust. His grace was protected by the king's guard. The king's guard stood by useless, as his brother, Geoffrey, died, murdered at his own wedding feast. I watched one son die. I could not bear to lose another. I have sinned. I have committed wanton fornication. But I did it for Tommen. Forgive me, High Holiness, but I would open my legs for every man in King's Landing if that was what I had to do to keep my children safe. Forgiveness comes only from the gods. What of Sir Lancel, who was your cousin, 
and your lord husband squire. Did you take him into your bed to win his loyalty as well? Lancel, Cersei hesitated. Careful, she told herself. Lancel would have told him everything. Lancel loved me. He was half a boy, but I never doubted his devotion to me. Oh, my son. And yet you still corrupted him. I was lonely. She choked back a sob. I had lost my husband, my son, my lord father. I was regent, but a queen is still a woman, and women are weak vessels, easily tempted. Your high holiness knows the truth of that. Even holy scepters have been known to sin. I took comfort with Lancel. He was kind and, and gentle, and I, I needed someone. It was wrong, I know, but I had no one else. A woman needs to be loved. She needs a man beside her. She, she, she began to sob uncontrollably. The high septon made no move to comfort her. He sat there with his hard eyes fixed on her, watching her weep as stony as the statues of the seven in the sept above. Long moments passed, but finally her tears were all dried up. By then her eyes were red and raw from crying, and she felt as if she might faint. The High Sparrow was not done with her, however. These are common sins, he said. The wickedness of widows is well known, and all women are wantons at heart, given to using their wiles and their beauty to work their wills on men. There is no treason here, so long as you did not stray from your marriage bed whilst his grace King Robert was still alive. Never, she whispered, shivering. Never, I swear it. He paid that no mind. There are other charges laid against your grace, crimes far more grievous than simple fornications. You admit Sir Osney Kettleblack was your lover, and Sir Osney insists that he smothered my predecessor at your behest. He further insists that he bore false witness against Queen Marjorie and her cousins, telling tales of fornications, adultery, and high treason again at your behest. No, said Cersei, it is not true. I love Marjorie as I would a daughter, and the other... I complained to the High Septon, I admit it. He was Tyrion's creature, weak and corrupt, a stain upon our holy faith. Your High Holiness knows that as well as I. It may be that Osney thought that his death would please me. If so, I bear some part of the blame, but murder? No. Of that I am innocent. Take me to the Sept, and I will stand before the Father's judgment seat and swear the truth of that. In time, said the High Septon, you also stand accused of conspiring at the murder of your own Lord Husband, our late beloved King Robert, first of his name. Lancel, Cersei thought, Robert was killed by a boar. Do they say I'm a skin-changer now? A wag? Am I accused of killing Joffrey too? My own sweet son, my firstborn. No, just your husband. Do you deny it? I deny it, I do. 
before gods and men, I deny it. He nodded. Last of all and worst of all, there are some who say your children were not fathered by King Robert, that they are bastards born of incest and adultery. Stannis says that, Cersei said at once. A lie, a lie, a palpable lie. Stannis wants the Iron Throne for himself, but his brother's children stand in his way, so he must needs claim that they are not his brother's. That filthy letter, there's no shred of truth to it. I deny it. The High Septon placed both hands flat upon the table and pushed himself to his feet. Good, Lord Stannis has turned from the truth of the seven to worship a red demon, and his false faith has no place in these seven kingdoms. That was almost reassuring. Cersei nodded. Even so, his high holiness went on, these are terrible charges, and the realm must know the truth of them. If your grace has told it true, no doubt a trial will prove your innocence. A trial still? I have confessed. To certain sins I, others, you deny. Your trial will separate the truths from the falsehoods. I shall ask the seven to forgive the sins you have confessed, and pray that you will be found innocent of these other accusations. Circe rose slowly from her knees. I bow to thee, wisdom, of your high holiness, she said. But if I might beg for just one drop of the mother's mercy, I... It has been so long since I last saw my son. Please. The old man's eyes were chips of flint. It would not be fitting to allow you near the king until you have been cleansed of all your wickedness. You have taken the first step on your path back to righteousness, however, and in the light of that I shall permit you other visitors, one each day. The queen began to weep again. This time the tears were true. You are too kind. Thank you. The mother is merciful. It is her you should thank. Moel and Scalera were waiting to lead her back up to her tower cell. Yunella followed close behind them. We have all been praying for your grace, Scepter Moel said, as they were climbing. Yes, Scepter Scalera echoed, and you must feel so much lighter now, clean and innocent, as a maid on the morning of her wedding. I fucked Jamie on the morning of my wedding, the Queen recalled. I do, she said. I feel reborn, as if a festering boil has been lanced, and now at last I can begin to heal. I could almost fly. She imagined how sweet it would be to slam an elbow into Scepter Scalera's face and send her careening down the spiral steps. If the guards were good, the wrinkled old cunt might crash into Scepter Yonella and take her down with her. It is good to see you smiling again, Scalera said. His High Holiness said I might have visitors. He did, said Scepter Yonella. If your grace will tell us whom you wish to see, we will send word to them. Jamie, I need Jamie. But if her twin 
was in the city. Why did he not come to her? It might be wiser to wait on Jamie until she had a better notion of what was happening beyond the walls of the great sept of Baylor. My uncle, she said, Sir Kevin Lannister, my father's brother, is he in the city? He is, said Septa Yonella. The Lord Regent has taken up residence in the Red Keep. We will send for him at once. Thank you, said Cersei, thinking, Lord Regent, is it? She could not pretend to be surprised. A humble and a contrite heart proved to have benefits over and beyond cleansing the soul of sin. That night the Queen was moved to a larger cell two floors down, with a window she could actually look out of, and warm soft blankets for her bed. And when time came for supper, instead of stale bread and oaten porridge, she was served a rose capon, a bowl of crisp greens sprinkled with crushed walnuts, and a mound of mashed neeps a swim in butter. That night she crawled into her bed with a full stomach for the first time since she was taken, and slept through the black watches of the night undisturbed. The next morning with the dawn, there came her uncle. Cersei was still at her breakfast when the door swung open and Sir Kevin Lannister stepped through. Leave us, he told her jailers. Septimoel ushered Scalera and Yunella away and closed the door behind them. The queen rose to her feet. Sir Kevin looked older than when she had seen him last. He was a big man, broad in the shoulder and thick about the waist, with a close-cropped blonde beard that followed the line of his heavy jaw and short blonde hair in full retreat from his brow. A heavy woolen cloak dyed crimson was clasped at one shoulder with a golden brooch in the shape of a lion's head. I thank you for coming, the queen said. Her uncle frowned. You should sit. There are things that I must needs tell you. She did not want to sit. You are still angry with me. I hear it in your voice. Forgive me, uncle. It was wrong of me to throw my wine at you, but you think I care about a cup of wine? Lancel is my son, Cersei, your own nephew. If I am angry with you, that is the cause. You should have looked after him, guided him, found him a likely girl of good family. Instead, you... I know, I know. Lancel wanted me more than I ever wanted him. He still does, I will wager. I was alone, weak. Please, uncle, oh, uncle, it is so good to see your face. Your sweet, sweet face. I have done wicked things, I know. But I, I could not bear for you to hit me. She threw her arms around him, kissed his cheeks. Forgive me, forgive me. Sir Kevin suffered the embrace for a few heartbeats before he finally raised his own arms to return it. His hug was short and awkward. Enough, he said, his voice still flat and cold. You are forgiven. Now sit. I bring some hard tidings, Cersei. His words frightened her. Has something happened to Tommen? Oh, please, no. I have been so afraid for my son. No one will tell me anything. Please tell me that Tommen is well. His grace is well. He asks about you often. Sir Kevin laid his hands on her shoulders. He held her at arm's length. Jamie, then. Is it Jamie? 
No, Jamie is still in the Riverland somewhere. Somewhere? She did not like the sound of that. He took Raventree and accepted Lord Blackwood's surrender, said her uncle. But on his way back to Riveron, he left his tail and went off with a woman. A woman? Cersei stared at him, uncomprehending. What woman? Why? Where did they go? No one knows. We've had no further word of him. The woman may have been the Evanstar's daughter, Lady Brienne. Her? The Queen remembered the maid of Tarth, a huge, ugly, shambling thing who dressed in man's mail. Jamie would never abandon me for such a creature. My raven never reached him. Elsewise, he would have come. We've had reports of sellswords landing all over the south, Sir Kevin was saying. Toss the Stepstones, Cape Roth, where Stannis found the coin to hire a free company, I would dearly love to know. I do not have the strength to deal with them, not here. Mace Terrell does, but he refuses to bestir himself until this matter with his daughter has been settled. A headsman would settle Marjorie quick enough. Cersei did not care a fig for Stannis or his sellswords. The others take him, and the Tyrells both. Let them slaughter each other. The realm will be the better for it. Please, uncle, take me out of here. How? By force of arms? Sir Kevin walked to the window and gazed out frowning. I would need to make an abattoir of this holy place, and I do not have the men. The best part of our forces was at River Run with your brother. I had no time to raise a new host. He turned back to face her. I have spoken with his high holiness. He will not release you until you have atoned for your sins. I have confessed, atoned, I said, before the city. A walk. No. She knew what her uncle was about to say, and she did not want to hear it. Never. Tell him that, if you speak to him again. I am a queen, not some duckside whore. No harm would come to you. No one would touch you. No, she said more sharply. I would sooner die. Sir Kevin was unmoved. If that is your wish, you may soon have it granted. His High Holiness is resolved that you be tried for regicide, deicide, incest, and high treason. Deicide? She almost laughed. When did I kill a god? The High Septon speaks for the seven here on earth. Strike at him, and you're striking at the gods themselves. Her uncle raised a hand before she could protest. It does no good to speak of such things. Not here. The time for all that is that trial. He gazed about her cell. The look on his face spoke volumes. Someone is listening. Even here, even now, she dare not speak freely. She took a breath. Who will try me? The faith, her uncle said, unless you insist on a trial by battle, in which case you must be championed by a knight of the king's guard. Whatever the outcome, your rule is at an end. I will serve as Tommen's regent until he comes of age. Mace Tyrell has been named King's Hand. Grand Maester Pycelle and Sir Harris Swift will continue as before, but Paxter Redwine is now Lord Admiral, and Randall Tarley has assumed the duties of Justiciar. Tyrell Bannerman, 
the both of them. The whole governance of the realm was being handed to her enemies, Queen Marjorie's kith and kin. Marjorie sends accused as well. Her and those cousins of hers, how is it that the sparrows freed her and not me? Randall Tarley insisted. He was the first to reach King's Landing when this storm broke, and he brought his army with him. The Tyrell girls will still be tried, but the case against them is weak. His High Holiness admits. All of the men named as the Queen's lovers have denied the accusation or recanted, save for your maim singer, who appears to be half mad. So the High Septon handed the girls over to Tarly's custody, and Lord Randall swore a holy oath to deliver them for trial when the time comes. And her accusers? The Queen demanded. Who holds them? Osney Kettleblack and the Blue Bard are here, beneath the sept. The Red Wine Twins have been declared innocent, and Hamish the Harper has died. The rest are in the dungeons under the Red Keep, in the charge of your man, Kyburn. Kyburn, thought Cersei. That was good. Once chore at least that she could clutch. Lord Kyburn had them, and Lord Kyburn could do wonders. And horrors. He can do horrors as well. There is more. Worse. Will you sit down? Sit down? Cersei shook her head. What could be worse? She was to be tried for high treason, whilst the little queen and her cousins flew off as free as birds. Tell me, what is it? Uh, Miss Heller, we have had grave news from Dawn. Tyrion, she said at once. Tyrion had sent her little girl to Dawn, and Cersei had dispatched Sir Balan Swan to bring her home. All Dornishmen were snakes, and the Martells were the worst of them. The Red Viper had even tried to defend the imp, had come within a hair's breadth of a victory that would have allowed the dwarf to escape the blame for Joffrey's murder. It's him. He's been in Dawn all this time, and now he sees my daughter. Sir Kevin gave her another scowl. Marcella was attacked by a Dornish knight named Gerald Dane. She's alive but hurt. He slashed her face open, and she... Um, I'm, I'm sorry. She lost an ear. An ear? Cersei stared at him aghast. She was just a child, my precious princess. She was so pretty, too. He cut off her ear? And Prince Doran and his Dornish knights, where were they? They could not defend one little girl. Where was Ares O'Cart? Slain, defending her. Dane cut him down, it said. The sword of the morning had been a Dane, the Queen recalled. But he was long dead. Who was this Sir Gerald? And why would he wish to harm her daughter? She could not make any sense of this, unless... Tyrion lost half his nose in the Battle of the Blackwater, slashing her face, cutting off an ear. The imp's grubby little fingers are all over this. Prince Doran says nothing of your brother, and Balon Swan writes that this Marcella puts it all on this Gerald Dane. Darkstar, they call him. She gave a bitter laugh. Whatever they call him, he is my brother's catspaw. 
Tyrion has friends amongst the Dornish. The imp planned this all along. It was Tyrion who betrothed my cellar to Prince Trisane. Now I see why. You see Tyrion in every shadow. He is a creature of the shadows. He killed Joffrey. He killed father. Did you think he would stop there? I feared that the imp was still in King's Landing, plotting harm to Tommen. But he must have gone to Dawn instead, to kill Marcella first. Cersei paced the width of the cell. I need to be with Tommen. This King's Guard's knights are as useless as nipples on a breastplate. She rounded on her uncle. Sir Aerys was killed, you said? At the hands of this man, Darkstar, yes. Dead? He's dead? Are you certain of that? That is what we have been told. Then there is an empty place amongst the King's Guard. It must be filled at once. Tommen must be protected. Lord Tarly is drawing up a list of worthy knights for your brother to consider. But until Jamie reappears... The king can give a man a white cloak. Tommen's a good boy. Tell him whom to name, and he will name him. And whom would you have him name? She did not have a ready answer. My champion will need a new name, as well as a new face. Kyburn will know. Trust him in this. You and I have had our differences, uncle, but for the blood we share, and the love you bore my father, for Tommen's sake and the sake of his poor maimed sister, do as I ask you. Go to Lord Kyburn, on my behalf. Bring him a white cloak, and tell him that the time has come. The Queen's Guard You were the Queen's men, said Resnick Moresnick. The King desires his own men about him when he holds court. I am the Queen's man still, today, tomorrow, always, until my last breath, or hers. Barristan Selmy refused to believe that Daenerys Targaryen was dead. Perhaps that was why he was being put aside. One by one, his dower removes us all. Strong Belwas lingered at the door of death in the temple, under the care of the Blue Graces, though Selmy half-suspected they were finishing the job those haunted locusts had begun. Scarhaz's shave-pate had been stripped of his command. The unsolid had withdrawn to their barracks, Jogo, Dario Naharis, Admiral Grolio, and hero of the unsolid remained hostages of the Yunkai. Ago and Ricaro and the rest of the Queen's Calisar had been dispatched across the river to search for their lost queen. Even Miss Andy had been replaced. The king did not think it fit to use a child as his herald, and a one-time Nazi slave at that. And now, me. There was a time when he might have taken this dismissal as a blot upon his honour, but that was in Westeros. In the viper's pit that was Meereen, honour seemed as silly as a fool's motley, and this mistrust was mutual. His Zolorek might be his queen's consort, but he would never be his king. If his grace wishes for me to remove myself from court, his radiance, the seneschal corrected, no, 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 you misunderstand me. 
His worship is to receive a delegation from the young corps to discuss the withdrawal of their armies. <laughs> they may ask for um, recompense for those who lost their lives to the dragon's wrath. A, a delicate situation. The king feels it will be better if they see a Miranese king upon the throne, protected by Miranese warriors. Surely you can understand that, sir. I understand more than you know. Might I know which men his grace has chosen to protect him? Resnick, Mo Resnick, smiled his slimy smile. Fearsome fighters who love his worship well. Gogor, the giant. Kras, the spotted cap. Bellaquo, bonebreaker. Heroes all. Pit fighters all? Sir Barrister was unsurprised. His Lorik sat uneasily on his new throne. It had been a thousand years since Mirin last had a king, and there were some, even amongst the old blood, who thought they might have made a better choice than him. Outside the city sat the Yunkai, with their swords and their allies. Inside were the sons of the Harpy. And the king's protectors grew fewer every day. Hisdar's blunder with Grey Worm had cost him the unsolid. When His Grace had tried to put them under the command of a cousin, as he had the brazen beasts, Grey Worm had informed the king that they were free men who took commands only from their mother. As for the brazen beasts, half were freed men and the rest shavepates, whose true loyalty might still be to Skahaz Mokandek. The pit fighters were King Hisdar's only reliable support against the sea of enemies. May they defend his grace against all threats? Sir Barristan's tone gave no hint of his true feelings. He had learned to hide such back in King's Landing years ago. His magnificence, Resnek Moresnek stressed, your other duties shall remain unchanged, sir. Should this peace fail, his radiance would still wish for you to command his forces against the enemies of our city. He has that much sense, at least. Bellaquo Bonebreaker and Gogor the Giant might serve as Hesdar's shields, but the notion of either leading an army into battle was so ludicrous that the old knight almost smiled. I am his graces to command? Not grace! The Seneschal complained, that style is Westerosi. His magnificence, his radiance, his worship. His vanity would fit better. As you say. Resnack licked his lips. Then we are done. This time his oily smile betokened dismissal. Sir Barristan took his leave, grateful to leave the stench of the Seneschal's perfume behind him. A man should smell of sweat, not flowers. The Great Pyramid of Merin was eight hundred feet high from base to point. The Seneschal's chambers were on the second level. The Queen's apartments and his own occupied the highest step. A long climb for a man my age, Sir Barrison thought, as he started up. He had been known to make that climb five or six times a day on the Queen's business as the aches in his knees and the small of his back could attest. There will come a day when I can no longer face these steps, he thought, 
and that day will be here sooner than I would like. Before it came, he must make certain that at least a few of his lads were ready to take his place at the Queen's side. I will knight them myself when they are worthy, and give them each a horse and golden spurs. The royal apartments were still and silent. Hisdar had not taken up residence there, preferring to establish his own suite of rooms deep in the heart of the Great Pyramid, where massive brick walls surrounded him on all sides. Mazara Miklas and Keza, and the rest of the Queen's young cupbearers, hostages in truth, but both Selmy and the Queen had become so fond of them that it was hard for him to think of them that way. I had gone with the king, whilst Erie and Jiqui departed with the other Dothraki. Only Missande remained, a forlorn little ghost haunting the queen's chambers at the apex of the pyramid. Sir Barristan walked out onto the terrace. The sky above Meryn was the colour of corpse flesh, dull and white and heavy, a mass of unbroken cloud from horizon to horizon. The sun was hidden behind a wall of cloud. It would set unseen, as it had risen unseen that morning. The night would be hot, a sweaty, suffocating, sticky sort of night without a breath of air. For three days rain had threatened, but not a drop had fallen. Rain would come as a relief. It might help wash the city clean. From here he could see four lesser pyramids, the city's western walls and the camps of the Yankish men by the shores of Slaver's Bay, where a thick column of greasy smoke twisted upwards like some monstrous serpent. Ah, the Yankish men burning their dead, he realized. A pale mare is galloping through their siege camps. Despite all the Queen had done, the sickness had spread both within the city walls and without. Marian's markets were closed, its streets empty. King Hisdar had allowed the fighting pits to remain open, but the crowds were sparse. The Miranese had even begun to shun the Temple of the Graces, reportedly. The slavers will find some way to blame Daenerys for that as well, Sir Barristan thought bitterly. He could almost hear them whispering, great masters, sons of the harpy, young Kai, all telling one another that his queen was dead. Half of the city believed it, though as yet they did not have the courage to say such words aloud. But soon, I think. Sir Barrison felt very tired, very old. Where have all the years gone? Of late, whenever he knelt to drink from a still pool, he saw a stranger's face gazing up from the water's depths. When had those crow's feet first appeared around his pale blue eyes? How long ago had his hair turned from sunlight into snow? Years ago, old men, decades. Yet it seemed like only yesterday that he had been raised to knighthood after the tourney at King's Landing. He could still recall the touch of King Aegon's sword upon his shoulder, light as a maiden's kiss. His words had caught in his throat when he spoke his vows. At the feast that night, he had eaten ribs of wild boar, prepared the Dornish way with dragon peppers, 
so hot they burned his mouth. Forty-seven years, and the taste still lingered in his memory. Yet he could not have said what he supped on ten days ago if all seven kingdoms had depended on it. Boiled dog? Mm, most like. Or some other foul dish that tasted no better? Not for the first time, Selmy wondered at the strange fates that had brought him here. He was a knight of Westeros, a man of the Stormlands, and the Dornish Marches. His place was in the Seven Kingdoms, not here, upon the sweltering shores of Slaver's Bay. I came to bring Daenerys home. Yet he had lost her, just as he had lost her father and her brother. Even Robert, I failed him too. Perhaps his dar was wiser than he knew. Ten years ago, I would have sensed what Daenerys meant to do. Ten years ago, I would have been quick enough to stop her. Instead, he had stood befuddled as she leapt into the pit, shouting her name, then running uselessly after her across the scarlet sands. I am become old and slow. Small wonder Naharis mocked him as Sir Grandfather. Would Dario have moved more quickly if he had been beside the Queen that day? Selmy thought he knew the answer to that, although it was not one he liked. He had dreamed of it again last night. Belwas on his knees, retching up bile and blood, Hisdar urging on the dragon slayers, men and women fleeing in terror, fighting on the steps, climbing over one another, screaming and shouting, and Daenerys. Her hair was aflame. She had the whip in her hand, and she was shouting. And then she was on the dragon's back, flying. The sand that Drogon stirred as he took wing had stung Sir Barristan's eyes. But through a veil of tears he had watched the beast fly from the pit, his great black wings slapping at the shoulders of the bronze warriors at the gates. The rest he learned later. Beyond the gates had been a solid press of people. Maddened by the smell of dragon, horses below reared in terror, lashing out with iron-shod hooves. Food stalls and palanquins alike were overturned, men knocked down and trampled. Spears were thrown, crossbows were fired. Some struck home. The dragon twisted violently in the air, wounds smoking, the girl clinging to his back. Then he loosed the fire. It had taken the rest of the day and most of the night for the brazen beasts to gather up the corpses. The final count was 214 slain, three times as many burned or wounded. Drogon was gone from the city by then, last seen high over the Skahazadan, flying north. Of Daenerys Targaryen, no trace had been found. Some swore they had seen her fall. Others insisted that the dragon had carried her off to devour her. They are wrong. Sir Barristan knew no more of dragons than the tales every child hears, but he knew Targaryens. Daenerys had been riding that dragon, as Aegon had once ridden Balerion of old. She might be flying home, he told himself aloud. No, murmured a soft voice behind him. She would not do that, sir. 
She would not go home without us. Sebastian turned. Miss Sandy, child, how long have you been standing there? Not long. This one is sorry if she has disturbed you. She hesitated. Skahas Mokandak wishes words with you. The shave pit. You spoke with him? Oh, that was rash, rash. The enmity ran deep between Skahas and the king, and the girl was clever enough to know that. Skahas had been outspoken in his opposition to the queen's marriage. In fact, his da had not forgotten. Is he here, in the pyramid? When he wishes, he comes and goes, sir. Yes, he would. Who told you he wants words with me? A brazen beast. He wore an owl mask. He wore an owl mask when he spoke to you. By now he could be a jackal, a tiger, a sloth. Sebastian had hated the mask from the start, and never more than now. Honest men should never need to hide their faces. And the shave pate? What could he be thinking? After Hisdar had given command of the brazen beast to his cousin, Magaz Zolorek, Skahaz had been named warden of the river, with charge of all the ferries, dredges, and irrigation ditches along the Skahazadan for fifty leagues. But the shave pate had refused that ancient and honorable office, as Hisdar called it, preferring to retire to the modest pyramid of Kandak. Without the queen to protect him, he takes a great risk coming here. And if Sir Barristan were seen speaking with him, suspicion might fall on the knight as well. He did not like the taste of this. It smelled of deceit, of whispers and lies and plots hatched in the dark, all the things he hoped to leave behind with a spider and Lord Littlefinger and their ilk. Barristan Selmy was not a bookish man, but he had often glanced through the pages of the White Book, where the deeds of his predecessors had been recorded. Some had been heroes, some weaklings, knaves, or cravens. Most were only men, quicker and stronger than most, more skilled with sword and shield, but still prey to pride, ambition, lust, love, anger, jealousy, greed for gold, hunger for power, and all the other failings that afflicted lesser mortals. The best of them overcame their flaws, did their duty, and died with their swords in their hands. The worst? The worst were those who played the game of thrones. Can you find this owl again? he asked Miss Andy. This one can try, sir. Tell him I will speak with, with our friend, after dark, by the stables. The pyramid's main doors were closed and barred at sunset. The stables would be quiet at that hour. Make certain it is the same owl. It would not serve to have the wrong brazen beast hear of this. This one understands. Miss Andy turned as if to go, then paused for a moment and said, It is said that the young Kai have ringed the city all about with scorpions to loose iron bolts into the sky should Drogon return. Sir Barristan had heard that too. It is no simple thing to slay a dragon in the sky. In Westeros, many tried to bring down Aegon and his sisters. None succeeded. 
Miss Andy nodded. It was hard to tell if she was reassured. Do you think that they will find her, sir? The grasslands are so vast, and dragons leave no tracks across the sky. Ego and Ricardo are blood of her blood, and who knows they Dothraki see better than Dothraki? He squeezed her shoulder. They will find her, if she can be found. If she still lives. There were other cows who prowled the grass, horse lords with calisars whose riders numbered in the tens of thousands. But the girl did not need to hear that. You love her well, I know. I swear I shall keep her safe. The words seemed to give the girl some comfort. Words are wind, though, Sir Barristan thought. How can I protect the Queen when I am not with her? Barristan Selmy had known many kings. He had been born during the troubled reign of Aegon the Unlikely, beloved by the common folk, had received his knighthood at his hands. Aegon's son, Jaehaerys, had bestowed the white cloak on him when he was three and twenty, after he slew Malus the Monstrous during the War of the Ninepenny Kings. In that same cloak he had stood beside the Iron Throne as madness consumed Jaehaerys' son, Aerys. Stood and saw and heard, and yet did nothing. But no, that was not fair. He did his duty. Some nights a barristan wondered if he had not done that duty too well. He had sworn his vows before the eyes of gods and men. He could not in honor go against them. But the keeping of those vows had grown hard in the last years of King Aerys' reign. He had seen things that it pained him to recall, and more than once he wondered how much of the blood was on his own hands. If he had not gone into Duskendale to rescue Aerys from Lord Darkland's dungeons, the king might well have died there as Tywin Lannister sacked the town. Then Prince Rhaegar would have ascended the Iron Throne, mayhaps to heal the realm. Duskendale had been his finest hour, yet the memory tasted bitter on his tongue. It was his failures that haunted him at night, though. Jaehaerys, Ares, Robert, three dead kings, Rhaegar, who would have been a finer king than any of them, Princess Elia, and the children, Aegon, just a babe, Rhaenys with her kitten, dead every one. Yet he still lived, who had sworn to protect them. And now Daenerys, his bright shining child queen, she is not dead. I will not believe it. Afternoon brought Sir Barristan a brief respite from his doubts. He spent it in the training hall on the pyramid's third level, working with his boys, teaching them the art of sword and shield, horse and lance, and chivalry the code that made a knight more than any pit-fighter. Daenerys would need protectors her own age about her after he was gone, and Sir Barristan was determined to give her such. The lads he was instructing ranged in age from eight to twenty. He had started with more than sixty of them, but the training had proved too rigorous for many. Less than half that number now remained, but some showed great promise. With no king to guard, I will have more time to train them now, he realized. 
as you walk from pair to pair, watching them go at one another with blunted swords and spears with rounded heads. Brave boys, base-born I, but some will make good knights, and they love the queen. If not for her, all of them would have ended in the pits. King Hezdar has his pit fighters, but Daenerys will have knights. Keep your shield up, he called. Show me your strokes. Together now, low, high, low, low, high, low. Selmy took his simple supper out onto the Queen's terrace that night and ate it as the sun went down. Through the purple twilight, he watched fires waken one by one in the great stepped pyramids as the many-coloured bricks of Marion faded to grey and then to black. Shadows gathered in the streets and alleys below, making pools and rivers. In the dusk, the city seemed a tranquil place, even beautiful. That is pestilence, not peace, the old knight told himself, with his last sip of wine. He did not wish to be conspicuous, so when he was finished with his supper, he changed out of his court clothes, trading the white cloak of the Queen's Guard for a hooded brown traveller's cloak, such as any common man might wear. He kept his sword and dagger. This could still be some trap. He had little trust in Hesdar, and less in Resnek Moresnek. The perfume Seneschal could well be part of this, trying to lure him into a secret meeting, so he could sweep up him and Skahas both, and charge them with conspiring against the king. If the shave-pate speaks treason, he will leave me no choice but to arrest him. Hisdar is my queen's consort, however little I may like it. My duty is to him, not Skahas. Or was it? The first duty of the king's guard was to defend the king from harm or threat. The white knights were sworn to obey the king's commands as well, to keep his secrets, counsel him when counsel was requested, and keep silent when it was not, serve his pleasure, and defend his name and honour. Strictly speaking, it was purely the king's choice whether or not to extend king's guard protection to others, even those of royal blood. Some kings thought it right and proper to dispatch king's guard to serve and defend their wives and children, siblings, aunts, uncles, and cousins of greater and lesser degree, and occasionally even their lovers, mistresses, and bastards. But others preferred to use household knights and men-at-arms for those purposes, whilst keeping their seven as their own personal guards, never far from their sides. If the queen had commanded me to protect his dar, I would have had no choice but to obey. But Daenerys Targaryen had never established a proper queen's guard, even for herself, nor issued any commands in respect to her consort. The world was simpler when I had a lord commander to decide such matters, Selmy reflected. Now I am the lord commander— and it is hard to know which path is right. When at last he came to the bottom of the last flight of steps, he found himself all but alone amongst the torch-lit corridors inside the pyramid's massive brick walls. The great gates were closed and barred, as he had anticipated. Four brazen beasts, 
stood guard outside those doors, four more within. It was those that the old knight encountered, big men, masters boar, bear, vole, and manticore. All quite, sir, the bear told him. Keep it so. It was not unknown for Sir Barriston to walk around at night to make certain the pyramid was secure. Deeper inside the pyramid, another four brazen beasts had been set to guard the iron doors outside the pit where Viserion and Rhaegal were chained. The light of the torches shimmered off their masks, ape, ram, wolf, crocodile. Have they been fed? Sir Barristan asked. Aye, sir, replied the ape. A sheep apiece. And how long will that suffice, I wonder? As the dragons grew, so did their appetites. It was time to find the shave-pate. Sir Barristan made his way, past the elephants and the queen's silver mare, to the back of the stables. An ass nickered as he went by, and a few of the horses stirred at the light of his lantern. Elsewise, all was dark and silent. Then a shadow detached itself from inside an empty stall, and became another brazen beast, clad in pleated black skirt, greaves, and muscled breastplate. A cat, said Barristan Selmy, when he saw the brass beneath the hood. When the shave-pate had commanded the brazen beast, he had favoured a serpent's head mask, imperious and frightening. Cats go everywhere, replied the familiar voice of Skahaz Mokandak. No one ever looks at them. If his star should learn that you are here, who would tell him? Margaz? Margaz knows what I want him to know. The beasts are still mine. Do not forget it. The shave-pate's voice was muffled by his mask, but Selmy could hear the anger in it. I have the poisoner. Who? His does confectioner. His name would mean nothing to you. The man was just a cat's paw. The sons of the harpy took his daughter and swore she would be returned unarmed once a queen was dead. Belmars and the dragon saved Daenerys. No one saved the girl. She was returned to her father in the black of night, in nine pieces, one for every year she lived. Why? Darts gnawed at him. The sons had stopped their killing. His dar's peace is a shame. Not at first, no. The young guy were afraid of our queen, of her unsolid, of her dragons. This land has known dragons before. Yurkazo Yunzek had read his histories, he knew. His dar as well. Why not a piece? Daenerys wanted it, they could see that. Wanted it too much. She should have marched to Astapor. Skahaz moved closer. That was before. The pit changed all. Daenerys gone. Yurkaz dead. In place of one old lion, a pack of jackals. Bloodbeard. That one has no taste for peace. And there is more, worse. Volantis has launched its fleet against us. Volantis? Selma's sword hand tingled. We made a peace with Yunkai, not with Valentus. You are certain? Certain. The wise masters know. So do their friends. The Arpi, Resnek, Hisdar. This king will open the city gates to the Valentines when they arrive. 
all those Daenerys freed will be enslaved again. Even some who were never slaves will be fitted for chains. You may end your days in a fighting pit, old man. Kras will eat your heart. His head was pounding. Daenerys must be told. Find her first. Skarhaz grasped his forearm. His fingers felt like iron. We cannot wait for her. I've spoken with the free brothers, the mother's men, the stalwart shields. They have no trust in Lorik. We must break the young guy, but we need the unsolid. Grey Worm will listen to you. Speak to him. To what end? He is speaking treason, conspiracy. Life. The shavepate's eyes were black pools behind the brazen cat mask. We must strike before volunteers arrive. Break the siege. Kill the slaver lords. Turn their cell swords. The Yunkai do not expect an attack. I have spies in their camps. Their sickness, they say, worse every day. Discipline has gone to rot. The lords are drunk more often than not, gorging themselves at feasts, telling each other of the riches they'll divide when Mirian falls, squabbling over primacy. Bloodbeard and the tattered prince despise each other. No one expects a fight, not now. Hisdar's peace has lulled us to sleep, they believe. Daenerys signed that peace, Sir Barristan said. It is not for us to break it without her leave. And if she is dead, demanded Skars, what answer? I say she would want us to protect her city, her children. Her children were the freedmen. Mysa, they called her, all those whose chains she broke. Mother. The shavepate was not wrong. Daenerys would want her children protected. What of his star? He is still her consort, her king, her husband. Her poisoner. Is he? Where is your proof? The crown he wears is proof enough. The throne he sits. Open your eyes, old man. That is all he needed from Daenerys. All he ever wanted. Once he had it, why share the rule? Why, indeed? It had been so hot down in the pit. He could still see the air shimmering above the scarlet sands, smell the blood spilling from the men who died for their amusement, and he could still hear Hisdar urging his queen to try the honeyed locusts. Theirs are very tasty, sweet and hot. Yet he never touched so much as one himself. Selmy rubbed his temple. I swore no vows to Hisdar, Zoloric, and if I had... He has cast me aside, just as Joffrey did. This, uh, this confectioner, I want to question him myself, alone. Is it that way? The shavepate crossed his arms against his chest. Done, then. Question him as you like. If, um, if what he has to say convinces me, if I join with you in this, uh, this... Uh, I would require your word that no harm would come to his Zoloric, until, unless it can be proved that he had some part in this. Why do you care so much for his old man? If he is not the RP, 
he is the Arpy's firstborn son. All I know for certain is that he is the Queen's consort. I want your word on this, or I swear I shall oppose you. Skaha's smile was savage. My word, then. No harm to Hisdar till his guilt is proved. But when we have the proof, I mean to kill him with my own hands. I want to pull his entrails out and show them to him before I let him die. No, the old knight thought. If Hisdar conspired at my queen's death, I will see to him myself. But his death will be swift and clean. The guards of Westeros were far away, yet Sir Barristan Selmy paused for a moment to say a silent prayer, asking the crone to light his way to wisdom. For the children, he told himself, for the city, for my queen. I will talk to Grey Worm, he said. The Iron Suitor Grief appeared alone at daybreak, her black sails stark against the pale pink skies of morning. Fifty-four, Victorian thought sourly when they woke him, and she sails alone. Silently he cursed the storm god for his malice, his rage, a black stone in his belly. Where are my ships? He had set sail from the shields with ninety-three of the hundred that had once made up the Iron Fleet, a fleet belonging not to a single lord, but to the sea-stone chair itself, captained and crewed by men from all the islands, ships smaller than the great war drummons of the Greenland's eye, but thrice the size of any common longship, with deep hulls and savage rams, fit to meet the king's own fleets in battle. In the stepstones they had taken on grain and game and fresh water, after the long voyage along the bleak and barren coast of dawn, with its shoals and whirlpools. There the Iron Victory had captured a fat merchant ship, the great cog, noble lady, on her way to Old Town by way of Gulltown, Duskendale, and King's Landing, with a cargo of salt cud, whale oil, and pickled herring. The food was a welcome addition to their stores. Five other prizes taken in the Red Wine Strait and along the Dornish coast. Three cogs, a galleus and a galley, had brought their numbers to ninety-nine. Nine and ninety ships had left the Stepstones in three proud fleets, with orders to join up again off the southern tip of the Isle of Cedars. Forty-five had now arrived on the far side of the world, Twenty-two of Victorian's own had straggled in, by threes and fours, sometimes alone. Fourteen of Ralph the Limpers. Only nine of those that had sailed with Red Ralph Stonehouse. Red Ralph himself was amongst the missing. To their number, the fleet had added nine new prizes taken on the seas. So the sum was fifty-four. But the captured ships were cogs and fishing boats and merchantmen and slavers, not warships. In battle, they would be poor substitutes for the lost ships of the Iron Fleet. The last ship to appear had been the Maiden's Bane, three days previous. The day before that, three ships had come out of the south together, his captive noble lady, 
lumbering along between Raven Feeder and Iron Kiss. But the day before, and the day before, there had been nothing, and only Headless Jane and Fear before that. Then two more days of empty seas and cloudless skies, after Ralph the Limper appeared with the remnants of his squadron. Lord Quellen, White Widow, Lamentation, Woe, Leviathan, Iron Lady, Reaper's Wind, and Warhammer, with six more ships behind, two of them storm-wrecked and under tow. Storms! Ralph the Limper had muttered when he came crawling to Victorian. Three big storms and foul winds between. Red winds out of Valyria that smelled of ash and brimstone, and black winds that drove us toward that blighted shore. This voyage was cursed from the first. The crow's eye fears you, my lord. Why else send you so far away? He does not mean for us to return. Victorian had thought the same when he met the first storm, a day out of old Volantis. The gods hate king slayers, he brooded. Elsewise, you and Crow's Eye would have died a dozen deaths by my hand. As the sea crashed around him and the deck rose and fell beneath his feet, he had seen Dagon's feast and Red Tide slam together so violently that both exploded into splinters. My brother's work, he thought. Those were the first two ships he'd lost from his own third of the fleet, but not the last. So he had slapped the limper twice across the face and said, The first is for the ships you lost, the second for your talk of curses. Speak of that again, and I will nail your tongue to the mast. If the crow's eye can make mutes, so can I. The throb of pain in his left hand made the words harsher than they might have been elsewise. But he meant what he said. More ships will come. The storms are done for now. I will have my fleet. A monkey on the mast above howled derision, almost as if it could taste his frustration. Filthy, noisy beast. He could send a man up after it, but the monkeys seemed to like that game, and had proved themselves more agile than his crew. The howls rang in his ears, though, and made the throbbing in his hand seem worse. Fifty-four, he grumbled. It would have been too much to hope for the full strength of the Iron Fleet after a voyage of such length. But seventy ships, even eighty, the drowned guard might have granted him that much. Would that we had the damp hair with us, or some other priest. Victorian had made sacrifice before setting sail, and again in the step zones, when he split the fleet in three. But perhaps he had said the wrong prayers. That or the drowned guard has no power here. More and more he had come to fear that they had sailed too far into strange seas where even the guards were queer. But such doubts he confided only to his dusky woman, who had no tongue to repeat them. When grief appeared, Victorian summoned Wolf One Ear. I will want words with a vole. Send word to Ralph the Limper, Bloodless Tom and the Black Shepherd. All hunting parties are to be recalled. The shore camp's broken up by first light. Load as much fruit as can be gathered, and drive the pigs aboard the ships. We can slaughter them at need. Shark is to remain here 
to tell any stragglers where we've gone. She would need that long to make repairs. The storms had left her little more than a hulk. That would bring them down to fifty-three. But there was no help for it. The fleet departs upon the morrow, on the evening tide. As you command, said Wolf. But another day might mean another ship, Lord Captain. Aye, and ten days might mean ten ships, or none at all. We have squandered too many days waiting on the sight of sails. Our victory will be that much the sweeter if we win it with a smaller fleet, and I must needs reach the Dragon Queen before the Volantines. In Volantis he had seen the galleys taking on provisions. The whole city had seemed drunk. Sailors and soldiers and tinkers had been observed dancing in the streets with nobles and fat merchants, and in every inn and wine sink cups were being raised to the new triarchs. All the talk had been of the gold and gems and slaves that would flood into Volantis once the Dragon Queen was dead. One day of such reports was all that Victorian Greyjoy could stomach. He paid the gold price for food and water, though it shamed him, and took his ships back out to sea. The storms would have scattered and delayed the Volantines, even as they had his own ships. If fortune smiled, many of their warships might have sunk or run aground, but not all. No god was that good, and those green galleys that survived by now could well have sailed around Valeria. They will be sweeping north toward Meereen and Yunkai, great drummers of war teeming with slave soldiers. If the storm guard spared them, by now they could be in the Gulf of Grief. Three hundred ships, perhaps as many as five hundred. Their allies were already off Meereen, Yunkishmen and Astapors, men from New Gis and Karth and Tolus, and the storm guard knew where else. Even Meereen's own warships the ones that fled the city before its fall. Against all that, Victorian had four and fifty, three and fifty, less the shark. The crow's eye had sailed halfway across the world, reaving and plundering from Carth to Talltree's town, calling it unholy ports, beyond where only madmen went. Euron had even braved the smoking sea and lived to tell of it. And that with only one ship, if he can mock the guards, so can I. Aye, Captain, said Wolf one ear. He was not half the man that Newt the barber was, but the crow's eye had stolen Newt. By raising him to Lord of Oakenshield, his brother made Victorian's best man his own. Is it still to be Marine? Where else the Dragon Queen awaits me in Marine? The fairest woman in the world if my brother could be believed. Her hair is silver gold. Her eyes are amethysts. Was it too much to hope that for once Euron had told it true? Perhaps. Like as not, the girl would prove to be some puck-faced satin with teats slapping against her knees. Her dragons, no more than tattooed lizards from the swamps of Sothorius. If she is all that Euron claims, though, they had heard talk of the beauty of Daenerys Targaryen from the lips of pirates in the stepstones and fat merchants in old Volantis. It might be true, 
and Euron had not made Victorian a gift of her. The crow's eye meant to take her for himself. He sends me like a serving man to fetch her. How he will howl when I claim her for myself. Let the men mutter. They had sailed too far and lost too much for Victorian to turn west without his prize. The iron captain closed his good hand into a fist. Go see that my commands are carried out, and find the maester wherever he is hiding, and send him to my cabin. I, Wolf hobbled off. Victorian Greyjoy turned back toward the prow, his gaze sweeping across his fleet. Long ships filled the sea, sails furled and oars shipped, floating at anchor or run up on the pale sand shore. The Isle of Cedars. Where were these cedars? Drowned four hundred years ago, it seemed. Victorian had gone ashore a dozen times, hunting fresh meat, and had yet to see a cedar. The girlish maester, Euron, had inflicted upon him back in Westeros, claimed this place had once been called the Isle of a Hundred Battles. But the men who had fought those battles had all gone to dust centuries ago. The Isle of Monkeys, that's what they should call it. There were pigs as well, the biggest, blackest boars that any of the ironborn had ever seen, and plenty of squealing piglets in the brush, bold creatures that had no fear of man. They were learning, though. The larders of the iron fleet were filling up with smoked hams, salted pork, and bacon. The monkeys, though, the monkeys were a plague. Victorian had forbidden his men to bring any of the demonic creatures aboard ship, yet somehow half his fleet was now infested with them, even his own iron victory. He could see some now, swinging from spar to spar and ship to ship. Would that I had a crossbow! Victorian did not like this sea, nor these endless cloudless skies, nor the blazing sun that beat down on their heads and baked the decks until the boards were hot enough to scorch bare feet. He did not like these storms, which seemed to come up out of nowhere. The seas around Pike were often stormy, but there at least a man could smell them coming. These southern storms were as treacherous as women. Even the water was the wrong colour. A shimmering turquoise close to shore, and farther out a blue so deep that it was almost black. Victorian missed the grey-green waters of home, with their white caps and surges. He did not like this Isle of Cedars, either. The hunting might be good, but the forests were too green and still, full of twisted trees and queer bright flowers like none his men had ever seen before, and there were horrors lurking amongst the broken palaces and shattered statues of drowned Velus, half a league north of the point where the fleet lay at anchor. The last time Victorian had spent a night ashore, his dreams had been dark and disturbing, and when he woke, his mouth was full of blood. The maester said he had bitten his own tongue in his sleep, but he took it for a sign from the drowned god, a warning, that if he lingered here too long, he would choke on his own blood. On the day the doom came to Valeria, it was said 
a wall of water 300 feet high had descended on the island, drowning hundreds of thousands of men, women, and children, leaving none to tell the tale but some fisher folk who had been at sea and a handful of velocity spearmen posted in a stout stone tower on the island's highest hill, who had seen the hills and valleys beneath them turn into a raging sea. Fair Velus, with its palaces of cedar and pink marble, had vanished in a heartbeat. On the north end of the island, the ancient brick walls and stepped pyramids of the slaver port, Gazai, had suffered the same fate. So many drowned men, the drowned guard will be strong there, Victorian had thought, when he chose the island for the three parts of his fleet to join up again. He was no priest, though. What if he had gotten it backwards? Perhaps a drowned guard had destroyed the island in his wrath. His brother Aaron might have known, but the damp hair was back on the Iron Islands preaching against the crow's eye and his rule. No godless man may sit the sea-stone chair. Yet the captains and kings had cried for Euron at the king's moot, choosing him above Victorian and other godly men. The morning sun was shining off the water in ripples of light too bright to look upon. Victorian's head had begun to pound, though whether from the sun, his hand, or the doubts that troubled him, he could not say. He made his way below to his cabin, where the air was cool and dim. The dusky woman knew what he wanted without his even asking. As he eased himself into his chair, she took a soft damp cloth from the basin and laid it across his brow. Good, he said, good. And now the hand. The dusky woman made no reply. Euron had sliced her tongue out before giving her to him. Victorian did not doubt that the crow's eye had bedded her as well. That was his brother's way. Euron's gifts are poisoned, the captain had reminded himself, the day the dusky woman came aboard. I want none of his leavings. He had decided then that he would slit her throat and toss her in the sea, a blood sacrifice to the drowned god. Somehow, though, he'd never quite gotten around to it. They had come a long way since. Victorian could talk to the dusky woman. She never attempted to talk back. Grief is the last, he told her, as she eased his glove off. The rest are lost or late or sunk. He grimaced as the woman slid the point of her knife beneath the soiled linen wound about his shield hand. Some will say I should not have split the fleet. Fools! Nine and ninety ships we had, a cumbersome beast to shepherd across the seas to the far end of the world. If I'd kept them together, the faster ships would have been held hostage to the slowest. And where to find provisions for so many mouths? No port wants so many warships in their waters? The storms would have scattered us in any case, like leaves strewn across the summer sea. Instead, he had broken the great fleet into squadrons and sent each by a different route to Slaver's Bay. The swiftest ships he gave to Red Ralph Stonehouse to sail the Corsairs Road along the northern coast of Sartorius. The dead cities, rutting on that fervid, sweltering shore, 
were best avoided, every seaman knew. But in the mud-and-blood towns of the Basilisk Isles, teeming with escaped slaves, slavers, skinners, whores, hunters, brindled men, and worse, there were always provisions to be had for men who were not afraid to pay the iron price. The larger, heavier, slower ships made for lice, to sell the captives taken on the shields, the women and children of Lord Hewittstown and other islands, along with such men who decided they would sooner yield than die. Victorian had only contempt for such weaklings. Even so, the selling left a foul taste in his mouth. Taking a man as thrall, or a woman as a salt wife, that was right and proper. But men were not goats or fowl to be bought and sold for gold. He was glad to leave the selling to Ralph the Limper, who would use the coin to load his big ships with provisions for the long, slow middle passage east. His own ships crept along the shores of the disputed lands to take on food and wine and fresh water at Valantis before swinging south around Valeria. That was the most common waste, and the one most heavily trafficked, with prizes for the taking, and small islands where they could shelter during storms, make repairs, and renew their stores if need be. Four and fifty ships is too few, he told the dusky woman. But I can wait no longer. The only way. He grunted as she peeled the bandage off, tearing off a crust of scab as well. The flesh beneath was green and black where the sword had sliced him. The only way to do this is to take the slavers unawares, as once I did at Lannisport, sweep in from the sea and smash them, then take the girl and race for home before the Valentines descend upon us. Victorian was no craven, but no more was he a fool. He could not defeat three hundred ships with fifty-four. She'll be my wife, and you will be her maid. A maid without a tongue could never let slip any secrets. He might have said more, but that was when the maester came, rapping at the cabin door as timid as a mouse. Enter! Victorian called out. And bar the door! You know why you're here? Lord Captain, the maester looked like a mouse as well, with his grey robes and little brown moustachio. Does he think that makes him look more manly? Kerwin was his name. He was very young. Two and twenty, maybe. May I see your hand? he asked. A fool's question. Maesters had their uses, but Victorian had nothing but contempt for this Kerwin, with his smooth pink cheeks, soft hands and brown curls. He looked more girlish than most girls. When first he came abroad the Iron Victory, he had a smirky little smile, too. But one night off the Stepstones he had smiled at the wrong man, and Burton Humble had knocked out four of his teeth. Not long after that, Kerwin had come creeping to the captain to complain that four of the crew had dragged him below decks and used him as a woman. "'Here is how you put an end to that,' Victorian had told him slamming a dagger down on the table between them. Kerwin took the blade, too afraid to refuse it, the captain judged, but he had never used it. "'My hand is here,' Victorian said. "'Look all you like.' Mr. Kerwin 
went down to one knee, the better to inspect the wound. He even sniffed at it like a dog. I will need to let out the pus again. The colour, Lord Captain, the cut is not healing. It may be that I will need to take your hand. They had talked of this before. If you take my hand, I will kill you. But first I will tie you over the rail and make the crew a gift of your arse. Now get on with it. There will be pain. Always. Life is pain, you fool. There is no joy but in the drowned guard's watery halls. Do it. The boy, it was hard to think of one so soft and pink as a man, laid the edge of the dagger across the captain's palm and slashed. The pus that burst forth was thick and yellow as sour milk. The dusky woman wrinkled her nose at the smell. The maester gagged, and even Victorian himself felt his stomach churn. Cut deeper. Get it all. Show me the blood. Maester Kerwin pressed the dagger deep. This time it hurt. But blood welled up as well as pus, blood so dark that it looked black in the lantern light. Blood was good. Victorian grunted in approval. He sat there unflinching as the maester dabbed and squeezed and cleaned the pus away with squares of soft cloth boiled in vinegar. By the time he'd finished, the clean water in his basin had become a scummy soup. The sight alone would sicken any man. Take that filth and go. Victorian nodded at the dusky woman. She can bind me up. Even after the boy had fled, the stink remained. Of late there was no escaping it. The maester had suggested that the wound might best be drained up on deck amidst fresh air and sunlight, but Victorian forbade it. This was not something that his crew could see. They were half a world away from home, too far to let them see that their iron captain had begun to rust. His left hand still throbbed, a dull pain, but persistent. When he closed his hand into a fist, it sharpened, as if a knife was stabbing up his arm. Not a knife, a longsword, a longsword in the hand of a ghost. Sari, that had been his name, a knight and heir to South Shield. I killed him, but he stabs at me from beyond the grave, from the hot heart of whatever hell I sent him to. He thrusts his steel into my hand and twists. Victorian remembered the fight as if it had been yesterday. His shield had been in shards, hanging useless from his arm. So when Ceres' longsword came flashing down, he had reached up and caught it. The stripling had been stronger than he looked. His blade bit through the lobstered steel of the captain's gauntlet and the padded glove beneath into the meat of his palm. A scratch from a little kitten, Victorian told himself afterwards. He had washed the cut, poured some boiled vinegar over it, bound it up, and thought little more of it, trusting that the pain would fade and the hand heal itself in time. Instead, the wound had festered, until Victorian began to wonder whether Ceres' blade had been poisoned. Why else would the cut refuse to heal? The thought made him rage. No true man killed with poison. At Moat Kalin, the bug devils had loosed poison arrows at his men. 
but that was to be expected from such degraded creatures. Sari had been a knight, high-born. Poison was for cravens, women, and Dornishmen. If not Sari, who? he asked the dusky woman. Could that mouse of a maester be doing this? Maesters know spells and other tricks. He might be using one to poison me, hoping I will let him cut my hand off. The more he thought on it, the more likely it seemed. The crow's eye gave him to me, wretched creature that he is. Euron had taken Kerwin off Greenshield, where he had been in service to Lord Chester, tending his ravens and teaching his children, or perhaps the other way around. And how the mouse had squealed when one of Euron's mutes delivered him abroad the iron victory, dragging him along by the convenient chain about his neck. If this is his revenge, he wrongs me. It was Euron who insisted he be taken, to keep him from making mischief with his birds. His brother had given him three cages of ravens, too, so Kerwin could send back word of their voyaging. But Victorian had forbidden him to loose them. Let the crow's eye stew and wonder. The dusky woman was binding his hand with fresh linen, wrapping it six times around his palm, when Long Water Pike came pounding at the cabin door to tell him that the captain of grief had come aboard with a prisoner. Says he's brought us a wizard, Captain. Says he fished him from the sea. A wizard? Could the drowned god have sent a gift to him? Here, on the far side of the world, his brother Aaron would have known. But Aaron had seen the majesty of the drowned god's watery halls below the sea before being returned to life. Victorian had a healthy fear of his god, as all men should, but put his faith in steel. He flexed his wounded hand, grimacing, then pulled his glove on and rose. Show me this wizard. Grief's master awaited them on deck, a small man, as hairy as he was homely. He was a spar by birth. His men called him the Vole. Lord Captain, he said, when Victorian appeared, this is Makaro, a gift to us from the drowned god. The wizard was a monster of a man, as tall as Victorian himself and twice as wide with a belly like a boulder and a tangle of bone-white hair that grew about his face like a lion's mane. His skin was black, not the nut-brown of the summer islanders on their swan ships, nor the red-brown of the Dothraki horse-lords, nor the charcoal and earth colour of the dusky woman's skin, but black, blacker than coal, blacker than jet, blacker than a raven's wing. Burned! Victorian thought, like a man who has been roasted in the flames until his flesh chars and crisps and falls smoking from his bones. The fires that had charred him still danced across his cheeks and forehead, where his eyes peered out from amongst a mask of frozen flames. Slave tattoos, the captain knew, marks of evil. We found him clinging to a broken spar said the vole. He was ten days in the water after his ship went down. If he were ten days in the water, he'd be dead, or mad from drinking seawater. Salt water was holy, 
Aaron Dampier and other priests might bless men with it and swallow a mouthful or two from time to time to strengthen their faith, but no mortal man could drink of the deep sea for days at a time and hope to live. You claim to be a sorcerer? Victorian asked the prisoner. No, Captain, the black man answered in the common tongue. His voice was so deep it seemed to come from the bottom of the sea. I am but a humble slave of R'hllor, the Lord of Light. R'hllor, a red priest, then. Victorian had seen such men in foreign cities tending their sacred fires. Those had worn rich red robes of silken and velvet and lambswool. This one was dressed in faded, salt-stained rags that clung to his thick legs and hung about his torso in tatters. But when the captain peered at the rags more closely, it did appear as if they might once have been red. A pink priest, Victorian announced. A demon priest, said Wolf One Ear. He spat. Might be his robes caught fire, so he jumped overboard to put them out, <coughs> suggested Longwater Pike to general laughter. Even the monkeys were amused. They chattered overhead, and one flung down a handful of his own shit to spatter on the boards. Victorian Greyjoy mistrusted laughter. The sound of it always left him with the uneasy feeling that he was the butt of some jape he did not understand. Euron Crozai had oft made mock of him when they were boys. So had Aaron, before he had become the damp hair. Their mockery oft came disguised as praise, and sometimes Victorian had not even realized he was being mocked. Not until he heard the laughter. Then came the anger, boiling up in the back of his throat, until he was like to choke upon the taste. That was how he felt about the monkeys. Their antics never brought so much as a smile to the captain's face, though his crew would roar and hoot and whistle. Send him down to the drowned god before he brings a curse upon us, urged Burton Humble. A ship gone down, and only him clinging to the wreckage, said Wolf One Ear. Where's the crew? Did he call down demons to devour them? What happened to this ship? A storm. Makaro crossed his arms against his chest. He did not appear frightened, though all around him men were calling for his death. Even the monkeys did not seem to like this wizard. They leapt from line to line overhead, screaming. Victorian was uncertain. He came out of the sea. Why would the drowned guard cast him up, unless he meant for us to find him? His brother Euron had his pet wizards. Perhaps a drowned god meant for a Victorian to have one too. Why do you say this man is a wizard? He asked of all. I see only a ragged red priest. I thought the same, Lord Captain. But he knows things. He knew that we made for Slaver's Bay before any man could tell him. And he knew you would be here, off this island. The small man hesitated. Lord Captain, he told me... He told me... You would surely die, unless we brought him to you. That I would die? Victorian snorted. Cut his throat and throw him in the sea, he was about to say, until the throb of pain in his bad hand 
went stabbing up his arm almost to the elbow, the agony so intense that his words turned to bile in his throat. He stumbled and seized the rail to keep from falling. "'The sorcerer's cursed the captain,' a voice said. Other men took up the cry. "'Cut his throat! Kill him! Before he calls his demons down on us!' Longwater Pike was the first to draw his dirk. "'No!' Victorian bellowed. "'Stand back, all of you! Pike, put up your steel! Vol, back to your ship, humble! Take the wizard to my cabin! The rest of you, about your duties!' For half a heartbeat, he was not certain they would obey. They stood about muttering, half with blades to hand, each looking to the others for resolve. Monkey shit rained down around them all. Splat, splat, splat. No one moved, until Victorian seized the sorcerer by the arm and pulled him to the hatchway. As he opened the door to the captain's cabin, the dusky woman turned toward him, silent and smiling. But when she saw the red priest at his side, her lips drew back from her teeth, and she hissed in sudden fury, like a snake. Victorian gave her the back of his good hand and knocked her to the deck. Be quiet, woman. Wine for both of us. He turned to the black man. Did the vole speak true? You saw my death? That and more. Where? When? Will I die in battle? His good hand opened and closed. If you lie to me, I will split your head open like a melon and let the monkeys eat your brains. Your death is with us now, my lord. Give me your hand. My hand? What do you know of my hand? I have seen you in the night fires, Victorian Greyjoy. You come striding through the flames, stern and fierce. Your great axe dripping blood, blind to the tentacles that grasp at your wrist and neck and ankle, the black strings that make you dance. Dance? Victorian bristled. Your night fires lie. I was not made for dancing, and I'm no man's puppet. He yanked off his glove and shoved his bad hand at the priest's face. Here, is this what you wanted? The new linen was already discolored by blood and pus. He had a rose on his shield, the man who gave this to me. I scratched my hand on a thorn. Even smallest scratch can prove mortal, Lord Captain. But if you will allow me, I will heal this. I will need a blade. Silver would be best, but iron will serve. A brazier as well. I must needs light a fire. There will be pain, terrible pain, such as you have never known. But when we are done, your hand will be returned to you. They're all the same, these magic men. The mouse warned me of pain as well. I am ironborn, priest. I laugh at pain. You will have what you require, but if you fail and my hand is not healed, I will cut your throat myself and give you to the sea. Makoro bowed, his dark eyes shining. So be it. The iron captain was not seen again that day, but as the hours passed, 
the crew of his iron victory, reported hearing the sound of wild laughter coming from the captain's cabin. Laughter deep and dark and mad, and when Longwater Pike and Wolf One-Eye tried the cabin door, they found it barred. Later, singing was heard, a strange high wailing song, in a tongue the maester said was high valerian. That was when the monkeys left the ship, screeching as they leapt into the water. Come sunset, as the sea turned black as ink, and the swollen sun tinted the sky a deep and bloody red. Victorian came back on deck. He was naked from the waist up, his left arm blood to the elbow. As his crew gathered, whispering and trading glances, he raised a charred and blackened hand. Wisps of dark smoke rose from his fingers as he pointed at the maester. That one cut his throat and throw him in the sea, and the winds will favour us all the way to Murrine. Makaro had seen that in his fires. He had seen the wench wed too. But what of it? She would not be the first woman, Victorian Greyjoy, had made a widow. Tyrion The healer entered the tent murmuring pleasantries. But one sniff of the foul air and a glance at Yezan Zokagas put an end to that. The pale mare, the man told Sweets. What a surprise, Tyrion thought. Who could have guessed, aside from any man with a nose and me with half a one? Yezan was burning with fever, squirming fitfully in a pool of his own excrement. His shit had turned to brown slime, streaked with blood, and it fell to Yellow and Penny to wipe his yellow bottom clean. Even with assistance, their master could not lift his own weight. It took all his failing strength to roll onto one side. "'My arts will not avail here,' the healer announced. "'The noble Yezan's life is in the hands of the gods. Keep him cool if you can. Some say that helps.' Bring him water. Those afflicted by the pale mare were always thirsty, drinking gallons between their shits. Clean fresh water, as much as he will drink. Not river water, said Sweets. By no means. And with that the healer fled. We need to flee as well, thought Tyrion. He was a slave in a golden collar, with little bells that tinkled cheerfully with every step he took. One of Yezan's special treasures, an honour indistinguishable from a death warrant. Yezan Zokagas liked to keep his darlings close, so it had fallen to Yolo and Penny and Sweets and his other treasures to attend him when he grew sick. Poor old Yezan, the lord of Suet, was not so bad as masters went. Sweets had been right about that. Serving at his nightly banquets, Tyrion had soon learned that Yezin stood foremost amongst those Yunkish lords who favoured honouring the peace with Murin. Most of the others were only biding their time, waiting for the armies of Volantis to arrive. A few wanted to assault the city immediately, lest the Volantines rob them of their glory and the best part of the plunder. Yezin would have no part of that. 
nor would he consent to returning Marion's hostages by way of trebuchet, as the sellsword Bloodbeard had proposed. But much and more can change in two days. Two days ago, Nurse had been hale and healthy. Two days ago, Yezin had not heard the pale mare's ghostly hoofbeats. Two days ago, the fleets of old Valentis had been two days farther off. And now... Is Yezin going to die? Penny asked, in that please-say-it-is-not-so voice of hers. We're all going to die. Of the flocks, I meant. Sweets gave them both a desperate look. Yezan must not die. The hermaphrodite stroked the brow of their gargantuan master, pushing back his sweat-damp hair. The youngishman moaned, and another flood of brown water gushed down his legs. His bedding was stained and sinking, but they had no way to move him. Some masters free their slaves when they die, said Penny. Sweets tittered. It was a ghastly sound. Only favourites. They free them from the woes of the world to accompany their beloved masters to the grave and serve him in the afterlife. Sweets should know all. His will be the first throat slit. The goat boy spoke up. The Silver Queen is dead, insisted Sweets. Forget her. The dragon took her across the river. She's drowned in that Dothraki sea. You can't drown in grass, the goat boy said. If we were free, said Penny, we could find the queen or go search for her at least. You on your dog and me on my sow, chasing a dragon across the Dothraki sea? Tyrion stretched his scar to keep from laughing. This particular dragon has already evinced a fondness for roast pork, and roast dwarf is twice as tasty. It was just a wish, said Penny wistfully. We could sail away. There are ships again, now that the war is over. Is it? Tyrion was inclined to doubt that. Parchments had been signed, but wars were not fought on parchments. We could sail to Carth, Penny went on. The streets are paved with jade there, my brother always said. The city wars are one of the wonders of the world. When we perform in Carth, gold and silver will rain down on us, you'll see. Some of those ships out on the bay are Carthin, Tyrion reminded her. Lomas Longstrider saw the walls of Carth. His books suffice for me. I have gone as far east as I intend to go. Sweets dabbed at Yezen's fevered face with a damp cloth. Yezen must live, or we all die with him. The pale mare does not carry off every rider. The master will recover. That was a bald-faced lie. It would be a wonder if Yezen lived another day. The Lord of Suet was already dying from whatever hideous disease he had brought back from Sothorius, it seemed to Tyrion. This would just hasten his end. A mercy, really, but not the sort the dwarf craved for himself. The healer says he needs fresh water. We will see to that. That is good of you. Sweet sounded numb. It was more than just fear of having her throat cut. Alone among Yezan's treasures, she actually seemed fond of their immense master. Penny, come with me. 
Tyrion opened the tent flap and ushered her out into the heat of a Marinese morning. The air was muggy and oppressive, yet still a welcome relief from the miasma of sweat, shit, and sickness that filled the inside of Yezan's palatial pavilion. Water will help the master, Penny said. That's what the healer said. It must be so. Sweet, fresh water. Sweet, fresh water didn't help nurse. Oh, poor old nurse. Yezan's soldiers had tossed him onto the corpse wagon last night at dusk, another victim of the pale mare. When men are dying every hour, no one looks too hard at one more dead man, especially one as well despised as nurse. Yes, Anne's other slaves had refused to go near the overseer once the cramps began, so it was left to Tyrion to keep him warm and bring him drinks. Watered wine and lemon sweet and some nice hot dugtail soup with slivers of mushroom in the broth. Drink it down, nursey. That shit water squirting from your ass needs to be replaced. The last word nurse ever said was, no. The last words he ever heard were, a Lannister always pays his debts. Tyrion had kept the truth of that from Penny, but she needed to understand how things stood with her master. If Yezan lives to see the sunrise, I'll be stunned. She clutched his arm. What will happen to us? He has heirs, nebus. Four such had come with Yezan from Yunkai to command his slave soldiers. One was dead, slain by Targaryen sellswords during a sortie. The other three would divide the yellow enormity slaves among them, like as not. Whether any of the nebus shared Yezan's fondness for cripples, freaks, and grotesques was far less certain. One of them may inherit us, or we could end up back on the auction block. No, her eyes got big. Not that, please. It is not a prospect I relish either. A few yards away, six of Yezan's slave soldiers were squatting in the dust, throwing the bones and passing a wineskin from hand to hand. One was the sergeant called Scar, a black-tempered brute, with a head as smooth as stone and the shoulders of an ox. Clever as an ox, too, Tyrion recalled. He waddled towards them. Scar, he barked out, the noble Yazan has need of fresh, clean water. Take two men and bring back as many pails as you can carry, and be quick about it. The soldiers broke off their game. Scar rose to his feet, brow beetling. What did you say, dwarf? Who do you think you are? You know who I am, Yolo, one of our lord's treasures. Now do as I told you. The soldiers laughed. Go on, Scar, one mocked, and be quick about it. Yezen's monkey gave you a command. You do not tell soldiers what to do, Scar said. Soldiers? Tyrion affected puzzlement. Slaves is what I see. You wear a collar round your neck, the same as me. The savage backhand blow Scar dealt him, knocked him to the ground, and broke his lip. Yes, Anne's collar, not yours. Tyrion wiped the blood from his split lip with the back of his hand. 
When he tried to rise, one leg went out from under him, and he stumbled back onto his knees. He needed Penny's help to regain his feet. Sweet said the master must have water, he said in his best wine. Sweets can go fuck himself. He's made for it. We don't take commands from that freak neither. No, thought Tyrion. Even amongst slaves there were lords and peasants, as he had been quick to learn. The hermaphrodite had long been the master's special pet, indulged and favoured, and the noble Yezan's other slaves hated him for it. The soldiers were accustomed to taking their commands from their masters and their overseer, but Nurse was dead, and Yezen too sick to name a successor. As for the three nephews, those brave free men had remembered urgent business elsewhere at the first sound of the pale mare's hooves. The wa water, said Tyrion, cringing. N not river water, the healer said. Clean, fresh, well water, Scar grunted. You go for it, and be quick about it. Us? Tyrion exchanged a hopeless glance with Penny. Water's heavy. We're not so strong as you. Can we, can we take the mule cart? Take your legs. We'll need to make a dozen trips. Make a hundred trips. It's no shit to me. Just the two of us? We won't be able to carry all the water that the master needs. Take your bear, suggested Scar. Fetching water is about all that one is good for. Tyrion backed away. As you say, master. Scar grinned. Masters? Oh, he liked that. Margo, bring the keys. You fill the pails and come right back, dwarf. You know what happens to slaves who try to escape. Bring the pails, Tyrion told Penny. He went off with a man Morgo to fetch Sir Jorah Mormon from his cage. The knight had not adapted well to bondage. When called upon to play the bear and carry off the maiden fair, he had been sullen and uncooperative, shuffling lifelessly through his paces when he deigned to take part in their mummery at all. Though he had not attempted escape, nor offered violence to his captors. He would ignore their commands oft as not, or reply with muttered curses. None of this had amused Nurse, who made his displeasure clear by confining Mormont in an iron cage and having him beaten every evening as the sun sank into Slaver's Bay. The night absorbed the beating silently. The only sounds were the muttered curses of the slaves who beat him, and the dull thuds of their clubs pounding against Sir Jorah's bruised and battered flesh. The man is a shell, Tyrion thought, the first time he saw the big knight beaten. I should have held my tongue and let Tsarina have him. It might have been a kinder fate than this. Mormont emerged from the cramped confines of the cage, bent and squinting, with both eyes blackened and his back crusty with dried blood. His face was so bruised and swollen that he hardly looked human. He was naked, except for a breech clout, a filthy bit of yellow rag. You're to help them carry water, Morgo told him. Sir Jorah's only reply was a sullen stare. Some man would sooner die free than live a slave, I suppose. 
Tyrion was not stricken with that affliction himself, thankfully. But if Mormont murdered Morgirl, the other slaves might not draw that distinction. Come, he said, before the knight did something brave and stupid. He waddled off and hoped Mormont would follow. The guards were good for once. Mormont followed. Two pairs for Penny, two for Tyrion, and four for Sir Jorah, two in either hand. The nearest well was south and west of the Harridan, so they set off in that direction, the bells on their collars ringing merrily with every step. No one paid them any mind. They were just slaves fetching water for their master. Wearing a collar conferred certain advantages, particularly a gilded collar inscribed with the name of Yezen Zokagas. The chime of those little bells proclaimed their value to anyone with ears. A slave was only as important as his master. Yezan was the richest man in the Yellow City, and had brought six hundred slave soldiers to the war, even if he did look like a monstrous yellow slug and smell of piss. Their colours gave them leave to go anywhere they might wish, within the camp. Until Yezin dies. The clanker lords had their slave soldiers drilling in the nearest field. The clatter of the chains that bound them made a harsh metallic music as they marched across the sand in lockstep and formed up with their long spears. Elsewhere, teams of slaves were raising ramps of stone and sand beneath their mangonels and scorpions, angling them upwards at the sky, the better to defend the camp should the black dragon return. It made the dwarf smile to see them sweating and cursing as they wrestled the heavy machines onto the inclines. Crossbows were much in evidence as well. Every other man seemed to be clutching one, with a quiver full of bolts hanging from his hip. If anyone had thought to ask him, Tyrion could have told them not to bother, unless one of those long iron scorpion bolts chanced to find an eye. The Queen's pet monster was not like to be brought down by such toys. Dragons are not so easy to kill as that. Tickle him with ease, and you'll only make him angry. The eyes were where a dragon was most vulnerable. The eyes and the brain behind them. Not the underbelly, as certain old tales would have it. The scales there were just as tough as those along a dragon's back and flanks, and not down the gullet either. That was madness. These would-be dragon slayers might as well try to quench a fire with a spear thrust. Death comes out of the dragon's mouth, Septon Barth had written in his Unnatural History, but death does not go in that way. Farther on, two legions from Ugis were facing off shield wall to shield wall, while sergeants in iron half-helms with horsehair crests scream commands in their own incomprehensible dialect. To the naked eye, the Gascari looked more formidable than the Yunkish slave soldiers, but Tyrion nursed doubts. The legionnaires might be armed and organized in the same manner as unsolid, but the eunuchs knew no other life whereas the Gascari were free citizens who served for three-year terms. The line at the well stretched back a quarter mile. There were only a handful of wells within a day's march of Meereen, so the wait was always long. Most of the Yunkish host 
drew their drinking water from the Skahasadan, which Tyrion had known was a very bad idea even before the healer's warning. The clever ones took care to stay upstream of the latrines, but they were still downstream of the city. The fact that there were any good worlds at all within a day's march of the city only went to prove that Daenerys Targaryen was still an innocent where Siegecraft was concerned. She should have poisoned every well. Then all the Yunkishmen would be drinking from the river. See how long their siege lasts then. That was what his lord father would have done. Tyrion did not doubt. Every time they shuffled forward another place, the bells on their collars tinkled brightly. Such a happy sound. It makes me want to scoop out someone's eyeballs with a spoon. By now Griff and Duck and Holden Halfmaster should be in Westeros with their young prince. I should be with them, but no, I had to have a whore. Ken's saying was not enough. I needed cunt and wine to seal my ruin. And here I am on the wrong side of the world, wearing a slave collar with little golden bells to announce my coming. If I dance just right, maybe I can ring the reins of Castlemere. There was no better place to hear the latest news and rumours than around the well. I know what I saw, an old slave in a rusted iron collar was saying, as Tyrion and Penny shuffled along in the queue. And I saw that dragon ripping off arms and legs, tearing men in half, burning them down to ash and bones. People started running, trying to get out of that pit. But I come to see a show, and by all the gods of gifts, I saw one. I was up in the purple, so I didn't think the dragon was like to trouble me. The queen climbed up onto the dragon's back and flew away, insisted a tall brown woman. She tried, said the old man, but she couldn't hold on. The crossbows wounded the dragon, and the queen was struck right between her sweet pink teats, I hear. That was when she fell. She died in the gutter, crushed beneath the wagon's wheels. I know a girl who knows a man who saw her die. In this company, silence was the better part of wisdom, but Tyrion could not help himself. No corpse was found, he said. The old man frowned. What would you know about it? They were there, said the brown woman. It's them, the jousting dwarfs, the ones who tilted for the queen. The old man squinted down, as if seeing him and Penny for the first time. You're the ones who rode the pigs. Our notoriety precedes us. Tyrion sketched a courtly bow and refrained from pointing out that one of the pigs was actually a dog. The sow I ride is actually my sister. We have the same nose. Could you tell? A wizard cast a spell on her, but if you give her a big wet kiss, she will turn into a beautiful woman. The pity is, once you get to know her, you'll want to kiss her again to turn her back. Laughter erupted all around them. Even the old man joined in. You saw her then, said the red-headed boy behind them. You saw the queen. Is she as beautiful as they say? I saw a slender girl with silvery hair wrapped in a toka. he might have told them. Her face was veiled, 
and I never got close enough for a good look. I was riding on a pig. Daenerys Targaryen had been seated in the owner's box beside a Gascari king, but Tyrion's eyes had been drawn to the knight in the white and gold armor behind her. Though his features were concealed, the dwarf would have known Barristan Selmy anywhere. Elidio was right about that much, at least, he remembered thinking. Will Selmy know me, though? And what will he do if he does? He had almost revealed himself then and there, but something stopped him. Caution, cowardice, instinct, call it what you will. He could not imagine Barristan the Bold greeting him with anything but hostility. Selmy had never approved of Jamie's presence in his precious king's guard. Before the rebellion, the old knight thought him too young and untried. Afterward, he had been known to say that the Kingslayer should exchange that white cloak for a black one, and his own crimes were worse. Jamie had killed a madman. Tyrion had put a quarrel through the groin of his own sire. A man Sir Barristan had known and served for years. He might have chanced it all the same. But then Penny had landed a blow on his shield, and the moment was gone, never to return. The Queen watched us tilt, Penny was telling the other slaves in line. But that was the only time we saw her. You must have seen the dragon, said the old man. Would that we had. The guards have not even vouchsafed him that much. As Daenerys Targaryen was taking wing, Nurse had been clapping irons round their ankles to make certain they would not attempt escape on their way back to their master. If the overseer had only taken his leave after delivering them to the abattoir, or fled with the rest of the slavers when the dragon descended from the sky, the two dwarfs might have strolled away free. Or run away, more like, a little bell's a jingle. Was there a dragon? Tyrion said, with a shrug. All I know is that no dead queens were found. The old man was not convinced. Oh, they found corpses by the hundred. They dragged them inside the pit and burned them. Though half was crisp already. Might be they didn't know her. "'burned and bloody and crushed. "'Might be they did, but decided to say elsewise, "'to keep your slaves quiet.' "'Us slaves,' said the brown woman, "'you wear a collar too.' "'Gazdor's collar,' the old man boasted. "'Known him since we was born. "'I'm almost like a brother to him. "'Slaves like you, sweepings out of Astapor and Yunkai, "'you whine about being free.' But I wouldn't give the dragon queen my collar if she offered to suck my cock for it. Man as the right master, that's better. Tyrion did not dispute him. The most insidious thing about bondage was how easy it was to grow accustomed to it. The life of most slaves was not all that different from the life of a serving man at Castley Rock, it seemed to him. True, some slave owners and their overseers were brutal and cruel, but the same was true of some Westerosi lords and their stewards and bailiffs. Most of the young Kai treated their chattels decently enough, so long as they did their jobs and caused no trouble. And this old man, in his rusted colour, with his fierce loyalty to Lord Wobblecheeks, his owner, 
was not at all atypical. Gazdor the Great-Hearted, Tyrion said sweetly. Our master Yezan has often spoken of his wits. What Yezan had actually said was on the order of, I have more wits in the left cheek of my ass than Gazdor and his brothers have between them. He thought it prudent to omit the actual words. Midday had come and gone before he and Penny reached the well, where a scrawny one-legged slave was drawing water. He squinted at them suspiciously. Nurse always comes for yes and water, with four men and a mule cart. He dropped the bucket down the well once more. There was a soft splash. The one-legged man let the bucket fill, then began to draw it upwards. His arms were sunburnt and peeling, scrawny to look at, but all muscle. The mule died, said Tyrion. So did nurse, poor man. And now Yezin himself has mounted the pale mare, and six of his soldiers have the shits, may I have two pails full. As you like. That was the end of idle talk. Is that who beats you here? The lie about the soldiers got old one leg, moving much more quickly. They started back, each of the dwarfs carrying two brimful pails of sweet water, and Sir Jorah with two pails in each hand. The day was growing hotter, the air as thick and wet as damp wool, and the pails seemed to grow heavier with every step. A long walk on short legs. Water slushed from his pails with every stride, splashing round his legs, whilst his bells played a marching song. Had I known it would come to this father, I might have let you live. Half a mile east, a dark plume of smoke was rising where a tent had been set afire. Burning last night's dead. This way, Tyrion said, jerking his head to the right. Penny gave him a puzzled look. That's not how we came. We don't want to breathe that smoke. It's full of malign humors. It was not a lie. Not entirely. Penny was soon puffing, struggling with the weight of her pails. I need to rest. As you wish. Tyrion set the pails of water on the ground, grateful for the halt. His legs were cramping badly, so he found himself a likely rock and sat on it to rub his thighs. I could do that for you, offered Penny. I know where the nuts are. As fond as he had grown of the girl, it still made him uncomfortable when she touched him. He turned to Sir Jorah. A few more beatings, and you'll be uglier than I am, Mormont. Tell me, is there any fight left in you? The big knight raised two blackened eyes and looked at him as he might look at a bug. Enough to crack your neck, imp. Good. Tyrion picked up his pails. This way, then. Penny wrinkled her brow. No, it's to the left, she pointed. That's the Harridan there. And that's the wicked sister. Tyrion nodded in the other direction. Trust me, he said. My way is quicker. He set off, his bells jingling. Penny would follow, he knew. Sometimes he envied the girl all her pretty little dreams. She reminded him of Sansa Stark, the child bride he had wed and lost. Despite the horrors Penny had suffered, 
she remained somehow trusting. She should know better. She is older than Sansa, and she's a dwarf. She acts as if she has forgotten that, as if she were high-born and fair to look upon, instead of a slave in a grotesquerie. At night Tyrion would oft hear her praying. A waste of words. If there are gods to listen, they are monstrous gods who torment us for their sport. Who else would make a world like this, so full of bondage, blood, and pain? Who else would shape us as they have? Sometimes he wanted to slap her, shake her, scream at her, anything to wake her from her dreams. No one is going to save us, he wanted to scream at her. The worst is yet to come. Yet somehow he could never say the words. Instead of giving her a good hard crack across that ugly face of hers to knock the blinders from her eyes, he would find himself squeezing her shoulder or giving her a hug. Every touch a lie. I have paid her so much false coin that she half thinks she's rich. He had even kept the truth of Daznak's pit from her. Lions! They were going to set lions on us. It would have been exquisitely ironic, that. Perhaps he would have had time for a short, bitter chortle before being torn apart. No one ever told him the end that had been planned for them, not in so many words. But it had not been hard to puzzle out. Down beneath the bricks at Daznak's pit, in the hidden world below the seats, the dark domain of the pit-fighters and the serving men who tended to them, quick and dead, the cooks who fed them, the armmongers who armed them, the barber-surgeons who bled them and shaved them and bound up their wounds, the whores who serviced them before and after fights, the corpse-handlers who dragged the losers off the sands with chains and iron hooks. Nurse's face had given Tyrion his first inkling, after their show, he and Penny had returned to the torchlit vault where the fighters gathered before and after their matches. Some sat sharpening their weapons, others sacrificed to queer gods or dulled their nerves with milk of the puppy before going out to die. Those who'd fought and won were dicing in a corner, laughing as only men who have just faced death and lived can laugh. Nurse was paying out some silver to a pitman on the lost wager when he spied Penny leading Crunch. The confusion in his eyes was gone in half a heartbeat, but not before Tyrion grasped what it meant. Nurse did not expect us back. He had looked around at other faces. None of them expected us back. We were meant to die out there. The final piece fell into place when he overheard an animal trainer complaining loudly to the pitmaster. The lions are hungry. Two days since they ate. I was told not to feed them, and I haven't. The queen should pay for meat. Are you taking that up with her the next time she holds court? The pitmaster threw back at him. Even now, Penny did not suspect. When she spoke about the pit, her chief worry was that more people had not laughed. They would have pissed themselves laughing if the lions had been loosed, Tyrion almost told her. Instead, 
He squeezed her shoulder. Penny, it came to a sudden halt. We're going the wrong way. We're not. Pyrian lowered his pails to the ground. The handles had gouged deep grooves in his fingers. Those are the tents we want there. The second sons? A queer smile split Sir Jorah's face. If you think you'll find help there, you don't know Brown Ben Plum. Oh, I do. Plum and I have played five games of Salvas. Brown Ben is shrewd, tenacious, not unintelligent, but wary. He likes to let his opponent take the risks, whilst he sits back and keeps his options open, reacting to the battle as it takes shape. Battle? What battle? Penny backed away from him. We have to get back. The master needs clean water. If we take too long, we'll be whipped. And pretty pig and cruncher there. Sweets will see that they are taken care of, Tyrion lied. More like Scar and his friends would soon be feasting on ham and bacon and savoury dog stew. But Penny did not need to hear that. Nurse is dead, and Yezan's dying. It could be dark before anyone thinks to miss us. We will never have a better chance than now. No. You know what they do when they catch slaves trying to escape? You know, please. They'll never let us leave the camp. We haven't left the camp. Tyrion picked up his pails. He set off at a brisk waddle, never looking back. Mormont fell in beside him. After a moment, he heard the sounds of Penny hurrying after him, down a sandy slope to a circle of ragged tents. The first guard appeared as they neared the horse lines, a lean spearman whose maroon beard marked him as Tyroshi. What do we have here? And what have you got in those pails? Water, said Tyrion, if it please you. Beer would have pleased me better. A spear point pricked him in the back. A second guard come up behind them. Tyrion could hear King's Landing in his voice. Scum from Flea Bottom. You lost, dwarf, the guard demanded. We are here to join your company. Her pail slipped from Penny's grasp and overturned. Half the water had spilled before she could right it once again. We've got fools enough in this company. Why would we want three more? The Tyrushi flicked at Tyrion's colour with his spear point. "'ringing a little golden bell. "'A runaway slave is what I see. Three runaway slaves. "'Whose colour? "'The yellow whales. "'That from a third man, drawn by their voices. "'A skinny, stubble-jaw piece of work "'with teeth stained red from sour-leaf. "'A sergeant?' Tyrion knew, "'from the way the other two deferred to him. "'He had a hook where his right hand should have been.' Bran's meaner, bastard shadow, or I'm Baylor the Beloved. These are the dwarfs Ben tried to buy, the sergeant told the spearman, squinting. But the big one, best bring him two, all three. The Tyrushi gestured with his spear. Tyrion moved along. The other sellsword, a stripling hardly more than a boy, with fuzz on his cheeks and hair the colour of dirty straw, scooped up Penny under one arm. Oh, mine has teats, he said laughing. He slept a hand on her penis tunic, just to be sure. Just bring her, snapped the sergeant. The stripling slung Penny over one shoulder. Tyrion went ahead. 
as quick as his stunted legs would allow. He knew where they were going, the big tent on the far side of the fire pit. Its painted canvas walls cracked and faded by years of sun and rain. A few swords turned to watch them pass, and a camp follower sniggered, but no one moved to interfere. Within the tent they found camp's tools and a trestle table, a rack of spears and halberts, a floor covered with threadbare carpets in half a dozen clashing collars, and three officers. One was slim and elegant, with a pointed beard, a bravo's blade, and a slashed pink doublet. One was plump and balding, with ink stains on his fingers, and a quill clutched in one hand. The third was the man he sought. Tyrion bowed. Captain! We caught them creeping into camp. The stripling dumped Penny onto the carpet. Runaways, the Tyroshi declared, with pails. Pails? said Brown Ben Plum. When no one ventured to explain, he said, Back to your post, boys, and not a word of this twenty-one. When they were gone, he smiled at Tyrion. Come for another game of Sivas, Yellow? If you wish, I do enjoy defeating you. I hear you're twice a turncloak, Plum, a man after my own art. Brown Ben's smile never reached his eyes. He studied Tyrion as a man might study a talking snake. Why are you here? To make your dreams come true. You tried to buy us at auction. Then you tried to win us at Sivas. Even when I had my nose, I was not so handsome as to provoke such passion, save in one who happened to know my true worth. Well, here I am, free for the taking. Now be a friend. Send for your smith, and get these collars off us. I'm sick of tinkling when I tinkle. I want no trouble with your noble master. Yesen has more urgent matters to concern him than three missing slaves. He's riding the pale mare. And why should they think to look for us here? You have swords enough to discourage anyone who comes nosing round? A small risk for a great gain. The jackanapes in the slash-pink doublet hissed, "'They've brought this sickness amongst us, into our very tents.' He turned to Ben Plum. "'Shall I cut his head off, Captain? We can toss the rest in the latrine pit.' He drew a sword, a slender bravo's blade, with a jewelled hilt. "'Do be careful with my head,' said Tyrion. "'You don't want to get any of my blood on you. Blood carries the disease.' And you'll want to boil our clothes, or burn them. I've a mind to burn them with you still in them, Yellow. That is not my name, but you know that. You have known that since you first set eyes on me. Might be. I know you as well, my lord, said Tyrion. You're less purple and more brown than the plums at home. But unless your name's a lie, you're a Westerman, by blood, if not by birth. House Plum is worn to Castle Rock, and as it happens, I know a bit of its history. Your branch sprouted from a stone spit across a narrow sea, no doubt. A younger son of Viserys Plum, I'd wager. The Queen's dragons were fond of you, were they not? That seemed to amuse the sellsword. Who told you that? No one. Most of the stories you hear about dragons are fodder for fools. 
talking dragons, dragons hoarding gold and gems, dragons with four legs and bellies big as elephants, dragons riddling with sphinxes. Nonsense, all of it. But there are truths in the old books as well. Not only do I know that the Queen's dragons took to you, but I know why. My mother, said my father, had a drop of dragon blood. Two drops, that or a cock six feet long. You know that tale? I do. Now you're a clever plum, so you know this head of mine is worth a lordship, back in Westeros, half a world away. By the time you get it there, only bone and maggots will remain. My sweet sister will deny the head is mine and cheat you of the promised reward. You know how it is with queens, fickle cunts, the lot of them, and Cersei is the worst. Brown Ben scratched at his beard. Could deliver you alive and wriggling in, or pop your head into a jar and pickle it, or throw in with me. That's the wisest move, he grinned. I was born a second son. This company is my destiny. The second sons have no place for mamas, the bravo and pink said scornfully. It's fighters we need. I brought you one, Tyrion jerked a thumb at Mormont. That creature, the bravo laughed. An ugly brute, but scars alone don't make a second son. Tyrion rolled his mismatched eyes. Lord Plum, who are these two friends of yours? The pink one is annoying. The bravo curled a lip, whilst the fellow with a quill chuckled at his insolence. But it was Jorah Mormont who supplied their names. Inkpots is the company paymaster. The peacock calls himself Casporio, the cunning. Though Casporio, the cunt, would be more apt. Nasty piece of work. Mormont's face might have been unrecognizable in its battered state, but his voice was unchanged. Casporio gave him a startled look, whilst the wrinkles around Plum's eyes crinkled in amusement. Jarrah Mormont? <laughs> Is that you? Less proud than when you scampered off, though. Must we call you Sir? Sir Jarrah's swollen lips twisted into a grotesque grin. Give me a sword, and you can call me what you like, Ben. Casporio edged backward. You... She sent you away. I came back. Call me a fool. A fool in love. Tyrion cleared his throat. You can talk of old times later, after I've done explaining why my head would be of more use to you upon my shoulders. You will find, Lord Plum, that I can be very generous to my friends. If you doubt me, ask Bran, ask Shaga, son of Dolph. Ask Timit, son of Timit. And who would they be? Asked the man called Inkpots. Good men who pledged me their swords and prospered greatly by that service. He shrugged. Oh, very well. I lied about the good part. They're bloodthirsty bastards like you lot. Might be, said Brown Ben. Or might be you just made up some names. Shagger, did you say? Is that a woman's name? His teeth are big enough. Next time we meet, I'll peek beneath his breeches to be sure. 
Oh, is that a saver set over there? Bring it out, and we'll have that game. But first, I think, a cup of wine. My throat is dry as an old bone, and I can see that I have a deal of talking to do. John That night he dreamt of wildlings howling from the woods, advancing to the moan of war horns and the roll of drums. Boom, 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 came the sound, a thousand hearts with a single beat. Some had spears, and some had bows, and some had axes. Others rode on chariots made of bones, drawn by teams of dogs as big as ponies. Giants lumbered amongst them, forty feet tall, with mauls the size of oak trees. Stand fast, John Snow called. Throw them back. He stood atop the wall alone. Flame, he cried. Feed them flame. But there was no one to pay heed. They are all gone. They have abandoned me. Burning shafts hissed upward, trailing tongues of fire. Scarecrow brothers tumbled down black cloaks ablaze. Snow! an eagle cried, as foemen scuttled up the ice like spiders. John was armoured in black ice, but his blade burned red in his fist. As the dead men reached the top of the wall, he sent them down to die again. He slew a greybeard and a beardless boy, a giant, a gaunt man with file teeth, a girl with thick red hair. Too late, he recognised Igrit. She was gone as quick as she'd appeared. The world dissolved into a red mist. John stabbed and slashed and cut. He hacked down Donald Noy and gutted Deaf Dick Follard. Corrin Halfhand stumbled to his knees, trying in vain to staunch the flow of blood from his neck. I am the Lord of Winterfell, John screamed. It was Rob before him now his hair wet with melting snow. Longclaw took his head off. Then a gnarled hand seized John roughly by the shoulder. He whirled and woke with a raven pecking at his chest. Snow! the bird cried. John swatted at it. The raven shrieked its displeasure and flapped up to a bedpost to glare down balefully at him through the pre-dawn gloom. The day had come. It was the hour of the wolf. Soon enough the sun would rise, and four thousand wildlings would come pouring through the wall. Madness. Jon Snow ran his burned hand through his hair, and wondered once again what he was doing. Once the gate was opened, there would be no turning back. It should have been the old bear to treat with Tormund. It should have been Jeremy Riker, or Corrin Halfhand, or Dennis Mellister or some other seasoned man. It should have been my uncle. It was too late for such misgivings, though. Every choice had its risks, every choice its consequences. He would play the game to its conclusion. He rose and dressed in darkness, as Mormont's raven muttered across the room, Corn, the bird said, and King, and Snow, John Snow, John Snow. That was queer. The bird had never said his full name before, as best John could recall. He broke his fast in the cellar with his officers. Fried bread, fried eggs, blood sausages, 
and barley porridge made up the meal washed down with thin yellow beer. As they ate, they went over the preparations yet again. All is in readiness, Bowen Marsh assured him. If the wildlings uphold the terms of the bargain, all will go as you've commanded. And if not, it may turn to blood and carnage. Remember, John said, Tormund's people are hungry, cold, and fearful. Some of them hate us as much as some of you hate them. We are dancing on rotten ice here, them and us. One crack, and we all drown. If blood should be shed today, it had best not be one of us who strikes the first blow. For I swear by the old gods and the new that I will have the head of the man who strikes it. They answered him with eyes and nods and muttered words, with, As you command, and it will be done, and yes, my lord. And one by one they rose and buckled on their swords and donned their warm black cloaks and strode out into the cold. Last to leave the table was Dolorous Ed Tollett, who had come in during the night with six wagons from the Long Barrow. Hawes Barrow, the Black Brothers call the fortress now. Ed had been sent to gather up as many spear-wives as his wagons would hold, and bring them back to join their sisters. John watched him mop up a runny yoke with a chunk of bread. It was strangely comforting to see Ed's dull face again. How goes the restoration work? he asked his old steward. Ten more years should do it, Tollett replied in his usual gloomy tone. Place was overrun with wretch when we moved in. Well, the spearwives killed the nasty buggers. Now the place is overrun with spearwives. These days I want the rats back. How do you find serving under Iron Emmett? John asked. Mostly it's Black Maris serving under him, my lord. Me, I have the mules. Nettles claims we're kin. It's true we have the same long face, but I'm not near stubborn. Anyway, I never knew their mothers, on my honour. He finished the last of his eggs and sighed. I do like me a nice runny egg. If it please me, Lord, don't let the wildlings eat all our chickens. Out in the yard, the eastern sky had just begun to lighten. There was not a wisp of cloud in sight. We have a good day for this, it would seem, John said. A bright day, warm and sunny. The wall will weep, and winter almost on us. It's unnatural, my lord. A bad sign, you ask me. John smiled. And if it were to snow? A worse sign. What sort of weather would you prefer? Uh, the sort they keep indoors, said Dolores Ed. If it please, my lord, I should uh, get back to my mules. They miss me when I'm gone, more than I can say for them spear-wives. They parted there, Tullet for the east road where his wagons waited, John Snow for the stables. Saturn had his horse saddled and bridled and waiting for him, a fiery grey courser with a mane as black and shiny as Maester's ink. He was not the sort of mount that John would have chosen for arranging, but on this morning all that mattered was that he looked impressive, and for that the stallion was a perfect choice. His tail was waiting too. John had never liked surrounding himself with guards, but today it seemed prudent to keep a few good men beside him. They made a grim display in their ringmail, 
iron half-helms and black cloaks, with tall spears in their hands and swords and daggers on their belts. For this John had passed over all the green boys and greybeards in his command, choosing eight men in their prime, Ty and Molly, Left Hand Lou, Big Liddle, Rory, Fulk the Flea, Garrett Greenspear, and Leathers, Castle Black's new master at arms, to show the free folk that even a man who had fought for Mance in the battle beneath the wall could find a place of honour in the night's watch. A deep red blush had appeared in the east by the time they had all assembled at the gate. The stars are going out, John thought. When next they reappeared, they would be shining down upon a world forever changed. A few Queen's men stood watching from beside the embers of Lady Melisander's nightfire. When John glanced at the King's Tower, he glimpsed a flash of red behind a window. Of Queen Celise, he saw no sign. It was time. Open the gate, John Snow said softly. Open the gate! Big Little roared. His voice was thunder. Seven hundred feet above, the sentries heard and raised their war horns to their lips. The sound rang out, echoing off the wall and out across the world. Oh! One long blast. For a thousand years or more, that sound had meant rangers coming home. Today it meant something else. Today it called the free folk to their new homes. On either end of the long tunnel, gates swung open and iron bars unlocked. Dawn light shimmered on the ice above, pink and gold and purple. Dolores Ed had not been wrong. The war would soon be weeping. God grant it weeps alone. Saturn led them underneath the ice lighting the way through the gloom of the tunnel with an iron lantern. John followed, leading his horse. Then the guardsmen. After them came Bowen Marsh and his stewards, a score of them, every man assigned a task. Above, Ulmer of the Kingswood had the wall. Two score of Castle Black's best bowmen stood with him, ready to respond to any trouble down below with a rain of arrows. North of the wall, Tormund Giantsbane was waiting, mounted on a runty little garron that looked far too weedy to support his weight. His two remaining sons were with him, tall Torig and young Drin, along with threescore warriors. Ah! Tormund called. Guards, is it? Now, where's the trust in that crow? You brought more men than I did. So I did. Come here by me, lad. I want my folk to see you. I got thousands ne'er saw a Lord Commander, grown men who were told as boys that your rangers would eat them if they didn't behave. They need to see you plain, a long-faced lad in an old black cloak. They need to learn that the night's watch is not to be feared. That is a lesson I would sooner they never learned. John peeled the glove off his burned hand, put two fingers in his mouth, and whistled. Ghosts came racing from the gate. Tormund's horse shied so hard that the wildling almost lost his saddle. Nought to be feared, John said. Ghost, stay. You are a black-hearted bastard, Lord Crow. Tormund Hornblower 
lifted his own war horn to his lips. The sound of it echoed off the ice like rolling thunder, and the first of the free folk began to stream toward the gate. From dawn till dusk, John watched the wildlings pass. The hostages went first, one hundred boys between the ages of eight and sixteen. "'Your blood price, Lord Crow,' Tormund declared. "'I hope the wailing of their poor mothers don't haunt your dreams at night.' Some of the boys were led to the gate by a mother or a father, others by older siblings. More came alone. Fourteen and fifteen-year-old boys were almost men and did not want to be seen clinging to a woman's skirts. Two stewards counted the boys as they went by, noting each name on long sheepskin scrolls. A third collected their valuables for the toll and wrote that down as well. The boys were going to a place that none had ever been before, to serve an order that had been the enemy of their kith and kin for thousands of years. Yet John saw no tears, heard no wailing mothers. These are winter's people, he reminded himself. Tears freeze upon your cheeks where they come from. Not a single hostage balked or tried to slink away when his turn came to enter that gloomy tunnel. Almost all the boys were thin. Some passed the point of gauntness, with spindly shanks and arms like twigs. That was no more than John expected. Elsewise they came in every shape and size and color. He saw tall boys and short boys, brown-haired boys and black-haired boys, honey blondes and strawberry blondes and redheads kissed by fire, like Igrit. He saw boys with scars, boys with limps, boys with puckmarked faces. Many of the older boys had downy cheeks or wispy little mustachios, but there was one fellow with a beard as thick as Tormund's. Some dressed in fine soft furs, some in boiled leather and oddments of armor, more in wool and sealskins, a few in rags. One was naked. Many had weapons, sharpened spears, stone-headed mauls, knives made of bone or stone or dragon-glass, spike clubs, tangle-nets, even here and there a rust-eaten old sword. The Hornwood boys walked blithe and barefoot through the snowdrifts. Other lads had bear paws on their boots and walked on top of the same drifts, never sinking through the crust. Six boys arrived on horses, two on mules. A pair of brothers turned up with a goat, the biggest hostage was six and a half feet tall, but had a baby's face. The smallest was a runty boy who claimed nine years, but looked no more than six. Of special note were the sons of men of renown. Tormund took care to point them out as they went by. "'The boy there is the son of Soren Shieldbreaker,' he said of one tall lad. "'Him with the red hair is Garrick Kingsblood's get.' "'Comes of the line of Raymond Redbeard, to hear him tell it. "'The line of Redbeard's little brother, you want it true.' Two boys looked enough alike to be twins, "'but Tormund insisted they were cousins, born a year apart. "'One was sired by Hal the Huntsman, "'tother by Hal the Handsome, both on the same woman. "'Fathers ate each other. "'I was you, I'd send one to Eastwatch, "'and t'other to your Shadow Tower.' 
Other hostages were named as sons of Howard Wanderer, of Brog, of Devin Sealskinner, Kyleg of the Wooden Ear, Mourner White Mask, the Great Walrus. The Great Walrus? Truly. They have queer names along the frozen shore. Three hostages were sons of Alfin Crowkiller, an infamous raider slain by Corrin Halfhand, or so Tormund insisted. They do not look like brothers, John observed. Half-brothers, born of different mothers. Alfin's, uh, member was a wee thing, even smaller than yours, but he was never shy with where he stuck it. Had a son in every village, that one. Of a certain runty, red-faced boy, Tormund said, That one's a whelp, a Varamir Sixkins. You remember Varamir, Lord Crow? He did. The skin-changer. Aye, he was that. A vicious little runt besides. Dead now, like as not. No one's seen him since the battle. Two of the boys were girls in disguise. When John saw them, he dispatched Rory and Big Little to bring them to him. One came meekly enough, the other kicking and biting. This could end badly. Do these two have famous fathers? Ha! Them skinny things, not likely. Pick by lot. They're girls. Are they? Tormund squinted at the pair of them from his saddle. Me and Lord Crow made a wager on which of you as the biggest member. Pull them breeches down. Give us a look. One of the girls turned red. The other glared defiantly. You leave us alone, Tormund giant stink. You let us go. Ah, you win, Crow. Not a cock between them. The little one's got a set of balls, though. A spear wife in the making, eh? He called to his own men. Go find them something girly to put on before Lord Snow wets his small clothes. I'll need two boys to take their places. How's that? Tormund scratched his beard. A hostage is a hostage, seems to me. That big sharp sword of yours can snick a girl's head off as easy as a boy's. A father loves his daughters, too. Well, most fathers. It is not their fathers who concern me. Did Mance ever sing of brave Danny Flint? Not as I recall. Who was he? A girl who dressed up like a boy to take the black. Her song is sad and pretty. What happened to her wasn't. In some versions of the song, her ghost still walked the night fort. I'll send the girls to Longbarrow. The only men there were Arne Emmett and Dolores Ed, both of whom he trusted. That was not something he could say of all his brothers. The wilding understood. Nasty birds, you crows, he spat. Two more boys, then. You'll have them. When nine and ninety hostages had shuffled by them to pass beneath the wall, Tormund Giantsbane produced the last one. My son, Drin. You'll see he's well taken care of, Crow. Or I'll cook your black liver up and eat it. John gave the boy a close inspection. Bran's age, or the age it would have been, if Theon had not killed him. Drin had none of Bran's sweetness, though. He was a chunky boy, with short legs, thick arms, and a wide red face, a miniature version of his father, with a shock of dark brown hair. He'll serve as my own page. 
John promised Ormond. Hear that, Drin? Say that you don't get above yourself. To John he said, He'll need a good beating from time to time. Be careful of his teeth, though, he bites. He reached down for his horn again, raised it, and blew another blast. This time it was warriors who came forward, and not just one hundred of them, five hundred, John Snow judged, as they moved out from beneath the trees, perhaps as many as a thousand. One in every ten of them came mounted, but all of them came armed. Across their backs they bore round wicker shields covered with hides and boiled leather, displaying painted images of snakes and spiders, severed heads, bloody hammers, broken skulls and demons. A few were clad in stolen steel, dinted utments of armour looted from the corpses of fallen rangers. Others had armoured themselves in bones, like rattleshirt. All wore fur and leather. There were spear-wives with them, long hair streaming. John could not look at them without remembering Igrit. The gleam of fire in her hair, the look on her face when she disrobed for him in the grotto, the sound of her voice. You know nothing, John Snow, she told him a hundred times. It is as true now as it was then. You might have sent the women first, he said to Tormund, the mothers and the maids. The wildling gave him a shrewd look. I, I might have. And you crows might decide to close that gate. A few fighters on t'other side, well, that way the gate stays open, don't it? He grinned. I bought your bloody horse, Jon Snow. Don't mean that we can't count his teeth. Now don't you go thinking me and mine don't trust you. We trust you just as much as you trust us, he snorted. You wanted warriors, didn't you? Well, there they are, every one worth six of your black crows. John had to smile. So long as they save those weapons for our common foe, I am content. Gave you my word on it, didn't I? The word of torment giants been, strong as iron tis. He turned and spat. Amongst the stream of warriors were the fathers of many of John's hostages. Some stared with cold, dead eyes as they went by, fingering their sword-hilts. Others smiled at him like long-lost kin, though a few of those smiles discomforted Jon Snow more than any glare. None knelt, but many gave him their oaths. "'What Tormund swore, I swear,' declared black-haired Brock, a man of few words. Sauron's shield-breaker bowed his head an inch and growled, Saren's axe is yours, Jon Snow, if ever you have need of such. Red-bearded Garrett Kingsblood brought three daughters. They will make fine wives and give their husbands strong sons of royal blood, he boasted. Like their father, they are descended from Raymond Redbeard, who was king beyond the wall. Blood meant little and less amongst the free folk, John knew. Higrit had taught him that. Garrick's daughters shared her same flame-red hair, though hers had been a tangle of curls, and theirs hung long and straight. Kissed by fire. Three princesses, each lovelier than the last, he told their father. I will see that they are presented to the queen.
Celeste Baratheon would take to these three better than she had to Val, he suspected. They were younger and considerably more coward. Sweet enough to look at them, though their father seems a fool. Hard wanderer swore his oath upon his sword, as nicked and pitted a piece of iron as John had ever seen. Devin Sealskinner presented him with a sealskin hat, Hal the Huntsman with a bare claw necklace. The warrior witch, Mourner, removed her weirwood mask just long enough to kiss his gloved hand and swear to be his man, or his woman, whichever he preferred, and on and on and on. As they passed, each warrior stripped off his treasures and tossed them into one of the carts that the stewards had placed before the gate. Amber pendants, golden torques, jeweled daggers, silver brooches set with gemstones, bracelets, rings, Nayello cups and golden goblets, war horns and drinking horns, a green jade comb, a necklace of freshwater pearls, all yielded up and noted down by Bowen Marsh. One man surrendered a shirt of silver scales that had surely been made for some great lord. Another produced a broken sword with three sapphires in the hilt. And there were queerer things. A toy mammoth made of actual mammoth hair. An ivory phallus, a helm made from a unicorn's head, complete with horn. How much food such things would buy in the free cities, Jon Snow could not begin to say. After the riders came the men of the frozen shore. John watched a dozen of their big bone chariots roll past him one by one, clattering like rattleshirt. Half still rolled as before, others had replaced their wheels with runners. They slid across the snowdrifts, smoothly, where the wheeled chariots were foundering and sinking. The dogs that drew the chariots were fearsome beasts, as big as direwolves. Their women were clad in sealskins, some with infants at their breasts. Older children shuffled along behind their mothers, and looked up at John with eyes as dark and hard as the stones they clutched. Some of the men wore antlers on their hats, and some wore walrus tusks. The two sorts did not love each other, he soon gathered. A few thin reindeer brought up the rear, with the great dogs snapping at the heels of stragglers. "'Be wary of that lot, Jon Snow,' Tormund warned him. "'As savage folk, the men are bad, the women worse.' He took a skin off his saddle and offered it up to John. "'Here, this will make them seem less fearsome, might be, and warm you for the night. No, go on, it's yours to keep. Drink deep.' Within was a mead so potent it made John's eyes water and sent tendrils of fire snaking through his chest. He drank deep. "'You're a good man, Tormund Giants, babe, for a wildling.' "'Better than most, might be. Not so good as some.' On and on the wildlings came, as the sun crept across the bright blue sky. Just before midday, the movement stopped when an ox cart became jammed at a turn inside the tunnel. Jon Snow went to have a look for himself. The cart was now wedge-solid. The men behind were threatening to hack it apart and butcher the ox where he stood, whilst the driver and his kin swore to kill them if they tried. With the help of Tormund and his son Toreg, 
John managed to keep the wildings from coming to blood, but it took the best part of an hour before the way was opened again. You need a bigger gate, Torman complained to John, with a sour look up at the sky where a few clouds had blown in. Too bloody slow this way, like sucking the milk water through a reed. Ha! Would that I had the horn of Joramund. I'd give it a nice toot, and we'd climb through the rubble. Melisandre burned the horn of Joramund. Did she? Torman slapped his thigh and hooted. She burned that fine big horn. Aye, a bloody sin, I call it. A thousand years old, that was. We found it in a giant's grave, and no man of us had ever seen a horn so big. That must have been why Mance got the notion to tell you it were Joramund's. He wanted you crows to think he had it in his power to blow your bloody wall down about your knees. But we never found the true horn, not for all our digging. If we had, every kneeler in your seven kingdoms would have chunks of ice to cool his wine all summer. John turned in his saddle, frowning, and Joramund blew the horn of winter and woke giants from the earth. That huge horn, with its bands of old gold, incised with ancient runes, had Mance Raider lied to him, or was Tormund lying now? If Mance's horn was just a feint, where is the true horn? By afternoon the sun had gone, and the day turned grey and gusty. A snow sky, Tormund announced grimly. Others had seen the same omen in those flat white clouds. It seemed to spur them on to haste. Tempers began to fray. One man was stabbed when he tried to slip in ahead of others who had been hours in the column. Tareg wrenched the knife away from his attacker, dragged both men from the press, and sent them back to the wilding camp to start again. Tormund, John said, as they watched four old women pull a cart full of children toward the gate, tell me of our foe. I would know all there is to know of the others. The wildling rubbed his mouth. Mm, not here, he mumbled, not this side of your wall. The old man glanced uneasily toward the trees in their white mantles. They're never far, you know. They won't come out by day. Not when that old sun's shining, but don't think that means they went away. Shadows never go away. Might be you don't see them, but they're always clinging to your heels. Did they trouble you on your way south? They never came in force, if that's your meaning. But they were with us, all the same, nibbling at our edges. We lost more outriders than I care to think about, and it was worth your life to fall behind or wander off. Every nightfall, we'd ring our camps with fire. They don't like fire much, and no mistake. When the snows came, though, snow and sleet and freezing rain, it's bloody hard to find dry wood or get your kindling lit. And the cold! Oh, some nights our fires just seem to shrivel up and die. Nights like that, you always find some dead come the morning, lest they find you first. The night that... Torwin, my boy, he... Uh... Tormund turned his face away. I know, said Jon Snow. Tormund turned back. You know nothing. You killed a dead man, I, I heard. 
Men's killed a hundred. A man can fight the dead. But when their masters come, when the white mists rise up, how do you fight a mist crow? Shadows with teeth, air so cold it hurts to breathe, like a knife inside your chest. You do not know, you cannot know. Can your sword cut cold? We will see, John thought, remembering the things that Sam had told him, the things he'd found in his old books. Longclaw had been forged in the fires of old Valeria, forged in dragon flame and set with spells. Dragon steel, Sam called it, stronger than any common steel, lighter, harder, sharper. But words in a book were one thing. The true test came in battle. You are not wrong, John said. I do not know. And if the guards are good, I never will. The guards are seldom good, John Snow. Torman nodded towards the sky. The clouds roll in. Already it grows darker, colder. Your wall no longer weeps, look. He turned and called out to his son, Torik. Ride back to the camp and get them moving. The sick ones and the weak ones, the slugger beds and cravens, get them on their bloody feet. Set their bloody tents afire, if you must. The gate must close at nightfall. Any man not through the wall by then. At best pray the others get to him afore I do. You hear? I hear. Torek put his heels into his horse and galloped back down the column. On and on the wildlings came. The day grew darker, just as Tormund said. Clouds covered the sky from horizon to horizon, and warmth fled. There was more shoving at the gate, as men and goats and bullocks jostled each other out of the way. It is more than impatience, John realized. They are afraid. Warriors, spearwives, raiders, they are frightened of those woods, of shadows moving through the trees. They want to put the wall between them before the night descends. A snowflake danced upon the air, then another. Dance with me, John Snow, he thought. You'll dance with me anon. On and on and on the wildlings came. Some were moving faster now, hastening across the battleground. Others, the old, the young, the feeble, could scarce move at all. This morning the field had been covered with a thick blanket of old snow, its white crust shining in the sun. Now the field was brown and black and slimy. The passage of the free folk had turned the ground to mud and muck, wooden wheels and horses' hooves, runners of bone and horn and iron, pig trotters, heavy boots, the cloven feet of cows and bullocks, the bare black feet of the hornwood folk, all had left their marks. The soft footing slowed the column even more. "'You need a bigger gate,' Tormund complained again. By late afternoon the snow was falling steadily, but the river of wildlings had dwindled to a stream. Columns of smoke rose from the trees where their camp had been. "'Torek,' Tormund explained. "'Burn in the dead!' Always some will go to sleep and don't wake up. You find them in their tents. Them as have tents, curled up and froze. Torek knows what to do. The stream was no more than a trickle by the time Torek emerged from the wood. With him rode a dozen mounted warriors armed with spears and swords. 
My rear guard, Torman said with a gap-toothed smile. You crows have rangers, so do we. Them I left in camp, in case we were attacked before we all got out. Your best men, or my worst. Every man of them has killed a crow. Amongst the riders came one man afoot, with some big beast trotting at his heels. A boar, John saw, a monstrous boar, twice the size of ghost. The creature was covered with coarse black hair, with tusks as long as a man's arm. John had never seen a boar so huge or ugly. The man beside him was no beauty either. Hulking, black-browed, he had a flat nose, heavy jowls, dark with stubble, small black close-set eyes. Borak! Torman turned his head and spat. A skin-changer? It was not a question. Somehow he knew. Ghost turned his head. The falling snow had masked the boar's scent, but now the white wolf had the smell. He padded out in front of John, his teeth bared in a silent snarl. No! John snapped. Ghost, down! Stay! Stay! Boars and wolves, said Tormund. Best keep that beast of yours locked up tonight. I'll see that Borek does the same with his pig. He glanced up at the darkening sky. Them's a lust, and none too soon. It's going to snow all night, I feel it. Time I had a look at what's on t'other side of all that ice. You go ahead, John told him. I mean to be the last one through the ice. I will join you at the feast. Feast? Ha-ha! Ah, that's a word I like to hear. The wildling turned his garron toward the wall and slapped her on the rump. Tareg and the riders followed, dismounting by the gate to lead their horses through. Bonemarsh stayed long enough to supervise, as his stewards pulled the last carts into the tunnel. Only John Snow and his guards were left. The skin-changer stopped ten yards away. His monster poured at the mud, snuffling. A light powdering of snow covered the boar's humped black back. He gave a snort and lowered his head, and for half a heartbeat John thought he was about to charge. To either side of him his men lowered their spears. "'Brother,' Borick said, "'you'd best go on. We're about to close the gate.' "'You do that,' Borick said. "'You close it good and tight. They're coming, crow.' He smiled as ugly a smile as John had ever seen, and made his way to the gate.' The boar stalked after him. The falling snow covered up their tracks behind them. That's done, then, Rory said when they were gone. No, thought Jon Snow, it has only just begun. Bone Marsh was waiting for him south of the wall, with a tablet full of numbers. Three thousand one hundred and nineteen wildings passed through the gate today, the Lord Steward told him. Sixty of your hostages were sent off to East Watch and the Shadow Tower after they'd been fed. Ed Tollett took six wagons of women back to Long Barrow. The rest remain with us. Not for long, John promised him. Tormund means to lead his own folk to Oakenshield within a day or two. The rest will follow, as soon as we sort where to put them. As you say, Lord Snow? The words were stiff, 
the tone suggested that Bowen Marsh knew where he would put them. The castle John returned to was far different from the one he'd left that morning. For as long as he had known it, Castle Black had been a place of silence and shadows, where a meagre company of men in black moved like ghosts amongst the ruins of a fortress that had once housed ten times their numbers. All that had changed. Lights now shone through windows where Jon Snow had never seen light shine before. Strange voices echoed down the yards, and free folk were coming and going along icy paths that had only known the black boots of crows for years. Outside the old flint barracks, he came across a dozen men pelting one another with snow. Playing, John thought in astonishment. Grown men, playing like children, throwing snowballs the way Bran and Arya once did, and Rob and me before them. Donald Noy's old armory was still dark and silent, however, and John's rooms back of the cold forge were darker still. But he had no sooner taken off his cloak than Dan'l poked his head through the door to announce that Clytus had brought a message. Send him in. John lit a taper from an ember in his brazier and three candles from the taper. Clytus entered, pink and blinking, the parchment clutched in one soft hand. Beg pardon, Lord Commander. I know you must be weary, but I thought you would want to see this at once. You did well. John read. At hard home, with six ships, wild seas, Blackbird lost with all hands, two Lysini ships driven aground on Skane, Talon taking water, very bad here. Wildlings eating their own dead. Dead things in the woods. Bravassi captains will only take women, children on their ships. Witch women call us slavers. Attempt to take Storm Crow, defeated. Six crew dead. Many wildlings. Eight ravens left. Dead things in the water. Send help by land. Seas racked by storms. From Talon... By hand of Maester Harmoon. Cutter Pike had made his angry mark below. Is it grievous, my lord? asked Clytus. Grievous enough. Dead things in the wood. Dead things in the water. Six ships left of the eleven that set sail. Jon Snow rolled up the parchment, frowning. Night falls, he thought. And now... My war begins. The Discarded Knight All kneel for his magnificence, his dars, O Lorik, fourteenth of that noble name, king of Meereen, scion of Gis, octarch of the old empire, master of the Skarhazidan, consort to dragons, and blood of the harpy, roared the herald, his voice echoed off the marble floor and rang amongst the pillars. Sebastian Selmy slipped a hand beneath the fold of his cloak and loosened his sword in its scabbard. No blades were allowed in the presence of the king, save those of his protectors. It seemed as though he still counted amongst that number, despite his dismissal. No one had tried to take his sword, at least. 
Daenerys Targaryen had preferred to hold court from a bench of polished ebony, smooth and simple, covered with the cushions that Sir Barristan had found to make her more comfortable. King Hisdar had replaced the bench with two imposing thrones of gilded wood, their tall backs carved into the shape of dragons. The king seated himself in the right-hand throne, with a golden crown upon his head and a jeweled scepter in one pale hand. The second throne remained vacant. "'The important throne,' thought Sir Barristan. "'No dragon chair can replace a dragon, no matter how elaborately it's carved.' To the right of the twin thrones stood Gogor the giant, a huge hulk of a man with a brutal scarred face. To the left was the spotted cat, a leopard skin flung over one shoulder. Back of them were Bellaquo Bonebreaker and the Colide Kras. Seasoned killers all, thought Selmy. But it is one thing to face a foe in the pit when his coming is heralded by horns and drums, and another to find a hidden killer before he can strike. The day was young and fresh, and yet he felt bone-tired, as if he'd fought all night. The older he got, the less sleep Sir Barristan seemed to need. As a squire, he could sleep ten hours a night, and still be yawning when he stumbled out onto the practice yard. At three and sixty, he found that five hours a night was more than enough. Last night he had scarce slept at all. His bedchamber was a small cell off the Queen's apartments, originally slave quarters. His furnishings consisted of a bed, a chamber pot, a wardrobe for his clothing, even a chair should he want to sit. On a bedside table he kept a beeswax candle and a small carving of the warrior. Though he was not a pious man, the carving made him feel less alone here in this queer, alien city, and it was to that he had turned in the black watches of night. "'Shield me from these doubts that gnaw at me,' he had prayed, "'and give me the strength to do what is right.' But neither prayer nor dawn had brought him certainty. The hall was as crowded as the old knight had ever seen it, but it was the missing faces that Barristan Selmy noted most. Miss Handy, Belwas, Grey Worm, Ago and Jogo, and Ricaro, Iri and Jiqui, Dario Naharis. In the shave-pate's place stood a fat man in a muscled breastplate and lion's mask, his heavy legs poking out beneath a skirt of leather straps. Mark Herzoloric, the king's cousin, new commander of the brazen beasts. Selmy had already formed a healthy contempt for the man. He had known his sort in King's Landing, fawning to his superiors, harsh to his inferiors, as blind as he was boastful, and too proud by half. Scarhez could be in the hall as well, Selmy realized. That ugly face of his concealed behind a mask. Two score brazen beasts stood between the pillars, torchlight shining off the polished brass of their masks. The shave-pate could be any one of them. The hall thrummed to the sound of a hundred low voices, echoing off the pillars and the marble floor. It made an ominous sound, angry. It reminded Selmy 
of the sound a hornet's nest might make. An instant before hornets all came boiling out, and on the faces in the crowd he saw anger, grief, suspicion, fear. Hardly had the king's new herald called the court to order than the ugliness began. One woman began to wail about a brother who had died at Dasnak's pit, another of the damage to her palanquin. A fat man tore off his bandages to show the court his burned arm, where the flesh was still raw and oozing. And when a man in a blue and gold tokar began to speak of Hagaz the hero, a freeman behind him shoved him to the floor. It took six brazen beasts to pull them apart and drag them from the hall. Fox, hawk, seal, locust, lion, toad. Selmy wondered if the masks had meaning to the men who wore them. Did the same men wear the same masks every day, or did they choose new faces every morning? Quiet! Resnak Mo Resnak was pleading. Please! I will answer if you will only. Is it true? A free woman shouted. Is our mother dead? No, 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 Resnick screeched. Queen Daenerys will return to Murrine in her own time, in all her might and majesty. Until such time, his worship, King Hisdar, shall... Is no king of mine, a freedman yelled. Men began to shove at one another. The queen is not dead, the seneschal proclaimed. Her blood riders have been dispatched across the Skarhazidan to find her grace and return her to her loving lord and loyal subjects. Each has ten picked riders, and each man has three swift horses, so they may travel fast and far. Queen Daenerys shall be found. A tall Gascari in a brocade robe spoke next, in a voice as sonorous as it was cold. King Hisdar shifted on his dragon throne, his face stony as he did his best to appear concerned but unperturbed. Once again, his seneschal gave answer. Sir Barristan let Resnack's oily words wash over him. His ears and the king's guard had taught him the trick of listening without hearing, especially useful when the speaker was intent on proving that words were truly wind. Back at the rear of the hall, he spied the Dornish princeling and his two companions. They should not have come. Martel does not realize his danger. Daenerys was his only friend at this court, and she is gone. He wondered how much they understood of what was being said. Even he could not always make sense of the mongrel Gascari tongue the slavers spoke, especially when they were speaking first. Prince Quentin was listening intently, at least. That one is his father's son. Short and stocky, plain-faced, he seemed a decent lad, sober, sensible, dutiful, but not the sort to make a young girl's heart beat faster. And Daenerys Targaryen, whatever else she might be, was still a young girl, as she herself would claim when it pleased her to play the innocent. Like all good queens, she put her people first, else she would never have wed his Zoloric. But the girl in her still yearned for poetry, passion, and laughter. She wants fire, and dawn sent her mud. 
You can make a poultice out of mud to cool a fever. You could plant seeds in mud and grow a crop to feed your children. Mud would nourish you where fire would only consume you. But fools and children and young girls would choose fire every time. Behind the prince, Sigeris Drinkwater was whispering something to Ironwood. Sigeris was all his prince was not, tall and lean and comely, with a swordsman's grace and a courtier's wit. Selmy did not doubt that many a Dornish maiden had run her fingers through that sun-streaked hair and kissed that teasing smile off his lips. If this one had been the prince, things might have gone elsewise, he could not help but think. But there was something a bit too pleasant about drink water for his taste. False coin, the old knight thought. He had known such men before. Whatever he was whispering must have been amusing, for his big bald friend gave a sudden snort of laughter, loud enough so that the king himself turned his head toward the Dornishmen. When he saw the prince, his Zolorek frowned. Sir Barristan did not like that frown, and when the king beckoned his cousin Margaz closer, leaned down and whispered in his ear, he liked that even less. I swore no oath to dawn, Sir Barristan told himself. But Lewin Martell had been his sworn brother back in the days when the bonds between the king's guard still went deep. I could not help Prince Lewin on the trident, but I can help his nephew now. Martell was dancing in a viper's nest, and he did not even see the snakes. His continued presence, even after Daenerys had given herself to another before the eyes of gods and men, would provoke any husband, and Quentin no longer had the queen to shield him from Hisdar's wrath. Although... The thought hit him like a slap across the face. Quentin had grown up amongst the courts of dawn. Plots and poisons were no stranger to him. Nor was Prince Lewin his only uncle. He is kin to the Red Viper. Daenerys had taken another for her consort, but if Hesdar died, she would be free to wed again. Could the shave-pate have been wrong? Who can say that the locusts were meant for Daenerys? It was the king's own box. What if he was meant to be the victim all along? Hisdar's death would have smashed the fragile peace. The sons of the harpy would have resumed their murders, the Yunkishmen their war. Daenerys might have had no better choice than Quentin and his marriage pact. Sir Barristan was still wrestling with that suspicion when he heard the sound of heavy boots ascending the steep stone steps at the back of the hall. The Yunkish men had come. Three wise masters led the procession from the Yellow City, each with his own arm retinue. One slaver wore a tokar of maroon silk fringed with gold, one a striped tokar of teal and orange, the third an ornate breastplate inlaid with erotic scenes done in jet and jade and mother-of-pearl. The sellsword captain, Bloodbeard, accompanied them with a leathern sack slung across one massive shoulder and a look of mirth and murder on his face. 
No tattered prince, Selmy noted. No brown bane plum. Sir Barristan eyed Bloodbeard coolly. Give me half a reason to dance with you, and we will see who is laughing at the end. Resnack Mo Resnack wormed his way forward. Wise masters, you honour us. His radiance, King Hisdar, bids welcome to his friends from Yankai. We understand. Understand this. Bloodbeard pulled a severed head from his sack and flung it at the seneschal. Resnack gave a squeak of fright and leapt aside. The head bounced past him, leaving spots of blood on the purple marble floor as it rolled, until it fetched up against the foot of King Hesdar's dragon throne. Up and down the length of the hall, brazen beasts lowered their spears. Gogo the giant lumbered forward to place himself before the king's throne, and the spotted cat and Kras moved to either side of him to form a wall. Bloodbeard laughed. He's dead! <laughs> he won't bite! Gingerly, so gingerly, the seneschal approached the head, lifted it delicately by the hair. Admiral Grolio! Sir Barristan glanced toward the throne. He had served so many kings, he could not help but imagine how they might have reacted to this provocation. Ares would have flinched away in horror, likely cutting himself on the barbs of the Iron Throne, then shrieked at his swordsman to cut the Yunkishman to pieces. Robert would have shouted for his hammer to repay Bloodbeard in kind. Even Jaheris, reckoned weak by many, would have ordered the arrest of Bloodbeard and the Yunkish slavers. Hisdar sat frozen, a man transfixed. Resnack set the head on a satin pillow at the king's feet, then scampered away, his mouth twisted up in a mouet of distaste. Sir Barristan could smell the Seneschal's heavy floral perfume from several yards away. The dead man stared up reproachfully. His beard was brown with caked blood, but a trickle of red still leaked from his neck. From the look of him, it had taken more than one blow to part his head from his body. In the back of the hall, petitioners began to slip away. One of the brazen beasts ripped off his brass hawk's mask and began to spew up his breakfast. Barristan Selmy was no stranger to severed heads. This one, though, he had cost half the world with the old seafarer, from Pentos to Carth and back again to Astapor. Grolio was a good man. He did not deserve this end. All he ever wanted was to go home. The knight tensed, waiting. This, King Hisdar said at last, this is not. We are not pleased. This, um, what is the meaning of this? This. The slaver in the maroon toka produced a parchment. I have the honor to bear this message from the Council of Masters. He unrolled the scroll. It is here written. Seven entered Marine to sign the peace accords and witness the celebratory games at the pit of Dasnek. As surety for their safety, seven hostages were tendered us. 
The yellow city mourns its noble son, Yerkes Zoyansek, who perished cruelly whilst a guest of Merin. Blood must pay for blood. Grolio had a wife back in Pentos. Children, grandchildren. Why him, of all the hostages? Jogo, Hero, and Dario Naharis all commanded fighting men, but Grolio had been an admiral without a fleet. Did they draw straws, or did they think Grolio the least valuable to us, the least likely to provoke reprisal? The knight asked himself, but it was easier to pose the question than to answer it. I have no skill at unravelling such knots. Your grace, Sir Barristan called out, if it please you to recall, the noble Eurcas died by happenstance. He stumbled on the steps as he tried to flee the dragon, and was crushed beneath the feet of his own slaves and companions. That, or his heart burst in terror. He was old. Who is this who speaks without the king's leave? asked the Yankish lord in the striped tokar, a small man with a receding chin and teeth too big for his mouth. He reminded Selmy of a rabbit. Must the lords of Yankai attend to the natterings of guards? He shook the pearls that fringed his tokar. His Darzo Larek could not see him to look away from the head. Only when Resnak whispered something in his ear did he finally bestir himself. Yerkazo Yamsek was your supreme commander, he said. Which of you speaks for Yankai now? All of us, said the rabbit, the council of masters. King Hisdar found some steel. Then all of you bear the responsibility for this breach of our peace. The Yankishman in the breastplate gave answer. Our peace has not been breached. Blood pays for blood, a life for a life. To show our good faith, we return three of your hostages. The iron ranks behind him parted. Three Miranese were ushered forward, clutching at their tokars. Two women and a man. Sister, said Hisdar Zolorek stiffly. Cousins, he gestured at the bleeding head. Remove that from our sight. The admiral was a man of the sea, Sir Barristan reminded him. Mayhaps your magnificence might ask the Yankai to return his body to us, so we may bury him beneath the waves. The rabbit-toothed lord waved a hand. If it please your radiance, this shall be done, a sign of our respect. Resnick Mo Resnick cleared his throat noisily. Meaning no offence, yet it seems to me that her worship, Queen Daenerys, gave you, uh, seven hostages. Uh, the other three... The others shall remain our guests, announced the Yankish Lord in the breastplate, until the dragons have been destroyed. A hush fell across the hall. Then came the murmurs and the mutters, whispered curses, whispered prayers the hornets stirring in their hive. The dragons, said King Hesdar, are monsters, as all men saw in Dasnak's pit. No true peace is possible whilst they live. Resnak replied, 
Her magnificence, Queen Daenerys, is mother of dragons. Only she can. Bloodbeard's corn cut him off. She is gone, burned and devoured. Weeds grow through her broken skull. A roar greeted those words. Some began to shout and curse. Others stamped their feet and whistled their approval. It took the brazen beasts, pounding the butts of their spears against the floor, before the hall quieted again. Sir Barristan never once took his eyes off Bloodbeard. He came to sack a city, and his dar's peace has cheated him of his plunder. He will do whatever he must to start the bloodshed. His dar's Olorek rose slowly from his dragon throne. I must consult my counsel. This court is done. All kneel for his magnificence, his dar's Olorek. Fourteenth of that ancient name, King of Murine, Scion of Gis, Octarch of the Old Empire, Master of the Skarhasidan, Consort to Dragons and Blood of the Harpy, the herald shouted. Brazen beasts swung out amongst the pillars to form a line, then began a slow advance in lockstep, ushering the petitioners from the hall. The Dornishmen did not have as far to go as most. As befit his rank and station, Quentin Martell had been given quarters within the Great Pyramid, two levels down, a handsome suite of rooms with its own privy and walled terrace. Perhaps that was why he and his companions lingered, waiting until the press had lessened before beginning to make their way toward the steps. Sir Barristan watched them, thoughtful. What would Daenerys want? he asked himself. He thought he knew. The old knight strode across the hall, his long white cloak rippling behind him. He caught the Dornishman at the top of the steps. Your father's court was never half so lively, he heard Drinkwater japing. Prince Quentin, Selmy called, might I beg a word? Quentin Martell turned. Sir Barristan, of course. My chambers are one level down. No. It is not my place to counsel you, Prince Quentin, but if I were you, I would not return to my chambers. You and your friends should go down the steps and leave. Prince Quentin stared. Leave the pyramid. Leave the city. Return to dawn. The Dornishman exchanged a look. Our arms and armor are back in our apartments, said Geras Drinkwater. Not to mention most of the coin that we have left. Swords can be replaced, said Sir Barristan. I can provide you with coin enough for passage back to dawn. Prince Quentin, the king made note of you today. He frowned. Geras Drinkwater laughed. Should we be frightened of his dar's Olorek? You saw him just now. He quailed before the Yunkishman. They sent him ahead and he did nothing. Quentin Martell nodded in agreement. A prince does well to think before he acts. This king, I do not know what to think of him. The queen warned me against him as well. True, but uh, she warned you. Selmy frowned. Why are you still here? Prince Quentin flushed. The marriage pact uh, was made by two dead men and contain not a word about the Queen or you. 
It promised your sister's hand to the Queen's brother, another dead man. It has no force. Until you turned up here, her grace was ignorant of its existence. Your father keeps his secrets well, Prince Quentin. Too well, I fear. If the Queen had known of this pact in Carth, she might never have turned aside for Slaver's Bay. But you came too late. I have no wish to salt your wounds, but her grace has a new husband and an old paramour, and seems to prefer the both of them to you. Anger flashed in the prince's dark eyes. This Gascari lordling is no fit consort for the Queen of the Seven Kingdoms. That is not for you to judge, Sir Barrison paused, wondering if he'd said too much already. No, tell him the rest of it. That day at Dasnick's pit, some of the food in the royal box was poisoned. It was only chance that strong Belwars ate it all. The Blue Graces say that only his size and freakish strength have saved him. But it was a near thing. He may yet die. The shock was plain on Prince Quentin's face. Poison? Meant for Daenerys? Her or his da? Perhaps both. The box was his, though. His grace made all the arrangements. If the poison was his doing well, he will need a scapegoat. Who better than a rival from a distant land who has no friends at this court? Who better than a suitor the queen spurned? Quentin Martell went pale. Me? I would never... You cannot think I had any part in any... That was the truth, or he is a master mummer. Others might, said Sir Barristan. The Red Viper was your uncle, and you have good reason to want King Hisdar dead. So do others, suggested Garrus Drinkwater. Naharis, for one, the Queen's paramour, Sir Barristan finished, before the Dornish Knight could say anything that might besmirch the Queen's honour. That is what you call them, down in Dawn, is it not? He did not wait for a reply. Prince Lewin was my sworn brother. In those days there were few secrets amongst the king's guard. I know he kept a paramour. He did not feel there was any shame in that. No, said Quentin, red-faced. But Dario would kill his da in a heartbeat if he dared. Sir Barristan went on. But not with poison, never. And Dario was not there in any case. His dar would be pleased to blame him for the locusts all the same. But the king may yet have need of the storm crows, and he will lose them if he appears complicit in the death of their captain. No, my prince, if his grace needs a poisoner, he will look to you. He had said all that he could safely say. In a few more days, if the gods smiled on them, his dar's Oloric would no longer rule Merin but no good would be served by having Prince Quentin caught up in the bloodbath that was coming. If you must remain in Mirin, you would do well to stay away from court and hope his dar forgets you, Sir Barristan finished. But a ship for Valentis would be wiser, my prince. Whatever course you choose, I wish you well. Before he had gone three steps, Quentin Martell called out to him, Barristan the Bold, they call you.
Some do. Selmy had won that name when he was ten years old, a new-made squire, yet so vain and proud and foolish that he got it in his head that he could joust with tried and proven knights. So he'd borrowed a war-horse and some plate from Lord Dondarrion's armory, and entered the lists at Blackhaven as a mystery knight. Even the herald laughed. <laughs> my arms were so thin that when I lowered my lance, it was all I could do to keep the point from furrowing the ground. Lord Dondarrion would have been within his rights to pull him off the horse and spank him, but the Prince of Dragonflies had taken pity on the adult-pated boy in the ill-fitting armour and accorded him the respect of taking up his challenge. One course was all that it required. Afterwards Prince Duncan helped him to his feet and removed his helm. A boy! he had proclaimed to the crowd. A bold boy! Fifty-three years ago. How many men are still alive who were there at Blackhaven? What name do you think they will give me? Should I return to dawn without Daenerys? Prince Quentin asked. Quentin the Cautious, Quentin the Craven, Quentin the Quail. The prince who came too late, the old knight thought. But if a knight of the king's guard learns nothing else, he learns to guard his tongue. Quentin the Wise, he suggested, and hoped that it was true. The Spurned Suitor the hour of ghosts was almost upon them when Sir Geras Drinkwater returned to the pyramid to report that he had found beans, books, and old Bill Bone in one of Mirian's less savoury cellars, drinking yellow wine and watching naked slaves kill one another with bare hands and filed teeth. Beans pulled a blade and proposed a wager to determine if deserters had bellies full of yellow slime. Sagaris reported. So I tossed him a dragon and asked if yellow gold would do. He bit the coin and asked what I meant to buy. When I told him, he slipped the knife away and asked if I was drunk or mad. Let him think what he wants, so long as he delivers the message, said Quentin. He'll do that much. <laughs> I'll wager you get your meat in too. If only so rags can have pretty merits, cut your liver out, and fry it up with onions. We should be heeding, Selmy. When Barristan the Bold tells you to run, a wise man laces up his boots. We should find a ship for Volantis whilst the port is still open. Just the mention turns Sir Archibald's cheeks green. No more ships? I'd sooner up back to Volantis on one foot. Volantis, Quentin thought. Then lice, then home. Back the way I came, empty-handed. Three brave men dead. For what? It would be sweet to see the green blood again, to visit Sunspear and the water gardens and breathe the clean, sweet mountain air of ironwood in place of the hot, wet, filthy humours of Slaver's Bay. His father would speak no word of rebuke, Quentin knew, but the disappointment would be there in his eyes. His sister would be scornful, 
the sand snakes would mock him with smiles sharp as swords. And Lord Arnwood, his second father, who had sent his own son along to keep him safe? I will not keep you here, Quentin told his friends. My father laid this task on me, not you. Go home, if that's what you want. By whatever means you like, I am staying. The big man shrugged. Then drink and me are staying too. The next night, Denzo Dan turned up at Prince Quentin's door to talk terms. He will meet with you on the morrow by the spice market. Look for a door marked with a purple lotus. Knock twice and call for freedom. Agreed, said Quentin. Arch and Geras will be with me. He can bring two men as well. No more. If it please my prince, the words were polite enough, but Denzo's tone was edged with malice, and the eyes of the warrior poet gleamed bright with mockery. Come at sunset, and see that you are not followed. The Dornishman left the Great Pyramid an hour shy of sunset, in case they took a wrong turn or had difficulty finding the purple lotus. Quentin and Geras wore their sword belts. The big man had his war hammer slung across his broad back. It is still not too late to abandon this folly, Geras said, as they made their way down a fetid alley toward the old spice market. The smell of piss was in the air, and they could hear the rumble of a corpse cart's iron rim wheels off ahead. Old Bill Bone used to say that pretty Meris could stretch out a man's dying for a moon's turn. We lied to them, Quent, used them to get us here, then went over to the storm crows, as we were commanded. Catters never meant for us to do it for real, though, put in the big man. It's other boys, Sir Orson and Dick Shaw, Ungerford, Will of the Woods, that lot. They're still down in some dungeon, thanks to us. Old Rags can't have liked that much. No, Prince Quentin said, but he likes gold. Geras laughed. A pity we have none. Do you trust this priest, Quent? I don't. Half the city is calling the dragon slayer a hero, and the other half spits blood at the mention of his name. Harzu, the big man said. Quentin frowned. His name was Hargaz. His da humzum hagnag. What's it matter? I called them all Harzu. He was no dragon slayer. All he did was get his ass roasted, black and crispy. He was brave. Would I have the courage to face that monster with nothing but a spear? He died bravely, is what you mean. He died screaming, said Arch. Geras put a hand on Quentin's shoulder. Even if the Queen returns, she'll still be married. Not if I give King Arzu a little smack with my hammer, suggested the big man. Hisdar, said Quentin. His name is Hisdar. One kiss from my hammer, and no one will care what his name was, said Arch. They do not see. His friends had lost sight of his true purpose here. The road leads through her, not to her. Daenerys is the means to the prize, not the prize itself. 
The dragon has three heads, she said to me. My marriage need not be the end of all your hopes, she said. I know why you're here, for fire and blood. I have Targaryen blood in me, you know that. I can trace my lineage back. Fuck your lineage, said Garrus. The dragons won't care about your blood, except maybe how it tastes. You cannot tame a dragon with a history lesson. They're monsters, not maesters. Quint, is this truly what you want to do? This is what I have to do. For Dorn, for my father, for Cletus and Will and Maester Kedry. They're dead, said Garrus. They won't care. All dead, Quentin agreed. For what? To bring me here so I might wed the Dragon Queen. A grand adventure, Cletus called it. Demon roads and stormy seas, and at the end of it, the most beautiful woman in the world. A tale to tell our grandchildren. But Cletus will never father a child, unless he left a bastard in the belly of that tavern when she liked. Will will never have his wedding. Their deaths should have some meaning. Garrus pointed to where a corpse slumped against a brick wall, attended by a cloud of glistening green flies. Did his death have meaning? Quentin looked at the body with distaste. He died of the flocks. Stay well away from him. The pale mare was inside the city walls. Small wonder that the street seemed so empty. The unsolid will send a corpse cart for him. No doubt. But that was not my question. Men's lives have meaning, not their deaths. I loved Will, and Cletus too. But this will not bring them back to us. This is a mistake, Quint. You cannot trust in cell swords. They are men like any other men. They want gold, glory, power. That's all I'm trusting in. That and my own destiny. I'm a prince of dawn, and the blood of dragons is in my veins. The sun had sunk below the city wall by the time they found the purple lotus, painted on the weather wooden door of a low brick hovel, squatting amidst a row of similar hovels, in the shadow of the great yellow and green pyramid of Razda. Quentin knocked twice, as instructed. A gruff voice answered through the door, growling something unintelligible in the mongrel tongue of Slaver's Bay, an ugly blent of old Gascari and high Valerian. The prince answered in the same tongue. Freedom! The door opened. Garrus entered first, for caution's sake, with Quentin close behind him and the big man bringing up the rear. Within, the air was hazy with bluish smoke, whose sweet smell could not quite cover up the deeper stinks of piss and sour wine and rotting meat. The space was much larger than it had seemed from without, stretching off to right and left into the adjoining hovels. What had appeared to be a dozen structures from the street turned into one long hall inside. At this hour the house was less than half full. A few of the patrons favoured the Dornish men, with looks bored or hostile or curious. The rest were crowded around the pit at the far end of the room, where a pair of naked men were slashing at each other with knives, whilst the watchers cheered them on. Quentin saw no sign of the men they had come to meet. 
Then a door he had not seen before swung open, and an old woman emerged, a shriveled thing in a dark red toka fringed with tiny golden skulls. Her skin was white as mare's milk, her hair so thin that he could see the scalp beneath. Gone, she said. I be his arena. Purple lotus. Go down here. You find them. She held the door and gestured them through. Beyond was a flight of wooden steps, steep and twisting. This time the big man led the way, and Garrus was the rear guard, with the prince between them. An underseller. It was a long way down, and so dark that Quentin had to feel his way to keep from slipping. Near the bottom, Sir Archibald pulled his dagger. They emerged in a brick vault, thrice the size of the wine sink above. Huge wooden vats lined the walls as far as the prince could see. A red lantern hung on a hook just inside the door, and a greasy black candle flickered on an overturned barrel, serving as a table. That was the only light. Kago Corpse Killer was pacing by wine vats, his black arrack hanging at his hip. Pretty Maris stood cradling a crossbow, her eyes as cold and dead as two grey stones. Denzo Dan barred the door once the Dornishmen were inside, then took up a position in front of it, arms crossed against his chest. One too many, Quentin thought. The tattered prince himself was seated at the table, nursing a cup of wine. In the yellow candlelight, his silver-gray hair seemed almost golden, though the pouches underneath his eyes were etched as large as saddlebags. He wore a brown wool traveller's cloak, with silvery chain-mail glimmering underneath. Did that betoken treachery or simple prudence? An old sellsword is a cautious sellsword. Quentin approached his table. My lord, you look different without your cloak. My ragged raiment. The Pentoshi gave a shrug. A poor thing. Yet those tatters fill my foes with fear. And on the battlefield, the sight of my rags blowing in the wind emboldens my men more than any banner. And if I want to move unseen, I need only slip it off to become plain and unremarkable. He gestured at the bench across from him. Sit. I understand that you are a prince. Would that I had known. Will you drink? Tsarina offers food as well. Her bread is stale and her stew is unspeakable. Grease and salt, with a morsel or two of meat. Dog, she says, but I think rat is more likely. It will not kill you, though. I found that it is only when the food is tempting that one must beware. Poisoners invariably choose the choicest dishes. You brought three men, Sir Garris pointed out, with an edge in his voice. We agreed on two apiece. Maris is no man. Maris, sweet, undo your shirt. Show him. That will not be necessary, said Quentin. If the talk he had heard was true, beneath that shirt, pretty Maris had only the scars left by the men who cut her breasts off. Maris, as a woman, I agree. You've still twisted the terms. Tattered and twisty. What a rogue I am. Three to two is not much of an advantage. 
it must be admitted, but it counts for something. In this world, a man must learn to seize whatever gifts the gods chose to send him. That was a lesson I learned at some cost. I offer it to you as a sign of my good faith. He gestured at the chair again. Sit and say what you came to say. I promise not to have you killed until I've heard you out. That is the least I can do for a fellow prince. Quentin, is it? Quentin of House Martel. Frog suits you better. <laughs> it is not my custom to drink with liars and deserters, but you've made me curious. Quentin sat. One wrong word, and this could turn to blood in half a heartbeat. I ask your pardon for our deception. The only ship sailing for Slaver's Bay were those that had been hired to bring you to the wars. The tattered prince gave a shrug. Every turncloak has his tail. You are not the first to swear me your swords, take my coin, and run. All of them have reasons. My little son is sick, or my wife is putting horns on me, or the other men all make me suck their cocks. Such a charming boy at the last, but I did not excuse his desertion. Another fellow told me our food was so wretched that he had to flee before it made him sick, so I had his foot cut off, roasted it up, and fed it to him. Then I made him our camp cook. Our meals improved markedly, and when his contract was fulfilled, he signed another. You, though, several of my best are locked up in the Queen's dungeons, thanks to that lying tongue of yours. And I doubt that you can even cook. I am a prince of dawn, said Quentin. I had a duty to my father and my people. There was a secret marriage pact. So I heard, and when the Silver Queen saw your scrap of parchment, she fell into your arms, yes? No, said Pretty Maris. No? Oh, I recall. Your bride flew off on a dragon. Well, when she returns, do be sure to invite us to your nuptials. The men of the company would love to drink to your happiness, and I do love a Westerosi wedding. The bedding part especially, only... Oh, wait! He turned to Denzo Dan. Denzo, I, I thought you told me that the Dragon Queen had married some Gascari. A Miranese nobleman, rich. The tattered prince turned back to Quentin. Could that be true? Oh, surely not. What of your marriage pact? She laughed at him said Pretty Maris. Daenerys never laughed. The rest of Meereen might see him as an amusing curiosity, like the exiled summer islander that King Robert used to keep at King's Landing, but the Queen had always spoken to him gently. We came too late, said Quentin. A, a pity you did not desert me sooner. The tattered prince sipped at his wine. So... No wedding for Prince Frog. Is that why you've come hopping back to me? Have my three brave Dornish lads decided to honor their contracts? No. How vexing. Yerkazo Yansak is dead. 
ancient tidings. I saw him die. The poor man saw a dragon and stumbled as he tried to flee. Then a thousand of his closest friends stepped on him. No doubt the Yellow City is awash in tears. Did you ask me here to toast his memory? No. Have the Yunkishman chosen a new commander? The Council of Masters has been unable to agree. Yezanzo Kagas had the most support, but now he's died as well. The wise masters are rotating their supreme command amongst themselves. Today our leader is one of your friends, in the ranks, dubbed the Drunken Conqueror. On the morrow it will be Lord Wobblecheeks. The rabbit, said Maris. Wobblecheeks was yesterday. I stand corrected, my sweetling. Our young Kish friends were kind enough to provide us with a chart. I must strive to be more assiduous about consulting it. Yerkaz Zoyanzak was a man who hired you. He signed our contract on behalf of his city, just so. Mirin and Yunkai have made peace. The siege is to be lifted. The arm is disbanded. There will be no battle, no slaughter, no city to sack and plunder. Oh, life is full of disappointments. How long do you think the Yunkishman will want to continue paying wages to four free companies? The tattered prince took a sip of wine and said, A vexing question. But this is the way of life for we men of the free companies. One war ends, another begins. Fortunately, there's always someone fighting someone somewhere, perhaps here, even as we sit here drinking. Bloodbeard is urging our youngish friends to present King Hisdar with another head. Freedmen and savers eye each other's necks and sharpen their knives. The sons of the harpy plot in their pyramids. The pale mare rides down slave and lord alike. Our friends from the Yellow City gaze out to sea, and somewhere in the grasslands a dragon nibbles the tender flesh of Daenerys Targaryen. Who rules Meereen tonight? Who will rule it on the morrow? Then Pentoshe gave a shrug. One thing I am certain of. Someone will have need of our swords. I have need of those swords. Dawn will hire you. The tattered prince glanced at pretty Maris. He does not lack for gall, this frog. Must I remind him? My dear prince, the last contract we signed, you used to wipe your pretty pink bottom. I will double whatever the Yunkishmen are paying you. And pay in gold upon the signing of our contract, yes? I will pay you part when we reach Volantis. The rest when I am back in Sunspear. We brought gold with us when we set sail, but it would have been hard to conceal once we joined the company, so we gave it over to the banks. I can show you papers. Ah, papers. But we will be paid double. Twice as many papers, said Pretty Maris. The rest you'll have in dawn, Quentin insisted. My father is a man of honor. If I put my seal to an agreement, he will fulfill its terms. You have my word on that.
The tattered prince finished his wine, turned the cup over, and set it down between them. So, let me see if I understand. A proven liar and oathbreaker wishes to contract with us and pay in promises. And for what services, I wonder? Are my wind blown to smash the Yunkai and sack the Yellow City? Defeat a Dothraki Kalasar in the field? Escort you home to your father? Or will you be content if we deliver Queen Daenerys to your bed, wet and willing? Tell me true, Prince Frog. What would you have of me and mine? I need you to help me steal a dragon. Kago Corpse Killer chuckled. Pretty Maris curled her lip in a half-smile. Denzo Darn whistled. The tattered prince only leaned back on his stool and said, Double does not pay for dragons, princing. Even a frog should know that much. Dragons come dear, and men who pay in promises should have at least the sense to promise more. If you want me to triple what I want, said the tattered prince, is Pentos.'